everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 382. I'm your host, Chris Zoner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And before we get going here, I uh, want to thank everyone for all their uh, prayers and well wishes during my uh, my time here when my brother passed away, um, which is the reason why we didn't have a show last week. Um Yes, pretty tough time right now, and you never want to have a family member pass away in the holiday season. And uh, it's 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 just it's been tough for the family, especially for my mom, because you you never want to uh, outlive your children, that's for sure. Um, but we're doing as good as we can. Um, had a wonderful memorial service that uh, was very. Um, Uplifting and powerful because my brother was an amazing man who uh, influenced a lot of people's lives. And um, we were able to uh, celebrate that during this service. But, uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're back to normal now in a way, as good as we can be. And, uh, you know, it's still tough and it's going to be tough at Christmas time. But uh, we're going day by day and uh, getting back into the groove of uh doing this show and going back to work and stuff like that you know it's never going to be the same but we're all we're just like i said day by day we're we're doing what we can to uh keep going keep on keeping on and uh and we'll, we'll see him again one day so uh so yeah so again thanks to all of you for your all your your messages your tweets you know everything that uh, you guys have done for me and my family, we definitely appreciate that. All right, so Bix, we uh, how you doing? As to, to start off here, I'm doing okay. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, so since we didn't have a show last week, which we are going to do, um, you know, I made the plug on the previous show that we were going to do the show about 1990. We are going to do that show. We're going to do it next week. So it's kind of a reverse deal here. We would have done it this week, but this is a Patreon show. So we, we're going to get that taken care of. But uh, we will be doing the 1990 show next week. So don't fret. We're going to do that. And we'll eventually find a way to get back in the in the line again into the chronological deal, as we always do. But anyway. All right. So, um, yes, this is a Patreon show. Patreon request to show. And speaking of our Patreon, before we get into all that real quick, we have a new Patreon show up at patreon.com slash between the sheets. As uh, we have finished part two of our three-part series, at the look back at 25 years of Montreal, Montreal, as I try not to, to uh, yawn and burp at the same time. Um, we pick up where we left off, uh, which would be uh, the night at the Survivor Series. And uh, we, again, cover only two weeks, <laughs> but it's still a long show because there's so much going on. And uh, it shows up now, and we look at a lot of stuff in here, and we look at a, a lot of emotion from uh, Bret Hart, obviously, and his response to everything that had happened. And, of course, we got uh, Shawn Michaels talking to Mike Mooneyham. He has a lot of interesting quotes. And, of course, we got Vince on Raw. With Brett Screw Brett and all this stuff going on there. So, um, yes, uh, very strong show. And uh, we get into a lot of little, you know, side topics as well. Um, 
one of the ones that I was most intrigued with as we did the show was uh, what did Carl DeMarco know? And what what was his role in everything? I mean, he's one of Bret Hart's closest confidants and on, on one side. And on the other side, he's head of WF Canada. So, I mean, he's on both sides here. So there's some interesting stuff there that, you know, you can read into what you will. And there's a lot of other stuff going on, too. You know, we talk about um, the Raws, you know, after the fact, Sean and all his wackiness. Jim Neidhart coming back, the first one to come back. And it's a very, 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 very good show and uh, a great way to continue the series as uh, we'll pivot to part three next month. So $5 a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets gets you access to that. Plus all the other audio that we've done in our over six years of the Patreon. So everybody uh, jump on that. As I said, part three will be out at the end of uh, December. And we already have January and February locked up for the Patreon show. And uh, just a little hint, hint. It's one of our our favorites, one of our favorite subjects. That's all we'll say. Yes, it is good, sir. (laughs) Um, Also, I do have a quick correction that a certain Canadian wrestling genius sent me. Uh, Survivor Series 97 was not on Remembrance Day. It was Remembrance Day weekend. Remembrance Day was two days later. Well, there you go. How about that? So when you listen to Bix talk about that on the Patreon show ad, ad nauseum, then you know that he, then you know he's wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> because he talks about that a lot. Well, because I, 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 I think it was when I was putting together the notes for part three that has the edited transcript of the, you know, Wrestling with Shadows wire discussion. And either, I'm not, I don't have it in front of me, either Dave gets that wrong and says it was Remembrance Day, or I misremember Dave talking about, because he left that part out in the transcript, but he explained that Vince asked Brett why he had a poppy on his shirt, and then Brett explained Remembrance Day, because it was that weekend. But, one or the other, I don't remember which, but yes, that was something I missed. I mean, it's still a little... People are wearing the poppy for like two weeks beforehand, so it's not not the best time to screw your Canadian hero, regardless. But anyway, well, the, well, Darren and the Canadians must love Triple H because he he wants to wear poppy all the time. You said that. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> the joke was there for me to go to, so there you go. He's all right, kidding. But, I, 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 hey, it's a joke. <laughs> but anyway. Hey, he may not be married anymore. <laughs> what, are you I saying mean, that I, Stephanie's taking a lot of trips to Lauderdale? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Believe me. Who knows? But anyway. All right. So anyway. Um, yes, it's a Patreon request to show. And uh, we are joined by uh, another a guy who has uh, done quite a few of these. Like Kyler Gignac has done with us. And uh, we are joined by uh, Mark Cole. Mark, uh, welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you very much. And uh, you wanted us to talk about 1987. And of course, this week in 1987 that we're doing here. And of course, uh, always a question I ask to the patrons that join us for this uh, this show that uh, they can do for the $100 pledge. Uh, what, what did you uh, want to do this week? Well... This actually took a lot of negotiation because I believe I first started talking to you in September, trying to figure out a, uh, either an open date 
and or something I wanted to talk about. And in between shows already being taken uh, on the calendar or ideas that I had that had actually been done on past shows, it basically took until now to be able to find something that I thought would be a good week. Um, normally, I like doing the earlier in the 80s, especially because, ironically, doing this week in 1987, there's no, there's no Mid-South UWF to talk about because it's officially – uh, no more after Starcade. So, but that's not why. What I picked. Um, we'll get to uh, the main reason I picked this week was, idly enough, not one of the major territories, but uh, an outlaw slash independent show that we'll we'll get to eventually. That I believe may have been mentioned for the first time in the Observer, in the issue that we're talking about, even though it had been around for about six months already. But we'll get to that uh, in due time. All right, there you go. There's a little tease for you folks. But um, this uh, this is an interesting week because uh, Dave Meltzer's in Japan during our week. So um, he's out. So some you, you don't have a lot of the heavy news you might have in the American promotions in the Observer, but we have a heavy Japan section this week because Dave is in the country. And uh, going to shows, so we'll have a lot of that. But first, he wants to give the lay of the land here as he's back from his two-week vacation. I run away as we go to the week of November 30th to December 6th, 1987. Let me get that out of the way. Dave says, I run away for two weeks and find this business has gone topsy-turvy, which is why this issue is several days late. Everything will be back on schedule to start next week. Coming out of Thanksgiving, we have seen the business continuing in its doldrums. Although everyone Dave has talked with loves Ted DiBiase. The plain fact is his matches with Hulk Hogan aren't doing the business they should be doing, although they've turned the heat up on him now. Crockett's Blunkhouse Stampedes as far have been disappointing at the gate in almost every case, to the point where that company had better reevaluate his business, or he'll probably lose his status as a so-called major league promotion. The best sign is Titans rating for Saturday Night's main event, which aired on November 28th. Now, while Dave didn't have the official figure, a second-hand source gave him an 11.3 rating at 30 share, which made the second-highest rating the show they received. The record was for the pre-WrestleMania 3 Battle Royal from Detroit, and third-highest rated show in that time slot in the history of television. As Dave said before, TV ratings today are the most important indicator of the public's interest in a promotion, and this shows that even though crowds are down, the public interest in Titan has not fallen. In a sense... This means that Titans' current feuds aren't getting their audiences juiced up as the ones when they're doing well at the gate. JCP, on the other hand, continues his TV ratings doldrums. Before they should even worry about getting the houses back in order, they got to get the fans back to watching their TV shows in the first place. In the syndicated ratings from mid-November, the most up-to-date he had, Titan actually picked up slightly leading the Survivor Series, and most importantly during sweeps, of a 10.5 and a 10.2 for the combination of all their shows the first two weeks of sweeps. They have been slightly doing slightly less than that in the prior months. The Wrestling Network remains out of the top 15 and below a 5.0 rating, while the AWA Network, anchored by Pro Wrestling This Week, is hovering between a fi- number 15 and number 20 with a rating in the low fives. That would be the All-Star Wrestling Network. Yes, the All-Star Wrestling Network. Yes. Um, go ahead. Just to get ahead of it, because I don't think we've talked about this in a little while, and it gets very confusing if you don't make it very clear. These are bullshit numbers. 
Yeah. They're cumulative numbers that are... Like, I forget exactly how the math is done, but it's basically adding ev the numbers together of every syndicated show each network has, a acting as if there's no duplication, and then a certain percentage of all their cable shows as well. Yes, it is a uh, total manipulation. I mean, that's the reason why normally, even when we have them, like in Matt Watch and stuff, we don't mention syndicated numbers. Which is funny because here we have Dave saying this is the indicator for him is these TV ratings. <laughs> In fairness, I mean, you can compare them to each other. But no, this is an indicator if, 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 if things are successful or not, which, you know. <sighs> I mean, you compare it week to week, I mean. I know, but even at this point in time, that's not the indicator to me. The indicator to me is what are you doing at the gates? You know, that's that's the most important thing in this era is what is your house show business doing? Yeah. I mean, and Dave's like, you know, what well, TV ratings are great. Uh, so why why isn't the business up? I mean, that's the thing in wrestling. I mean, look at WCW when they had, well, in the NWA at the time when Flair was booking. In 89 and, and going to 90, had this you know, amazing TV ratings. House shows were doing horrible. <laughs> I mean, that's the money in this time period. Now's a different story because, you know, there's not that many house shows. AEW runs zero and WWE runs few. So, yeah, it's TV now. But back in this time period, it's the house shows that's the indicator of if you're doing good business or not, in my opinion. But, um, I mean, Mark, what your thoughts here on, on the wrestling business itself here as we end 87 going into 88? I mean, uh, what are your thoughts on the landscape of, of, of wrestling at that time? Well, I mean, this is certainly an interesting week because we've just had the Thanksgiving showdown between Survivor Series and Starcade, you know, and, you know, that's going to, you know, that's, you know, Sort of the first, some of the first fired shots fired in the war by Vince to Crockett over the whole, you know, pay per view issue. You know, see past episodes of the show for a discussion. Of and, that. Pa and Patreon, Patreon.com slash Patreon. Yes, if uh, if you need to take a break during all the Montreal talk, go back and listen to some of the back. <laughs> back I say that from I say that for as someone who. Uh, uh, got my trial fatigue about an hour into the first of the th three, what will be three monthly episodes. <laughs> it's definitely, I would definitely encourage listening to it, take a break, listen to some other stuff, and then come back to it. It's like, as all the great detail that you guys put into it, you know, it's like, if there is there, you know, it's one of the things that there's been so much written about. That's like even if we're learning new stuff in the Patreon show, it's like we all know so much already that it's kind of like, yeah, okay. But, uh, but yeah, that's the reason. That's the reason why we didn't do it until the 20th anniversary. No, and I mean, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting time because you're starting to see, you know, when we get to the the territory section, how few territories there are by the end of by the end of 87, certainly losing 
the UWF in whatever form it was at this point was a major blow, you know, for the, for the wrestling fan, you know, we're, you know, we had all this stuff on TV in syndication and now stuff is slowly starting to go away, whether it goes away for good or you get, you know, pseudo Crockett expansion shows in those time slots. So, you know, our choices are, are starting to narrow already in the, at the end of 87. And you're in a situation now where, I mean, it's just wrestling in 87 at the house shows for everybody. It's taking dips everywhere. Every, I mean, all the, all the major promotions, all the territories, it's just, it's where we're at now. But I mean, you look at what's about to happen in 88 though. I mean, WF is about to, you know, come through with a big money deal with, uh, the, the big event, the main event, excuse me. And, uh, of course, having uh, the Andre Hogan match, doing the TV rating it does, WrestleMania 4. I mean, yeah, they're about to do some big things. But, yes. yeah, Crockett, Crockett is uh, Crockett's about to go to an interesting stage here as we get in 1988. That's for damn sure. Yes. Although, oh, Chris, I found the uh, syndicated rankings for our week. Yeah. Week ending December 6th. Okay. Yeah. So, number one is Wheel of Fortune. Okay. Number two is Jeopardy, of course. Well, yeah. Number three is TV Net Movie, which I'm assuming is just whichever major syndicated, like, movie syndication company does, like, a first run or whatever, because it's first run syndication rankings. Uh, so, yeah, this doesn't include any any re- any shows that are in syndicated reruns. Number four is World Wrestling Federation, with an 11.2 rating, so up from what they were doing during sweeps. Um, and, of course, it has the asterisk for includes multiple airings. Mm-hmm. Wink, wink. Star Trek, then Star Trek Next Generation at five. <laughs> Geraldo and Modern Love are packaged together for number six. What was Modern Love? Uh, and the, and there's, a method, there's a method of modern love. That's Hall on Oats. Uh, modern love. Okay, it was. Oh no, that's, that's a new new thing. 1987. Um, I don't know. I can't find that. Uh, yeah, I'm looking. I see the show that the recent show on Amazon. Oh, Prime. it was a two-hour live special. Uh, it was a two-hour live special by Geraldo. Oh, okay. So they 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 just bundled it in with Geraldo for that week. Yeah, it aired December first from eight to ten. It was a live special. He did. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I see he has about it on his website too. <laughs> okay. He he, he uh, yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. So anyway, it, it, it's. It, Go ahead. What does it say? Geraldo, as I'm going to do it, Geraldo uh, probes the mores and dangers inherent in the sexually precarious 1980s. Has sex changed with the growing emergence of AIDS and other STDs? The show pushes caution if you're a single person looking to enjoy sex. So it's playing off that whole deal, you know, because 87, 87 is still in that heavy AIDS scare era. Yes. <laughs> yes, as someone 
who uh, was 17 years old at that time, oh. I, can, I, can de- I can definitely say it was not the uh, free love of the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it wasn't. <laughs> so rounding out the top, top 15, so Oprah was seven, Gunfighters was eight, People's Court was nine, the syndicated version of National Geographic Explorer was 10, Best in National Geographic was 11, Entertainment Tonight at 12, and uh, People's Court, uh, Geraldo, Best of Nat Geo, oh, both Nat Geo shows, Entertainment Tonight are all combined, uh, or excuse me, includes multiple airings, Donahue at 13, Hollywood Squares at 14, and Mama's Family includes multiple airings at 15. Gunfighters was not a TV show, it was a TV movie. Okay. George Kennedy. That's another first run we have uh, during our week. But yeah, that's that's where everything sat. Um, I guess it would make sense if you have original TV movies to try and run them during sweeps. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, especially in syndication where it's – yeah, because it's about the local stations. Uh, also, just to cap off the whole Dave thing here too, should mention, um, I believe what happened was – he watched Starcade and then at someone else's house, Survivor Series, dubbed off a copy of Starcade for John McAdam that I – did he express mail it or something maybe? And then left for Japan either – it was either the same day or the next day. Yeah, which we're about to get into in just a few minutes. It's Japan tour. Yes. But anyway, we, we're going to transition into World Wrestling Federation now. Not a whole lot going on. They says, I don't know what of this has aired and what has it, but here's what I've heard about the big angle involving Ted DiBiase and Hulk Hogan. DiBiase offers Hogan seven figures to give it a title belt, and Hulk thinks about it. Says something like he'd love to help his family, with me, but he can't lend down the kids, so he turns it down. Then DiBiase comes to an agreement with Andre the Giant, Bobby Heenan, that if and when Andre wins the title, then he will sell the title to DiBiase for seven figures. This time, whole idea of buying and selling the belt is stupid. But it's not as stupid with Titan because Titan's entertainment and makes no pretense of being sports, so it shouldn't be judged on sports terms. If having an NWA, it would be a whole lot stupider. This should lead, all should lead up to WrestleMania, and Dave Best rumors start flying there since Hulk Hogan's finally scheduled to leave wrestling for several months after WrestleMania 4 to do a movie. But that doesn't mean they just won't go without a champion for three months, but the rumors will be everywhere. Dave Best thinking Andre will beat Hogan and so about DiBiase. Which would be ironic that for the first time in WF history, a great wrestler would be the champion. <laughs> um, I think Dave's wrong in a, in a way here. I think that if you do an angle, it doesn't matter what promotion you do it in, where you have a guy who has a lot of money, whether it's a DBI this angle or somebody like a Skandar at bar. You know, you know, a rich foreign, you know, person or something like that. You know, doing that angle where they buy the belt. I think that works in any territory. I don't think, I don't think it's a just a WWF thing. I think that's something that you could worry and get a lot of heat if presented the right way, Mark. I mean, what what is your stance on that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's really just sort of the logical extension of the rich heel manager either buying people's contracts buying television time so they can have an interview segment or show video or something like that. So it's, I don't think, yeah, it's not really a stretch. You could certainly see 
you know, yeah, like you said, Akbar, he and himself, you know, is from Beverly Hills and presumably rich. You've got Cornette, you've got Dangerously, you have all these people who have gimmicks of being rich guys that, yeah, you know, buying somebody's contract and trying to, you can buy a title shot. So why couldn't you theoretically buy the title? Exactly. And the thing that makes this whole thing all work, of course, is DiBiase. I mean, DiBiase's portrayal of the Million Dollar Man is one of the great, greatest gimmicks of all time. And uh, I think, Fix, if you put somebody else in that position, it might not work as well. But the fact that Ted's in that spot and Ted being Ted, that gave it the extra, you know, oomph it needed. I mean, it seems like he's the only guy Vince thought could pull off that gimmick. And, I mean, as we've seen, he probably was. I don't think anybody else probably could have done it like Ted DiBiase. Who do you even try it with? The, the, Flair could do it if he wasn't already so entrenched as Nature Boy Ric Flair. If Ric Flair had just been, you know, like Ric Flair and was kind of doing the gimmick, but was new at the gimmick or whatever... He could transition from being Nature Boy to that character. But the fact that Ted DiBiase, who had been such a serious heel, you know, for all those years he was a heel, doing this type of cartoonish heel gimmick and the, you know, the big laugh and everything. I mean, it was such a departure from what he had been in his whole career. That that's what also really made it work because he was able to cut loose. You know, he's not being Black Love DiBiase. He's not being, you know, leader of the Rat Pack DiBiase. He's not, you know, Babyface DiBiase. You know, he's a totally different type of persona. Well, he's over the top because what made heel DiBiase work so well in Mid-South was that he came off as this particular kind of like semi-realistic kind of sinister in that other heels weren't necessarily. And this yeah, is not that. Yeah, exactly. You know, he was that Mid-South DiBiase was about the money, but it was di- a different type of thing. You know, he didn't have all the money, but he was looking for the money. You know, he was looking for the whole, the, the championships because that gave him leverage, you know, stuff like that. That's what he was about. Now here he's, he wants to be the, the champion and he's willing to buy the bell from me from anybody who, who would procure it for him and it's a good way for hogan to go in a different direction as a, a you know his gimmick because this is a, an actual Heel. real life <laughs> situation you know but also <laughs> after his last couple feuds he needs an explicit evil mustache twirling heel absolutely and he needs he needs that like touch of real life here this isn't a cartoony angle. It's a cartoony character involved, but it's not our cartoony angle. Because we have Hogan here talking about, yeah, I could use that money to help support my family. Which, you know, here we have Hogan actually talking about his family. You know? Yeah. So we're get, we don't have the whole cartoony Hulk Hogan at this point in time either. He's mentioning his family. And the so, fact that he even contemplates or says yeah. he at least thought about it shows a little 
extra added dimension to Hogan that he's not just like, oh, I would never, you know, disappoint my. I mean, he does say I'm not going to disappoint my Hulkamaniacs, blah blah blah, but he doesn't just immediately turn it down. And it's let's like, be on, yeah, and and real quick, let's be honest too. But Big brought up Hogan with feuds. Hogan had had a feud since WrestleMania because Andre, you know, is gone at the Mania. Doesn't come back to Survivor Series. So for all that time, Hogan's working with, you know, a potpourri of opponents. He doesn't have a a, da- a main dance partner from April to November. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like 1984 all over again. Yeah, and I mean, what? they're savage in some places. Well, Killer Khan. Killer Khan. I was about to say that to you, yeah. Who else? But he's working... He's working just different people. Butchery, um, one man gang. Yeah, one man gang. Yeah, quite a bit in the fall. Yeah, one him and gang are are tied up. Harley Race, Kamala, Kamala yeah. separate from their previous feud. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no angles, you know. So and this is and this is also setting Hogan up to arguably have matches with the best heel worker in the company. So. Presumably, it's going. I mean, whether or not you know it was good at the box office, you, you would think that you know by whatever standard you're measuring, that you're at least have more entertaining matches with DiBiase there as his opponent versus WWF Butchered and WWF One Man Gang and Killer Khan and the like. It's a different dynamic than what he had been. I mean, he had he had wrestled a guy like DiBiase on a you know a regular basis, other than Savage. I mean, Orndorff, you know, was that way, but I mean, he was, I mean, that's just basically what it is. He's basically working those type of power guys, and now he's working with more of the athletic guy here in DiBiase. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, it's getting kicking, and uh, it's, it's going to be some, some good shit. Absolutely. The Islanders are going to, in fact, already have kidnapped Matilda to start up a few with the British Bulldogs. And that becomes a big deal. That's a see the big angles in this era is is this and Savage and Honky Tonk Man. That's your big WF angles. Yes. Not Hogan. And this does not air until I think it's Christmas weekend, right? Yeah, this it's been taped. Yeah. yeah. So that's what Dave's talking about. It's been taped. At the Sundome. Yeah. So Which is the it, it's it's the earliest wrestling memory I have that I can definitively date, at least. And this was a big deal because so many they got so many letters for people that they were able to use their addresses to send them out the catalog. And shit. Well, they solicited all the letters. That's why. Yeah, well, Matilda, brother. Yeah. That's right. Apparently, a killer con quit without giving any notice, which is why Sika was brought back. So there's a yeah, killer con now gone. Ironically, today I was recommended Sika as a Facebook friend request. <laughs> Facebook offered me Sika and Austin Idol as people I should friend on Facebook. <laughs> how's that for a, how's that for a duo? Yeah, well, both live you know on the Gulf Coast, so there yeah. you go. Okay, also because of Dave's timeline, we're actually this is past our week. Actually, this angle. Yeah, but he's talking about. You know, going on. So yeah, it is what it is. 
It's a, it's a, it says are going to, in fact, already have in parentheses. So oh, so he it wrote there. it before the taping, and okay, yeah, yeah. Um, expect demolition at the tag belts for WrestleMania four. That's just a hunch of mine, not anything for sure. Well, they well, get them then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they get them then. But it was obvious to see that they were going to be the, the team to win the belts. Yes. Have they, they switched to Fuji yet at this point? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Titan has been canceling several shows due to poor advances, particularly in the Midwest. Hmm. Which is what we talk. You know, we're talking about the house shows being down here, business being down. All right. So a couple of shows in our week here. Pittsburgh. On December 4th, no attendance listed. So, Ultimate Warrior over Iron Mike Sharp, dud. Hercules Hernandez over Outhouse Jack, half a star. Dino Bravo over Hillbilly Jim, dud. Junk Food Dog over Bill Dixon, longtime Pittsburgh area job guy, dud. So, he's obviously subbing for somebody. Honky Tonk over Savage by Countout, star and a half. Bulldogs over Bolsheviks, no rating. Jake Snake over Sika, half a star. And I got Duggan over Harley Race by Countout, star and a half, and Strike Force over the Islanders, three stars. Then you follow up the next night with the Spectrum, filled up from a 10,105, $135,000 gate. Outhouse Jack over Barry Horowitz, terrible. Ultimate Warrior over Mike Sharp, no star rating. Bulldogs over Bolsheviks, again, no stars. Dino Bravo over Hillbilly Jim, terrible. Jake Roberts over Sika, terrible. Hulk over One Man Game, very good. Strike Force over the Islanders, good but slow paced. That's an interesting take on that. Hercules over JYD by Countout. Described as the worst match in the history of Philadelphia wrestling. And after seeing some of the stinkers tight in his book, that's saying a lot. And Bam Bam Bigelow over King Kong Bundy. I have watched this show in recent times. Um, that Hercules Junkyard Dog match was pretty fucking bad. <laughs> It was bad. And Hogan and Gang was a really good match. Strike Force Island was okay. But Hogan and Gang was actually the best match on the card. I've, so. definitely, seen, I've definitely seen some bad matches in Philadelphia. Oh. So uh, I, I can imagine. I'm trying to – well, you can start with the Bash 86. I don't know if anything would, uh, would, would rank that bad. But certainly the number of independent shows I've seen in Philadelphia, I'm sure I've seen things that were uh, not too high on the old star meter. Well, that's about old Spectrum shows. I mean, there's some there's some stuff in the old Spectrum shows. Ooh, rough. But, uh, yeah, that Hercules-JYD match was... Oh, oof. Oof, indeed. And then the Kyle Palace, where the other crew was that night in San Francisco, Drew 7500, as uh, S.D. Jones beat Steve Lombardi, dud. Greg the Hammer over Coco Beware with the figure four, two stars. Rock Don Morocco went to WQ with Butch Reed, star and a half. DBS over Steamboat, two and a half stars. Best match on the card, but very disappointing considering who was involved. Harp Foundation over Brutus Beefcake and Georgie Animal Steel when Anvil hit uh, Animal with a chair, one star. Demolition over Ken Patera and Billy Jack Haynes and Mr. Fuji Haynes with a cane, two stars. Decent word, absolutely no heat. Duggan over Race, two stars. And Savage over Honky by Countout. Dave was told this match was horrible. As Honky came out with Peggy Sue, Sherry Martell on the wig, Randy pulled the wig off and both left right away. Jimmy Hart was in a cage above the ring, and the funny part was they were lowering the cage before they went into the finish, letting everyone know the finish was just about to happen. Oh, that sounds lovely. 
So that's, uh, that's funny. Just yesterday, I watched a different angle where Randy Savage pulled a wig off someone, but that was Pistol Pez Watley, aka Miss Macho Madness, 1981. Yeah. Yeah, ICW. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we only have one clip for WF during our week. It's, it's a slow week this week. So we have an interesting confrontation between Dangerous Danny Davis and Sam Houston. Uh, on the stage with Craig George on the December 6th episode of WF Wrestling Challenge. So uh, let's watch this great feud get going here. Why? <laughs> I had to have a clip, Pix. <laughs> yes, it's time, first of all, the Colonel, the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, and a man with the distinction of being the only official ever be barred from refereeing in the World Wrestling Federation, now turned professional wrestler, Dangerous Danny Davis. And I'd also like to introduce to you a man from Waco, Texas. Please welcome young Sam Houston. Danny Davis and Jimmy Hart doing the cl- the clapping and stepping. It, it just pops me every time I see it. <laughs> so, it, okay, I don't remember this angle, and I'm just sitting here watching it. Like, wait, so the contrivance that they're gonna feud is just that this show is badly formatted. <laughs> Well, you see, you see what happens here, but they're, they're getting down with Sam. <laughs> Get down. Yeah. It's a very, very impressive hoedown. Even you, dangerous Danny Davis, have to be impressed with that. <laughs> impressed. Impressed with this? Stan Houston? Look at the way he's dressed. With a necktie and chat. No, I'm not impressed with Necktie? I wasn't impressed with you in the ring either. <laughs> Speaking of impressions... Sam Houston, your thoughts on the athletic ability of Danny Davis? Well, Mr. George, I was impressed with this man's athletic ability. As everybody knows, I wrestled him, and it was a touch-and-go situation. It was quite of a battle. Well, it was a good matchup. Thank you very much. Uh, What's the matter, boy? Cat got your tongue? No, sir. Cat ain't got my tongue. But when I get in front of thousands of people like this, I do happen to get a little bit of jittery inside. Let me tell you something, Mr. Hart. I have the distinct privilege and honor of being the only man on national television to whip your butt. Whip my butt? Whip my butt, Houston? Let me tell you something. You were lucky. You were damn lucky. Only because you had a stupid referee in there. And if I were you, Mr. Houston, I'd take your hat off to a man of my distinction right now. Let me tell you something, Danny Davis. I take my hat off for two reasons. One of them is when I enter my mama's house. And the other one is if I happen to be in the company of a very pretty lady. I don't take my hat off for you or no man like you. Oh, he knocked his hat off. Oh, the hat's gone down. And they're at each other's throats here. Sam Houston and dangerous Danny Davis slugging it out here on our interview platform. 
They've gone right down to the corners. And they're trying to figure out how to roll on the platform without killing each other, too. Down on the floor. Sam Houston started that one. He did not. He, did. he was pushing Danny Davis. Danny Davis knocked the hat. That's like putting a chip on your shoulder or block the wooden. Boy, look at Davis wants to get at him. Houston's trying to find the door. Whoa, they're really having a tough time keeping these two apart. They finally ushered Dangerous Danny out of there. Sam Houston got the hat back where it belongs. Big deal. Somebody knocked off his $2 cowboy hat. Well, you wouldn't like it if somebody grabbed you by your neck, would you? I'll tell you, Danny Davis eventually is going to take that $2 cowboy hat. Pulled out what over happened here. right here? Danny Davis started it all, Brandon. You saw it. No, he didn't That's start it. it. Look at him slug it out. We'll be back with more action right after this. It's not a pull-apart in this era without Jack Lanza refusing to get involved in the pull-apart and just standing nearby with his hands up acting horrified. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, wonder, it's wonderfully ironic for DeGorilla to say, you wouldn't want anybody to grab you by the neck, would you? <laughs> Considering what, what happened when that, hap- when that happened to Heenan on live television. Yeah. But, uh, I mean... That's an undercard angle that actually got a chance to do something, you know, and uh, and a credit George segment. So you gotta give him that. And I just, I just think it's, I thought, I always thought that was funny. Danny Davis and Jimmy Hart doing a little dancing and stuff, but in the contrast to Danny Davis's uh, thick accent compared to Sam Houston's uh, accent, <laughs> a natural uh, feud there. But uh, yeah, there you go, Sam Houston and Dan- dangerous Danny Davis. Well, also. Tell me you're running high school gym shows again without telling me you're running high school gym shows again. <laughs> yeah. Besides, doesn't doesn't Sam Houston know not to wear your hat indoors anyway? I mean, if if Bum well, Phillips wouldn't wear his hat inside, you know, then he should follow the great Bum Phillips. Well, you got a point there. <laughs> All right, uh, and the close. I told you a short section, though, yeah. Seems the toy markers drying up as the wrestling dolls are no longer selling. And in fact, the entire line may be discontinued by LJN and Titan is looking for a new company to handle the stuff. Well, I mean, it's 87, so we can, I think we can point to why they flooded the market with way too much product that year. Yes. And it was a more expensive toy. Than other action figures, yes. Yes. That was a problem. I think it's funny Dave's still calling them dolls. Everyone's well, calling them dolls. Yes. Um, okay, I'm curious what... Okay, where should I look to narrow this down and make this easier as far as seeing what pricing and stuff we've got at this Oh, point? I can handle that one real quick. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on just a second. I can do that real quick. All I right, mean, I so... want to limit it to the 87 Christmas season, though. All right, let's see here. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that you would, um, like if I wanted to buy, um, a, a, a LGN figure, then, I mean, I, yeah, I could buy two GI Joes for the price of one LJN, you know? Okay. So I, I just did a December 87 search for LJN WWF on newspapers.com. We go to the New York Daily News for December 3rd. Uh, 
we look at okay the soul marks i have no idea where this is i'm at toys r us hold on i'm at toys r us they're selling tag teams for 996 save 30 percent off okay i mean this place a, re- a, a re- regular regular retail 1497 there this, you go. This place is charging seven ninety nine each, saying regular ten ninety nine, but and charging fourteen ninety nine for the ring, saying saying regular twenty four ninety nine. Let's see what else do we have a Toys R Us ad here, or anything? Let's see, or let's see what's this one? Some other chain or whatever. Toys Plus in what the hell city is this? I mean, they're not being clo- um, they're not on closeout prices yet. Is the the stretch wrestlers were nine ninety nine. Thumbs were two ninety nine. God, looking at these ass makes me want to go back nineteen eighty seven. I know that God Almighty. <laughs> oh, this place charges six for Take the tag back. teams originally fourteen. Take me back. But uh, okay, I just want to make sure. So because. They release how many different figures in '87 after doing like one or two series a year for the first couple of years? Um, it's a '87 when they well, '87 is when they're releasing other other versions too, like Stretch. And yeah, thumbs are out there, so that's the thing. Okay, not well, just, you, you don't just have your regular line; you got these other lines with it. Well, they expand the individual series too, because okay, you've got series one. Or what? And you know these aren't as official as they are with like the Hasbro's later. But like series one is the ones we you know I'll remember, which is one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine over the course of the as they ship out. Uh, Series two is six figures, and then series three is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's well over a dozen figures. Yeah, and like I was saying, also you add everything else with it. And I think Series Four also comes out or starts to come out in '87 too, right? Yeah, yeah. Which also has a large number of figures. So they just put out way too much product, and like you said, they're more expensive. And also, they're doing the variants with Series Three and Four on some stuff too. It's just it's too much, and. Yeah, I mean, if you're a parent, you can get little Jimmy either two GI Joes or one wrestler. Mm-hmm. If he's interested in both, what are you going to get? Or any other, you know, action figure at a time. Whether it's uh, He Man, even He Man was cheaper. No, He Man, uh, even the other LJN you know, stuff like Thundercats. Thundercats was cheaper too. Absolutely, the real Ghostbusters and stuff like that. You know. Mm-hmm. Kenner stuff, so yeah, there's a lot of variables in it. Absolutely, it's funny that Thoraso saying it right now because you know we would have just entered Christmas buying season too. So like they've already made. So even if there would have been a turnaround for the holidays, it you know it sounds like they've already made up their mind. Well, I just read add that read that a while ago. They're already selling them at thirty percent off for the holiday season. <laughs> so we're having yeah. to reduce them. Oh boy! Uh, yeah. I found from December twentieth, May's Family Store in New York City with multiple locations. They already have the whatchamacallit, the stretch wrestlers down to five ninety nine. Yeah, it's time to clear out now. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
Yeah. Even though we all love the LJN figures, this is where the beginning of the end of that. Right here. That's for sure. All right. Well, let's go to Dave in Japan. Not made in Japan, but Dave in Japan. Japan's an amazing place. Where else can you go into a bar or a restaurant? Nobody in the place has ever heard of Joe Montana. If there isn't a person in the place who doesn't know who Abdul the Butcher is, as everyone knows, <clears throat> wrestling is big business in Japan. <clears throat> and most experts realize that what happens in the business in Japan precedes what happens in this country by several years. If we go back about seven years in Japan, the toys, dolls, record albums, even Hulkamania were a big deal for anyone in the U.S. could have envisioned them. While many give Vince McMahon credit for incredible genius in marketing pro wrestling, in reality, Vince has made several tours to Japan before 1984 and simply tried to recreate what had already been done, and did so successfully. Hulk Hogan is a national hero, is simply an American version of Antonio Inoki, with an ego every bit as large resulting. The wrestling albums, dolls, t-shirts, and rest were an outgrowth of the thing Japan has been doing since the early 1970s. Business big attempts to push women's wrestling, which ultimately failed every time, were a result of seeing what big business women's wrestling in Japan had become. Unfortunately, about the only thing Vince didn't import to his organization was the work ethic of the Japanese wrestlers. Wrestlers appearing on talk shows and TV commercials and being in the news is an everyday thing in Japan. But don't for a minute think the business in Japan is ultra-successful or ultra-stable right now. Since Dave's first trip to Japan in December 1984, a lot has changed. <clears throat> Giant Baba's promotion, Ultra Japan Pro Wrestling, was on top of the world. And so the most stable and best promotion in wrestling at the time. While New Japan was hurting because of its link up with Titan Sports. It still had a big TV audience. They could count on seven figures each year from the network to augment what were generally still good gates, even with a loss of popularity when Ricky Choshu and company joined Baba. The women, particularly the tag team called the Crush Gals, Chikusa Nagayo and Linus Asuka, were the teeny bopper rock and wrestling idols of Japan. There are posters hung in the record stores, and their merchandise is readily available and gobbled up by thousands of loyal fans. And they didn't attend any women's cars in 1984, something he sorely regretted now. But in any major record or bookstore, there was no escape in the popularity of the Crush Gals. After following the sad plot of UWF and Jim Crow promotion in 1987, it's hard to look at Japan and think in bad terms. But there was a difference in my second trip, Dave said. There were 10 wrestling stores in Tokyo alone in 1984. Now there are five. There were tons of weekly and monthly wrestling mag magazines. Now there are three weeklies, and they could only find one monthly, and it was devoted strictly to the women. While the Jakusa Nagayo calendar and Ricky Choshi calendar as well were apparently marketed well to the general public, we didn't see any Crush Girl or Stan Hansen or Tiger Mask Ricky Choshi records in the stores. Although one of the wrestling shops did have a new 45 by Yoshiaki Fujiwara <laughs> or posted the girl wrestlers in the same context as the rock stars. Japan is famous for taking teenage girls, turning them into rock idols, and within two years, discarding them. For example, virtually every big-name teen idol recording star Dave remembered from three years ago had completely disappeared from the record stores and were replaced by a new crew of 17-year-old Japanese girls. <clears throat> Dave gets the fact that Chigusa, now 23, has managed to maintain and actually increase in popularity over the past three years, with her loyal audience has to do with her improving her in-ring skills from being great to being the best in the business. But for wrestling fans, Japan is certainly still the ultimate. <clears throat> we arrived in Japan two days after Thanksgiving, and we met at the airport by reader Kosaku Akane. The daily newspaper had devoted a full page to the results, big photos of both Starcade and Survivor Series. We laughed because newspapers in our country had totally ignored both events. 
There's several daily newspapers, mostly Tokyo Sports and Nikon Sports, which each morning publish the results, news, and photos of all the matches held night four by all four wrestling promotions of Japan. We also arrived the day after the plane carrying Kazuharu Sonoda went down. It was at least on the front page for color photos of Sonoda and his wife at their wedding in several newspapers. You know, Sonoda was merely a middle-of-the-card guy. The news of his death got more publicity than if Hulk Hogan himself were to pass away in a plane crash in this country. And we talked about that on a previous episode between the Sheets and son, Magic Dragon, who passed away uh, in a plane crash, going on a uh, honeymoon, basically, that Giant Baba had set up. Uh, that was a major tragedy at that time, major tragedy. I, it was a wrestling tour, too. I think it was specifically he was booked in – where was it in Asia? I forget exactly, but – and I think also he was going to be working as Kabuki, too. And that Kabuki helped get him the booking as well. Yeah. I think it was either Malaysia or Indonesia, if I remember right. Something like around that general vicinity. Um, Macau? Oh, oh, oh. Isn't the island – the island like where it crashed or whatever was uh, Mauritius or whatever it's called, right? Yeah. Because they ended up naming the, the Sonoda Memorial Tournament after that. Yeah. Japan has three weekly magazines. They are published on Tuesdays with up-to-the-minute news, lots of color photos, news from the United States, Mexico, and even Europe. Actually, the magazine put together on Tuesday and reached newsstands generally on Thursday nights. Some of the wrestling shops get them as early as Wednesday. The mags sell quickly because by Sunday, it's almost impossible to find them on the newsstands. The mags are Weekly Gong, Weekly Pro Wrestling, and Weekly Fight. Gong is aimed more at the casual fan. Weekly Pro is Weekly Pro Wrestling is virtually like the Wrestling Observer, except except it stops at the line where anything would be revealed about the non-authenticity of the business. While Weekly Fight, Dave's told, is the one where the shooting maniacs like the best. Just before Dave went, several had asked him about getting these magazines, and Dave managed to work out a deal on them. Unfortunately, the postage and the rising yen, the deal's expensive. It says, if you're interested in getting the magazines, let Dave know the price will be five bucks an issue. You can also get Japanese souvenirs, but again, because of the high yen, the price for these goods, once you tack on postage, is pretty hefty. And that's 1987 yeah. postage. Yes, exactly. When mailing stuff was still fairly cheap. Yep. Wrestling Japan is a lot more sport than stateside. In Dave's mind, for the most part, that's positive. But being sport, it doesn't enable the groups to do wild skits, outrageous interviews, or develop surrealistic personalities, which is something many U.S. fans find attractive about pro wrestling as entertainment. And what, why is he writing this right after he just wrote at length about all Japan women? <laughs> He's talking about the U.S. fans. But don't, I get what you're saying. But it doesn't but, enable them to develop surrealistic personalities? Eh, not compared to what U.S. promotions would do. Dump Matsumoto's not in... Okay. I mean, well, it's it's different. It's it's different things. They're not doing like you know, like they said the skits and and promos and angles and stuff. The Matsumoto did an angle where she held up a raw chicken and gutted it to show what she was gonna do to Chikuz. <laughs> yeah, but again, again, it's it's a different situation. It's just different. You're not saying Dave has the double standard, are you? I'm just saying this day, well, he probably didn't even know mm. at this time what that was. You got you got to think about that too, Bex. 
You're right. You know that happened. Yeah. Oh wait. So by the way, well, no. I think he's been watching the tape, so I think he should know that happened. But uh, when he says war promotions, is he is he saying all Japan, New Japan, all Japan women, JWP? I think so. Yeah. Because JWP so has just a, launched, right? Yeah. And there's, there's no UWF. Yeah. There's no UWF yet. And because well, that happened, that happened right before our week. <laughs> and, so. and Pioneer and the like haven't opened it. So. Yeah. Well. Shit, that's way later. Um, Not that much later. Up, Pioneer opens in '88, I think. Later, way towards later the end of '88. Okay. Davis say all things considered, live shows with the guys are better in Japan than you would find in the United States. It does be qualified as well. But one thing, ticket prices are much more expensive there. An average car will sell cheap seats for sixteen dollars to twenty-three dollars, and ringside for fifty-five dollars. The big cards charge seventy-five dollars ringside. Because of that, the audience is by necessity a more affluent and white-collar audience than would be found in the United States. Well, some people in that ringside area aren't wearing collars. They're wearing sweaters. (laughs) And they're local businessmen. And their Um, pinky fingers are missing. And they always wear long sleeves in public for some reason. (laughs) Yeah. I presume – Ahead, I presume Mark. he's I presume he's only talking about Tokyo shows here. I mean, I would assume that spot shows around the country have lower prices. You would think, uh, yeah, probably, probably, yeah. I mean, Tokyo and major shows are different. Yes, yes, they are exceedingly well behaved, and virtually all of them are smart, at least to some degree, to the business. There's a thought among wrestling promoters that if fans become smart to the business, it'll be the end of the business. Power Titan Sports, which is openly flaunted in wrestling's non-authenticity, should have killed this thought, but of course it hasn't. Dan's own opinion of pro wrestling probably is summed up best by something written today by a reader, Harry White, that while pro wrestling isn't a sport, it's at its best when it appears like it's a sport. The scandals in the business are well known by most fans, even though the business isn't rolling in dough like it did in 1983 when it peaked. It is still much more stable than in business in the United States. Well, pro wrestling tickets are not as readily available because of ticket prices to the average person as they are in the United States. In major cities like Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya, the fans are almost entirely male between the ages of maybe 15 to 30. Wrestling doesn't draw the wide variety of fans it does here. Although, in truth, the audience makeup is similar, at least here in California, in JCP cars, although JCP draws a rougher and by necessity a lower economic audience but within the same age group and predominantly male. In the smaller towns, the audience gets older with older men throughout the stands, which by which accounts for why Giant Baba, now 49, and Antonio Noki, who turns 45 next month, remain with a great deal of popularity. And that's true. We talked about that before. Baba's the bigger star in the smaller towns because he only comes once a year. Well, and more so with Baba as far as specifically being a spot show draw than Anoki, because also Bob is always at the gimmick table at every All Japan show, so you can actually meet him. Yeah. Exactly. The two major men's promotions in Japan are All Japan Pro Wrestling, commonly referred to in this country as Baba's group, and New Japan Pro Wrestling, Anoki's group. Oh, you're not calling them PWF and IWGP anymore, do you? <laughs> that, that, well, that's long gone. I know. Uh, All Japan relies more on foreign wrestlers to draw its crowds, while New Japan is more heavily in the Japanese versus Japanese feuds. The Japanese wrestlers in general are better trained and schooled as athletes. So on Noki's side, you'll see good matches, often great matches, from the opener to the main event. 
Dave says, well, a question for the quality matches in Nookie's New Japan is the best wrestling promotion in the world. However, even though Tokyo and Osaka, New Japan has done phenomenal live business. The lack of Americans does hurt. TV ratings by New Japan is one of the biggest stories in wrestling this year. Today, the New Japan TV show is the best in the world. Mainly because the matches are so incredible for the most part. The reason Dave was given for the ratings being in the 6 to 9 category during primetime on Monday night, 8 to 9 p.m. on TVSI, when the three major TV networks in Japan, when they were doing consistent 20s, and were one of the leading shows of television in 1983, when the original Tiger Mask and Ishin Gun versus Seki Gun feud ruled the roost, includes one, Anoki is still undeniably the most popular wrestler in Japan among the general public. Among the folks who buy the magazines and buy ringside tickets, Choshi's popularity has surpassed Anoki, and Choshi was a household war in Japan, but Anoki is a legend in the country. However, Anoki has no stamina. You know, he keeps in great shape due to problems with blood sugar from diabetes and age. His matches are not good, especially compared to what the fans see. But the fans want them to be good. Unlike Hulk Hogan fans in the U.S., the fans realize Anoki's matches are short. In a tag match, he mainly stands outside the ring and has his partners do the work. However, make no mistake about it, Anoki is over big. Dave gets the best way to put Anoki in the perspective of the United States would be to compare him to what Dusty Rhodes wants to be. Anoki pushes himself like Dusty, and the hardcore fans don't like it. But unlike Dusty, Anoki's really a legend everyone in Japan has been the one since the mid-60s. If you look at the gate business, Anoki is, with the exception of Hogan, the number one draw card in this business. Number two, while the Japanese are great wrestlers with superior technical skills, the culture of Japan still likes seeing Japanese prevail over big Americans. The lack of big Americans and the color they provide hurt, as hurt. While Dr. Steve Williams, who's number one American star working for Anoki, is respected by everyone's a great athlete, and as tough as anyone alive, his luck of color hasn't made him a major drawer or a guy who can up the TV ratings. Number three, as mentioned here earlier, the style of wrestling is so hardcore that perhaps the casual fan can't get into it. Akira Maeda has tremendous popularity in Tokyo. A match with him and Anoki last year might have drawn a million-dollar gate. The casual fans don't understand Maeda's style and don't get in the submission holds. Number four, Japanese don't look favorably on Japanese changing jobs and jumping back and forth among other promotions. If you were to ask anyone associated with the business in Japan on naming what thing has hurt the business and caused it to go down, everyone will respond that when Ricky Choshu jumped back to Anoki, he nearly killed the business. Nobody minded him jumping to Bob in 1984 because he made remarks about Anoki that most took as true. Plus, fans are anxious to see him in any matches. While fans were anxious to see Choshu and Fujinami this year, the bottom line is fans didn't like him leaving Bob for what was obviously strictly monetary reasons. Breaching a signed contract and bringing the wrestling contracts into the courtroom, since Japan, unlike in the U.S., lawsuits are not a way of life. It's funny that even in Japan, it's well known about Choshu's popularity in the United States among the Observer readers and the folks who get Japanese videotapes, but it's nearly unanimous among those in the business over there that Choshu's probably the least liked person and personality in the wrestling business among those that know, even if it's popular with teenagers and young adults, is as much as anyone's. Okay. That is some interesting stuff there. Yes, and Dave doesn't say it outright here, but the implication is basically we understand as fans in this culture why someone would leave a company that has been fraught with scandal and embezzlement and all that, but you left the more respected company run by the more respected person, and the only reason to do that would be money, and that's frowned upon. Yeah, in Japan, that is a there is a it's that honor culture, you know, and 
lifetime it's jobs a, and all that. Yeah. It's it, yeah. I mean, it's one. It's one thing. It's one thing to leave New Japan like he did because of the drama there with Anoki and everything going on there. But now you are that you are leaving all Japan in, in a situation strictly for money or you're you're jealous over somebody else. That's a different story. You know, that means that basically, I mean, money's one reason, but he was jealous over Wajima. That's the whole thing. He felt like Wajima was overpushed, which he was right. And Wajima was getting way too much TV time, which he was right. But the problem was Wajima was a major fucking deal in Japan. He was a major celebrity, even bigger than Choshi was. And it killed Choshu. He was a Yokozuna? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's the main problem when push comes to shove. It, money's one thing, but it was Wajima. That's the problem. Yeah. It's funny that he also specifically says he doesn't like – Japanese don't like it when Japanese jump back and forth. Whereas they probably don't have a bigger problem with it with the gaijin that do it. Like uh... Brody – Brody and Hanson and the Funks, etc. I mean, I mean, how many times when you add it up did Brody probably jump back and forth? Twice. Brody went back to All Japan '87 right, right before this. I mean, this is Brody's first tour back. Is the tour that Dave is at, which interesting timing and all that. But uh, I mean, when he comes back to All Japan, watch that stuff and it. It, he's not automatic like he used to be as far as his overness. It took it, it took a minute to get him back over again to where he was. And then and then he becomes a big baby face in eighty-eight. And you know, when he beats Jumbo at Budokan, I mean the place is going nuts. Brody's crying in the ring. I mean, he he had become a totally different character pretty much by that point in time. But yeah, he had to he had to prove himself again. Um, and the thing is, there was no big jumping, though. Choshu's jumps was the the real jumps at the time. I mean, the UWF guys jumped back, but Maeda has just been suspended, and all the UWF guys are still in New Japan right now. So that's the real jumps. I mean, Grand Hamada had a you know had, had a, I mean, there was the jumps in '84, and Koshinaka jumped in '85. But that was like the last big jump was Koshinaka. Yeah, and then, you know, a few years later, there's a story in Dynamite Kid's book where he calls Tokyo Joe and he's like, hey, I want you to arrange it so that Johnny Smith can come to all Japan and leave New Japan. And Tokyo Joe's like, no, absolutely not. Bob and Inoki said no more jumping between promotions for now. Uh, the, the Japanese people don't like it. And yeah. eventually he gets him to facilitate it, but still like even with the foreigners it was an issue mm -hmm. you know and then yeah. you know with the whole culture too is why there was so much you know consternation over how noah collapsed <clears throat> because so many of the guys in that office especially the older all japan guys you know were looked at as the people who you're supposed to take care of for life with you know who you know were the elders in all japan but they end up not keeping those office jobs when Noah goes downhill financially after 
they get the TV canceled. The thing is, would imagine tell nineteen eighty seven day what's going to be coming up in just a few years? All the jumping that goes on. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in five years, there's going to be a, a amateur wrestling standout who debuts in All Japan, becomes one of the best wrestlers in the world. Then he leaves when there's an All Japan company that splits, and eh, about uh, 35 years from now, he'll be the top guy in a uh, WWF knockoff promotion. But I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about like the SWS. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I know. I'm just saying, like, if you have a really long S- tail, it's bizarre. I know, I know but I'm talking about SWS and shit like that, and, you know, uh, the U- the UWF spinoffs, and all this stuff that's going to happen in the early 90s in Japanese wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons SWS probably didn't draw in any real way beyond all the giveaways at the eyeglass places was that they looked at these people as people who just left for money. Pretty much. <laughs> That's one reason, yeah. All right, so back to 1987. Dave saw five New Japan shows while on vacation. In some ways, the live business was phenomenal, especially when considered that both Choshi and Maeda were out of action, and they are surely the second and third biggest draws in the promotion. Of course, Maeda suspended, and Choshi's out because Maeda, you know, <laughs> fractured, fractured his orbital bone. Yes, which... <sighs> I, um, on it, that certain website that uh, Chris and I keep pulling photos from to tweet, there are some really gnarly photos of the aftermath of the shoot kick. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and, I haven't put any of that stuff out yet, but and Choshi's eye, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was when was the shoot kick? Was that the sixteenth? Yeah, it's before all week. Yeah, it was. It was one of the first nights of the tag tournament tour, wasn't it? Uh, early in it, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, so while this didn't affect the gays, a lot of shows were also hurt with the junior heavyweight champion Kunio Kobayashi out of action with a bad back. An 18-year-old superstar, Masaharu Fanaki, who was over big with the fans, even though he has never appeared on, in a television match yet, suspended for punching a taxi driver. <laughs> Amazing. The December 3rd card in Nagoya, which is probably the best card we saw, drew 9,330 fans, which had been a gain of $350,000 range. It's close to a sellout, but not quite. Roughly 700 tickets shot capacity. Next night, Tokyo drew 9,400 fans. Although the house was papered and probably exaggerated as well, Dave would guess the low 8,000s would be an accurate pay figure, which still with ringside $75 a ticket, a house easily past $300,000. Because the man in Choshu were missing the crown was not, was successful since they were already hyping up December 27th show in the same building, which actually had a bigger advance sale than this card up to the day of the show. In fact, it was the smallest crowd each man ever draw, uh, drawn all year at Sumo Hall, which they had packed every other time this year. December 5th, we saw a spot showing a small town in Numazu, which drew a full house of 2260. Well, ne- next night in Yamato, was a full house of 1820 in a tiny gym with no heat in the building. And temperature at ringside must have been around 40 degrees, which made it really not too good of a show. The three previous shows were all really good, however. Tournament in Osaka for 6120, about 680 from a complete sellout. Given the ticket price was the fact this car was televised live in Osaka, and the absence of many stars wasn't too bad. Although in a sense, tournament finals should be a certain sub, but the gate was in excess of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. See, that's another thing too that we you know we don't we do not talk about. There's different TV situations going on here. That they're saying that we ne- we don't have none of this stuff. I mean, 
this that show was telecast live in Osaka. So the people in Osaka that had the Osaka New Japan affiliate was able to watch the show live. You know? There's no telling what aired in different places that we don't that we don't have of, you know? Right. The only stuff that we know is like out there with any like decent circulation and at least has had for a long time is the stuff from like 90 when it's only when all Japan or New Japan and New Japan are only airing on certain local affiliates because the Winter Olympics or whatever it was. Yes. The stuff that used to be on tape list is like New Japan local TV and all Japan local TV. Mm hmm. Yeah. However, the most important issue here is television. TVSI has lost interest in wrestling because of poor ratings. They turned down Jim Crockett's request to hold the Crockett Cup in Tokyo in April. Although New Japan Booker Sage Saguchi has met with Crockett this past week, and apparently talent exchanges will occur. In retaliation, it's that Bob will try and get Brody Hansen, Abdul with the funds, Mill Maskers, and Gordy, essentially be booked for small promotions in an attempt to combat Crockett. Although Dave doesn't see that happen either, it's just Dory Funk still works for Jim Crockett. And Brody Hansen, now that Brody has his Japan deal set, probably want to work as little in the U.S. as humanly possible. No, we do not get that New Japan Crockett promotions tie-in. Uh, but what wouldn't happen if they had the Crockett Cup in Tokyo in 88? That'd been wild. Which may explain why they have it or how they have it in 1988, too. <laughs> the Carolina Connection. Uh, whether or not New Japan can sell billions will be a moot point in April if the TV time is moved to Monday at midnight, as rumored, or taken off completely. They'll surely be moved from prime time, but if they can land a weekend afternoon slot, which still a possibility, then the promotion will at least be saved. Well, I've watched all this shit lately. The 1987 New Japan TV run, and uh, man, you want to talk about some different shit. <laughs> okay, so have you watched full episodes of everything? The Everybody. of I can't wait for the give up. I mean the uh, variety was, show era. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, which only only lasted in that form, like two episodes. Right, as a straight up variety show was only like two episodes. They still had like some of the studio elements for several that weeks lasted, after that. Yeah, yeah, that lasted a lot longer. But it was interesting watching that evolve to where they had the big variety show set up. And then they go, then they have it in the studio, which goes to the arena, and they still do stuff. Then they that starts getting less and less as it goes along. Then they start they integrate a couple of the personalities from the studio into the arenas for a few weeks. Then that changes. Then the, then they you know uh, Ichiro Furutachi leaves the commentary. The longtime New Japan play by play guy, one of the greatest announcers in the history of wrestling leaves and they replace him and with a guy who did, did okay before um Yoshinori Tsushi took over in 88 and he was the guy that's the famous New Japan announcer from the late 80s and 90s and uh yeah the New Japan TV was something else especially that variety show era oh my god <laughs> oh you talk about brutal and also Choshu couldn't can't wrestle on television so do you have the purposely avoid his matches until, you know, at the end of the year, they do a TV special of, of Choshi matches they weren't able to air to, during the year that they finally aired at the end of the year? I mean, it's something. It's something. But you can see why their ratings went down. You know? It was, uh, it was a marked difference. And they go back up in 88, 
But you can tell, you can see why they went down eighty-seven. Absolutely. Probably the most controversial angle ever tried in Japan is taking place because of Anoki's desperate need to get TV ratings points. A famous comedian in Japan who Dave only knows as Mr. Takeshi. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's Takeshi Katano, but go on. Dave's told he's the equivalent to a Johnny Carson or Don Rickles here. At one time a few years back, he was the most famous comedian in the country. Although right now he's just one of the, one of the most famous. He's working a Cindy Lauper, Andy Kaufman type angle with Anoki. Takashi's going to put together a stable of wrestlers who will beat Anoki and company and will probably wind up sometime next year, probably in April, to Tokyo Dome, a 65,000-seat dome baseball stadium with the Anoki-Takeshi uh, confrontation. Never heard of unless it. A, unless Anoki can sign a famous boss like Michael Spinks or Larry Holmes do a job for him. Since New Japan's mainly appeals to the hardcore fans, their fans hate this angle. When it was first announced in Tokyo on December 4th, the fans were yelling, to, telling Takeshi's guys to go home. And get out of wrestling. However, New Japan needs to gamble. They won't run their fans off and will be able to get non-fans interested in their product because of Takashi. It's the same gamble that Vince McMahon made in 1984 with City Law for Mr. T. And the gamble paid off for Vince and really made Hulk Hogan. So ironically, this is a case where Noki actually copies McMahon instead of the other way around. The story they're trying to give us is that Masaido would be Takeshi's booker. So the first involvement of Takeshi would be December 27th in Sumo Hall, when Tatsumi Fujinami and Kim Kimura, who won the tag tournament, face off against Saito and a giant European that Takeshi's bringing to Japan, which would be Leon White, the former University of Colorado football star. The December 27th show will be a certain sellout and will easily be one of the five or six largest games in the history of pro wrestling, with Anoki versus Choshu in the main event for Anoki's IWGP title. The tag match that we just talked about, IWGP tag title match with Fujiwara and Kazuo Yamazaki defending against Nobika Takano Samakito. Kido must likely be replaced by Mike or Maeda if Maeda agrees to term set for his return to wrestling. It wasn't. Plus, the IWGB Junior title with Kobayashi defending against Koshinaka. Plus, Japan debut of Hiroshi Hase against Keiichi Yamada. The car will be televised with a two-hour special on the 28th. So, Noki is hopeful his showdown with Choshu plus the involvement of Takeshi will be enough to boost TV ratings. Well, it was enough for a riot. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because Vader beats Anoki in a few minutes, and the fans throw pillows all over the place, which that was not shown on television. Well, no, and, I uh, mean, the pillows, it's less pillows. I mean, I think they do throw some pillows, but it's not like the triumphant pillow throwing. It's more they're throwing eggs and bottles. and. Yeah, there's not, you don't see that throwing, the stuff throwing on, t- on the TV version of that. Yeah, there are photos, though. Like, I, I know there, I saw some, I'm going to check on that certain image site now, but... Uh, I know I saw some, I think, in, a, in an article in Number about uh, about the whole Takeshi Pro Reskunden uh, thing. But the thing is, though, is he only makes that one appearance. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And, it, I mean, they play it up with uh, – it's Vader originally and then the gas bars, which, I mean, that deal runs throughout 1988. But, yeah, Takeshi being involved is just one, is a one-time appearance. So, it wasn't that big of a deal. But you get to you get to the Takeshi guys. I mean, Vader becomes a big deal all throughout '88. Gaspar, so on and so forth. Yeah. To to put this in context, um, Takeshi's Castle, which sort of became MXC over here, um, had debuted in '86. So, 
while Takeshi was already famous, that show had only been on the air for a year or so mm-hmm. when we get to this time. And I, it's funny, I was reading, I was trying to figure out where this actually fell in Takeshi's career. And there was one site where I read said he might be the most famous Japanese person in the world, which is kind of funny when you think about it. But when you think there's so many Takeshi's castle was shown in so many places around the world that I guess other than, you know, maybe certain sports stars, he maybe really is one of the most famous Japanese people. I mean, he's definitely up there on the list worldwide. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Although, it was just, in, I was just going to say, in the West, he's known more as, like, either you know him from Takeshi's Castle or you know his career as, like, auteur film director, Takeshi Kitano, from later on. Yeah, it, yeah it's funny how how many different things – when you actually, like, look at all of his credits, how really varied it all is – between yeah, between like all of the sort of the art house stuff in the last maybe decade or so, versus all the comedy stuff for the years before that. Yeah, <clears throat> but anyway, it didn't work. <laughs> and the gas bars were Bob Orton Jr. and Carl Moffat and no, just, no, it, it was uh, b- b- not Carl Moffat. It was a uh, uh, Tyler Mann, wasn't it? When I looked the other day, it said it was Carl Moffat and Bob Orton. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, wait. No, no. I'm confusing with um, the one-off Gaspar the Pirate was Tyler Mayne, right? In the 90s, wasn't he? Let me – I'm double-checking. But, yeah, the, the Gaspars in the 80s were Bob Orton. Oh, no. Uh, he was the third Gaspar. Gully. Well, really, it was Barry and Billy were the main two that was always around, so – Yes. Now, should I also briefly explain before we move on why uh, Takeshi Kitano was stooping to pro wrestling, so to speak? Go ahead. Uh, A gossip magazine had done a story about how – how old was he at this point? He was dating a college student, and there was a story that – oh, yeah, he's 39 at the time, at the beginning of the year when all this goes down. And – he and his gang, as the South China Morning Post put it, went to their offices and went wild. And he got suspended and all that. And this is kind of his return from that. There you go. Now, so also, to, uh, just to be clear, Takeshi Pro Rest Gunden is with the idea that Masa Saido is helping him form a new gang. Yeah, even though it's basically Saido, Vader, and the gas bars. And that, and then and that breaks up. And, and that breaks up as eighty eight goes along. No, Choshu was not. Choshu was not a part of that. The Japanese he, articles I, I was looking at said that Choshu was technically part of the group. I, I watched the t- I watched the TV. Hmm. That he was that there was like a a brief association, but that went away very quickly. Mm-hmm. Choshu and Saito did their thing, but that was it. You know, Saito was around, and then Choshu and Vader had a thing going on against each other. I didn't watch all that. So, Alright, now the All Japan. Things are sailing smoother with Baba's group. While they were certainly hurt, and in fact, at one point devastated by Choshu's leaving, they've recovered and are doing steady, if not spectacularly. The biggest factor in this is the emergence of Genta Nugurichiro, 
as a heel. And in Japan, Tenru was surely winning wrestle of the year because his term was so successful, it got the promotion interesting during a down period. This past tour, mainly because of the return of Bruiser Brody and Abdul the Butcher, you just can't believe how over Abby is in Japan, and it has, and it has a babyface, did very well. Although it wasn't like 1984 when the tag tournament was sun every night. T-Rings of Primetime was baseball season ended, which had Nippon TV moving wrestling to Saturday from 8 to 9. Aren't spectacular, but the 4 to 12 range each week makes them comfortable and safe at the present. Ratings had dipped to the danger zone a few months back, but not as far down as Anoki's had, which is why Baba re-signed Brody and Abby. Our first All-Japan card in Nikata on November 3rd, just sell 3130, mainly the tag match sending Brody and Jimmy Snuka against Abby and TNT. Which turned into a full-scale riot. December 12th in Osaka, Drew 5700 in a building with seats around 6800. Not a sellout, but not bad either. When you consider New Japan's running the championship match in the same building just five days later, with a double headliner being Tenru and Ashurahara against Abby and TNT, and Brody and Snuka against the Fox. All right, now Dave goes into the uh, deal here. November 30th in Nagata, Masafuchi of Yoshinara Gawa, 626 after a pile driver. They were, but a guy was too tentative in his moves. Real green, one star. My anyway of Haruka Egan with Sunset Flip. Fans were in Egan's comedy, star and a half. Footloose. Sam Suzuki and Toshiko Kawada went to a 25-minute draw with Osama Teranishi and Asao Takagi. First 20 minutes were hard work, but lots of missed moves. That's five minutes more, and those were four-star minutes. Absolutely super. Dave likes Fuyuki and Kawada as a team. Kawada has lots of ability, and Fuyuki has lots of spirit. Two and a half stars. That's one way to say it. Uh, Renegade Warriors, Youngbloods over Rush Kamur and Gersharumi by DQ in 905 when Goro hit Mark with a chain, star and a half. Tenru and Hara over Great Kabuki and John Tenta in 13 minutes when Hara cradled Tenta. Tenta tries to do a lot for a big guy and is getting better, two stars. Standing Hanson, Terry Gordy beat Tiger Mask Masawa and Shinichi Nakano in 808 when Hanson, Larry, and Nagano. Great heat and very good match, three and a half stars. Chaya Baba and Hiroshi Wajima over the Terminator, Mark Laurinaitis and Tom Zink in 824. When Wajima Larry did Dud, Termi. And the Funks went to double count out with Jumbo Shiro and Yoshiki Yatsu in 1733, star and a half. And Brody Snuka over Abby and TNT when Snuka superflied on TNT in 1143, three and three quarter stars. Now, a soccer professional Jim Dave doesn't give his rundown here, but we got the results. Uh, Muscarisi over Yoshinarikawa. Samateri Nishi over Mitsuomoto, Satakai over Matoshi Okuma, Masafuchi Mani Inoue going to a double count with Footloose, Nakano and Takamasu over Renegade Warriors, Tenta Kabuki over Goro and Rusher, Jumbo and Yatsu over Terminator and Tom Zink, and Baba, Waba, Baba and Wajima went to double count with Hanson and Gordy, Funks over Brody and Snuka, and Hara and Tenru over Abby and TNT, then December 4th at Fukuoka, the National Sports Center. We have Teranishi over Ogawa, Okuma over Agen, Fuchi and Takagi go to double count out with F- Footloose, Mighty Inoue over Masakurisu, Goro and Russia over the Renegade Warriors, Nakano and Takamasu over Terminator Tom Zink, Brody and Snook over Tent and Kabuki, Fonks double count out with Hansen and Gordy, Hara and Tenru, no contest with Jumbo and Yatsu, and Abby and TNT over Baba and Wajima. And then Nagasaki National Gym. All these are TV tapings, folks. On December the 5th, we have Kurisu over Gawa, Fuchi over Egan, Takagi and Okuma going to double count out with Footloose, Tenten Kabuki over Terminator and Tom Zink, 
The Funks over Nakano and Tiger Masasawa. Jumbo and Yatsu over Goro and Rusher. Horror and Tenru over the Renegade Warriors. Hanson and Gordy over Abby and TNT. And Brody and Snuka over Baba and Wajima. So, real world tag league. Hot and heavy here in 1987. Bix, what are your thoughts? I'm trying to remember how much of this tournament I've actually seen. Oh, I've watched a lot of this lately, so... <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that much of this one. Um, interesting field in some ways. Um, I forgot Renegade Warriors were there that early. It feels like the old All Japan. You know, the pre-Choshi yeah. All Japan. That's what it feels like now. Yeah. You know, it feels yeah. like that early 80s All Japan. And this is pretty much the last stand in a big way of the Hara Tenru team in All Japan, right? Oh, no. No, 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 Wait, no, when no, does Hara no. get uh, unpersoned, excommunicated? A whole year later. Why did I think it was earlier than that? No, I just watched him today on uh, TV from October 88, him and Tenru, against Jumbo and Yasu at Corken Hall. Okay, I thought it was from earlier October, for some reason. From October 88. Oh, no. No, no, no. But, uh... Yeah, and like I said, it feels like the old All Japan all over again here in ways. And uh, Brody and Snuka back together again because uh, Hanson's with Gordy. And that's a hell of a match, too, when those teams face off each other at Cork. And you get Brody and Hanson for the first time against each other like that. So uh, fun shit. Definitely go back and watch this stuff, folks. Good stuff. New Japan Pro Wrestling. They taped TV at, at the Niage Town Gym on November 30th. Kensuke Saki over Kenichi Oya. It's Katsu Oya. Testo Shigoto over Black Cat. Keiichi Yamamoto over Chris Benoit. Well, isn't he Dynamite Chris here? This is just in results as Chris Benoit, so probably, yes, but still, it's listed as Chris, Chris Benoit. Uh, Shiroko Shinako over Norihonaga. Kazuo Yamazaki and Asamakita over Kendo Nagasaki and Mr. Pogo by disqualification. Karen Kevin Von Erich over Hiro Saito Super Strong Machine. Keiichi Muto and Nobuhika Takata over Ken Kamura and Tessumi Fujinami. Masaino and Yoshiki Fujiwara over Ron Ritchie and Ron Starr. And Antonio Dick Murdoch over Scott Hall and Seiji Sakaguchi in your main event. And then we go to Nagoya, where Dave's at on December 3rd. Akira Nagami over Tiger Katayama at a flying by the press 1017. Pretty brutal match with both guys looking good and fighting hard. Three and a quarter stars. Tasso Shigoto over Yoji Anjo to win the scariest back suplex you would ever see. Anjo was dropped on his head and probably still having headaches from the move. Match went 808, three stars. Black Cat over at Dynamite Chris picks. With standing Scorpion holding to a pin after Chris missed the headbutt off the top ropes in 835, two and three quarter stars. Shiroko Shinaka and Kazuya Mizaki and Keiichi Yamada beat Hiro Saito, Norianaga, and Kensuke Saki in 1026. Makoto Shinaka pinned Kensuke with a butt bump and a German suplex. Yamazaki kicks very hard to the chest, but you can see he pulls the kicks to the head a lot, which obviously you have to do. Super match with lots of near falls. Yamada did his shooting star press move, which is the best move in today's pro wrestling. Although apparently Mexican wrestler Dr. Wagner Jr. can even top Yamada's move at one point. Four and a half stars. Okay, what the hell Dr. Wagner Jr. move is he talking about? I, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I mean, he was never a flying guy, even when he was younger. Well, we did. We don't have that much of him at that young age, though. That's the thing. But is that even his reputation? What well, they said, apparently, Bex. So I don't know. 
the idea of Dr. Wagner doing a shooting star press is not something I think I can, I can uh, picture at the moment. Well, we all, we've all seen him as a bigger guy. Oh, he I just realized. lighter when you started. I just realized what it is. Um, hadn't Silver King already worked Japan as Dr. Wagner Jr. at this point? Yes. So it's probably the Silver King dive or one of the other big Silver King high spots. Okay, there you go. That that makes sense. Osama Kido over Ron Ritchie with a netbreaker 708. <laughs> Ritchie tries to work a crowd like Steve Lombardi does. Decent finish by an eventful two stars. What does that mean? <laughs> I want to know Steve more Lomb- about Dave Melter's thoughts on Steve Lombardi's crowd psychology. <laughs> yeah, Steve Lombardi had this deal where he would like mug to the fans and stuff like that. You know, I I know what Dave's talking about. You know. You mean that, oh that, okay, I get what you're saying. The way that basically Steve Lombardi working heel look is indistinguishable from Colt Cabana overacting portraying Steve Lombardi working heel. Kind of like a lesser version of Duke of Dorchester Pete Doherty. That type of work heel work. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Scott Hall over George Takano at a power seven five sixteen. Hall says a lot for a big guy, and there are lots of near falls. Hall still misses some moves, was approved greatly, and has good work ethic. Takano and Hall do work well together. Want two stars. Two and a quarter stars, excuse me. Super Strong Machine Pin Ron Star with Machine Suplex 903. The move is grabbing an inside arm lot. They're taking a guy in the vertical suplex fashion and bridging while pinning the guy. Very nice move. That's a double windmill suplex. Sort of slow pace, but all the moves are solid. Lots of moves were very good. Two and a half stars. Masaido, Yoshiki Fujiwara, they down Kijimuno Mudo Nobika Takata in 1317. Masaito pinned Takata with a Saito suplex. Mudo got beat up a lot here. Basically a damn good master and has stars. Tetsumi Fujinami and Kengo Kamura went to double count out against Kerry and Kevin Von Erich in 912. They mainly clawed each other with Fujinami as well as the Von Erich using the move. Kerry moves around fine. It's really a miracle how well he can move around the ring. However, he can't do any wrestling moves at all. Just can punch, use the claw, which would be fine for Texas, but can't help him here. All four outside the ring have finished brawling. Match wasn't bad, only because Fujinami was so good, but certainly the worst match on the car. Even though Kerry can't do any moves, he's still better than Kevin. In fact, Kerry does the majority of the work. Kevin's just awful. Start three quarter. And the thing is, this is Kerry's first match is really back. It's on this tour. Since losing his foot. Yes, because he does Thanksgiving at Reunion, but that's like a, a small deal. And, not, and then he goes on tour for New Japan and works a tour. <laughs> and, and then Antonio, you go ahead. I was just going to say, and Kevin is arguably at the worst of his issues yes. in this era. Yes, yes. Antonio can get Murdoch down, Mr. Pogo and Ken Nagasaki in the main event. Their heels manager, Ichimasa Wakamatsu, gets great heat when he prays for his team to win over the house might before the match. Murdoch totally carried a match for all four and looked great doing it. Finally pinned Pogo in 14.58 with the brain buster. The Dent Murdoch could wrestle in Japan is a top 10 wrestler in the world. Anoki couldn't have been in two minutes total, three stars. I don't know if it's this show or one of the other ones we're going to talk about. Meltzer has talked about on audio. I don't remember when exactly or what context he brought it up in was one of these shows he's like either waiting in line or something and Murdoch comes out to talk to him and Murdoch goes to Dave and says 
those Von Erich boys ain't right. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I was in Dallas. Remember, I lived in Dallas for a little while. I've heard the stories. They've got problems, blah, blah, blah. And then Murdoch's like, no, you don't understand. Those boys ain't right. With the <laughs> claim being that this is when the Sawblade incident happened. Yes. Which, uh, let's just say, Google that if you want to learn more, except if you own a cat. Yeah. Which, I don't know if I believe it. I believed it more once I heard that than I used to. But I don't know yeah. if I actually believe that it's a true story. I mean, it's Dick Murdoch. He could just be fucking with Dave, but... I mean, the, fa the fact that multiple wrestlers have have said they witnessed Von Erichs murdering kittens in locker rooms in different countries, I'm sure there's an urban legend aspect to it. I just The question is if it's just that. Yeah, there's a rep. <laughs> well, it's a good thing they didn't talk about that on Tales from the Territory. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wouldn't do that. <laughs> no. All right, uh, December 4th of Samoa Hall. Kensuke Saki made no Matsuda submitted to Boston Crab. They mainly worked on the map most of the way, but did some submissions. Sasaki does an amazing power slam, almost as good as Buzz Sawyer in his prime. Actually, the first 11 minutes were a dub, but the last two minutes were great. Starting a half. Don Arakawa made a Kirinagami submit to the Wakigatami, a Juno Armorbar submission in 1058. Arakawa mainly does comedy and can be really funny. His style hurt Nogami, who tries to be a serious wrestler at one star. He put Wakigatami in quotes for some reason. <laughs> Tash touched good up in Black Cat in 1249 by reversing Sunset Flip into a cradle. One star. Yamazaki and Takata and Yamada as a team over Hiroshito, Norionaga, and Dynamite Chris in a super match. It was 11-28 of one great move after another. Takata missed Chris with a spinning link layered off the ropes. After Chris, they missed the headbutt off the top rope. Best match on the card. Four and a quarter stars. Is that the only way Benoit loses as a young lion? He misses the top rope headbutt? <laughs> uh, probably. Probably. Probably not. I don't know. Super Strong Machine Pen Scott Hall in 634 to Sunset Flip. The match is average. Two stars. Sakaguchi Takano defeated Ron Starr and Ron Ritchie in 857. Foreigners worked over Takano most of the match. Takano made his comeback and won with a great series of moves. Starting with a truck off top rope. Vertical suplex. Spinning leg there. And finally getting a submission on Ritchie to Boston Crab. Two and a half stars. Kevin and Kerry down Shiro Koshinaka Kijimuto in 857 with Kevin pin Koshinaka with a claw. What a miscarriage of justice. <laughs> Actually, this match wasn't that bad except for the final minute was a disaster. Kevin forgot the finish and just got everyone completely screwed up. Kevin Kerry was in almost the entire match, looked adequate, while the Japanese still managed to look good. Two stars. Why are you putting these guys in the condition they're in over the team who just had the tag belts? <laughs> Yeah, and uh, let's try to see if this is on. I Okay, the match that I just watched recently was um, Kevin and Kerry against Muda and Takata. Oh, boy. Uh, on the 7th. Uh, but I think I watched this one, too. As I'm scrolling here, I'm trying to look at my New Japan TV results. But uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was interesting watching Kieran Kevin with work with these guys. Um, Fujinami Kimura down Mr. Pogo and Kendo Nagasaki at seven twelve when Fujinami pinned Nagasaki after a lariat. 
finish was excellent. Kamura gave uh, Wakamatsu the leg layer after the match. Good answer throughout the match with a ton of action to finish. I surprised a good match. Three stars. And then Anokia Murdoch went to a 30-minute draw with Masahiro Yoshiki Fujiwara. Excellent match. The beginning, they mainly exchanged holds for 10 minutes, but they're working them good and building up the heat. All four sold everything well and worked their butts off, even Anoki. Murdoch was still 70% of the time, but Anoki did fine he was in. Saito was particularly awesome in this one. Really, considering they were going 30 minutes, this is about the perfect match you could see. It built it up so each minute the heat got better until the place was going crazy at the end. Anoki and Murdoch are over huge baby faces, four stars. Yeah, it was a hell of a fucking match. Numazu on the fifth. Andrew with Nagami at a chicken wing, 1355, two and three quarter stars. Kensuke over Oya with power slam, 1341, two and a half stars. Keiji Yamato over Shinji Kasugu to Japanese leg crot, crotch hole. <laughs> this match was more brutal than a Ric Flair, than a good Ric Flair Ronnie Garvin match with tons more moves, three and a half stars. And I love he mentions the Japanese rolling crotch hold. This has this yeah. has to be one of the first times he called it something like that, right? I think so. So, who, uh, who, who do we think is the unfortunate Japanese friend of Dave's who explained to <laughs> the him? The guy I mentioned earlier, Kos- Kosaku Akune, I guess. <laughs> so he's the one who had a heavy enough accent that Dave could not distinguish clutch from crotch. I guess. Oh, great. And to dispel your theory. Norio Inago over Dynamite Chris with a backslide. Lots of nice moves here. Two and a half stars. Well, that's nice. Hero Slate over Black Cat with a small package. Cat kicked Saida in the face hard and gave him a bloody cheek and a black eye. Lots of near falls with a finish that messed up everyone knew at three stars. I'm assuming that's Hero. Yes, Hero. Since just says Scott. Yeah, Scott Hall, Pentester, Shigoto with Power Slam at 328, star and a half. Shiro Koshinaka and George Kano of Ron Richie and Ron Star when Shiro pinned Richard at back suplex 904. Excellent action from Bell to Bell. Star was the best of the four, but all were great. Three and a half stars. Von Erich of Akito and Takata. And if it's seven with Kevin Pinkita with a small package. Good match thanks to Takata. Von Erich were daring him to start shooting. He threw one combination on Kerry and they stopped daring. <laughs> Two and a half stars. <laughs> Fujiwara say to be Pogo Nagasaki with Fujiwara made Pogo submit to the arm bar. Lots of comedy about Fujiwara Wakamatsu. It was necessary because in a serious match, it would be a no contest between the squads. Two and a half stars. And then Anoki, Mudo, and Murdoch beat Machine, Fujinami, and Kimura when Anoki made Machine submit to the Domino Stretch in 11-27. Just at about finish, Fujiwara did a run-in attack Fujinami, Kimura, three stars. So there's Dave's New Japan tour. Yeah. I mean, one thing I found interesting, which it's not a huge surprise because Ron Starr is an incredibly underrated worker. It shows how highly Dave thought of Ron Starr here that he said he was even better than Koshinaka in that match. Well, Ron Starr, in my opinion, is one of the most underrated wrestlers of his era. Um, just a really great talent. Uh, Mark, I'm sure you've seen Ron Starr a good bit. So what are your, what are your thoughts on Ron? No, I agree. He's... One of those, uh, you know, people you probably maybe put in the same category as uh, as maybe like Jerry Stubbs, just a really, really solid Southern style worker. Like all the places that he went, whether it was in, you know, Japan or Puerto Rico or the States or Canada, just, you know, just a good hand to have on the card. Yeah, he worked everywhere. You know, I mean, 
he was, uh, you know, in Puerto Rico and Canada and all parts of Canada, for God's sakes. And you come in Japan, you know, he was, he was a definite world traveler. That's for sure. Great, a great talent. Love Ron Starr. All right, well, Dave's not done. Finally, Dave gets to see all Japan women. I've been following this business for more than 17 years now, Dave said. And there are times that I think I've seen everything. Well, I woke up last Sunday morning, and before the afternoon was over with, found out I'd seen nothing. Simply put, the All Japan Women's Wrestling Association puts on the most entertaining show and the best wrestling that I've ever seen. In fact, nothing even comes close. There are no words I can use to convey the atmosphere and action that the promotion delivers or just how effective Chigusa Nagayo and Dump Masamoto are. While admittedly the live crowd which attends their events is hardly a demographic cross-section, in fact, 9% of the crowd is teenage girls. But to their audience, these girls are over. To the point that a U.S. fan would have to see it live to even have a concept of what I'm trying to say. Dump is the best heel in wrestling, and whoever's in second place isn't even close. As for Chigusa, the reaction she gets not only can't be duplicated by any wrestler in this country, Hulk Hogan certainly comes to closes, and the best isn't half as good, but you probably have to use Madonna or Bruce Springsteen at their peak for comparison. The crowd literally lives and dies with every move she makes. We saw the crowd literally crying at one point in the show, and in the main event, we saw a 50-minute match of nothing but high spots and a crowd which never let up for a three-hour show. I'm bringing all this up because I'm voting for Chagusa for the rest of the year. Although I vote for Hogan's best baby face, which Chagusa's second because I respect that Hogan's appeals more broad-based and he has better drawn power, even if Chagusa's reaction live blows the Hulkster away. From a strictly business point of view, Hogan should be wrestler of the year, but then again, if you're talking strictly business, he should have been a clear-cut winner in 85 and 86 as well when Ric Flair was a landslide winner. Personally, I consider ring work to be more than 50% of the category with impact, maybe 40%. Thus, even picking Hogan for third, which I will, is a great concession to his enormous impact. I won't pick Flair for the top three despite his great ring work and interviews. Anyone that would allow his drawn power and his perception by the Mars to get destroyed will have enough leverage to dictate shots does not deserve consideration. Besides, the exception of Hogan, there's nobody more important than a promotion in Chigusa. Probably nobody besides Hogan more responsible as an in-ring personality for marketing income than her, and there's none, bar none, better worker, male or female, in this business. Enough on that. <laughs> I mean, we're, about, we're going to get more into it, but... Uh, but, <laughs> I mean, Dave was converted really quick there, Bix, by going live. You've been watching the tapes by this point. Yeah, but there's a big difference. Uh, in that or especially, yes. <laughs> a uh, big difference. Uh, yeah. Um, and at this point, I mean, you can even argue they're past the peak. Yes, at this point, yes. The peak was probably... In 86. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, if you have never watched Crush Gals era All Japan Women, change that. People are listening. I mean, there there is so much All Japan Women on YouTube mm-hmm. that is ridiculous, especially for the 80s stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's unlike anything else. I mean, you know what? Let me pull up. That thing I tweeted uh, earlier this year, the NBC Nightly News thing from a year before this. It's not long. Let me play this real quick. 
as I make sure I'm doing the right thing here. Uh, that's the wrong screen share. Hold on. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that's something to keep in mind, though, that, like, there was the Wall Street Journal story that got syndicated about Chikuza, you know, and then there was this. So, here we go. This aired on November 7th, 86, with the... Bonnie Anderson is the anchor on NBC. Oh, real real quick on this, uh, just a little inside thing for me and you, Bix. You know that that site don't work no more. You got this from? Uh, yes, I'm aware. <laughs> okay, I'm aware that the the uh, backdoor to get the, all that news footage is gone. Yes. Yes. So. Every day, somewhere in Japan, thousands of teenage girls scramble to plunk down as much as thirty five dollars to see their idols. Chigusa Nagayo can really belt out a song. And Chigusa is half of a professional wrestling team called The Crush Gals. Her partner is in bed with a slipped disc. Little wonder. The Crush Gals and the other forces of good are often pitted against members of the Super Bads. The wrestlers Japan loves to hate. Girls like 220-pound Dump Matsumoto, that's short for Dump Chuck, and Bulldozer Nakano. For the fans, traditionally quiet, shy girls, the bouts are a chance to let go, all in the name of good, clean fun. The wrestlers do what we can't do in our own life. They do it for us. Anything goes. No holes barred as the wrestlers fight to make a name for themselves and win more money. But outside of the ring, it's all discipline. Constant training, uncomfortable living conditions, hard work. But old pros like Devil Masami, who's been wrestling nine years, say the hardest parts are the three no's. No drinking, no smoking, no men. Chigusa says it's worth it. She earns as much as $200,000 a year from bouts, public appearances, endorsements, and record sales. When wrestling becomes too much, Chigusa says she'll teach karate. She's already a black belt. As for Gut Matsumoto, well, she's put all the other wrestlers on notice. Dumps not quitting until she crushes the crush gals, stomps the rest of her opponents, and becomes number one. Bonnie Anderson, NBC News, Tokyo. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. Yeah, there has been nothing before or since in the wrestling business like the coordinated fan pom-pom routines during the crush gal songs and entrances. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely a, a phenomenon, that's for sure. I tried to describe all chain women promotion won't be easy. We saw a Sunday matinee show in the Somerset Cork and Hall in Tokyo by 2,400 teenage girls lodged in an 1,800-seat building, breaking every fire law known to mankind. It was the best live card Dave's seen in at least three years, and the main event was by far the greatest match he's ever seen live. In fact, he said without question it was better than any match he'd ever held in the United States in the history of the business. <laughs> it was a 12-girl tag match with the most falls for a curfew. 
deciding the winner. The match went 50 minutes of nothing but high spots, and the crowd was screaming about double the level of Hulk Hogan posing routine for the entire time. When Shigusa Nagaya was squaring off against Linus Asuka, the roar was louder than you hear in the seventh game of the NBA Championship Series with 18 seconds left and the home team down by one. David never experienced anything like the energy that comes out of the crowd, and the girls in the ring worked every bit as hard as the crowd. The girls are on TV on Fuji Network, and while they consistently draw sevens plus on Saturday afternoons, the week we were there, they drew an 11.3 rating. To give you an example of the popularity of this group in Japan, that rating for one show is higher than the rating of all McMahon syndicated shows in the United States put together. In fact, it's roughly the same rating as McMahon's best tournament event, NBC Special Drew. So when Dave compares the importance to Goose with Hulk Hogan, it's not an outlandish statement at all. You know, the girls put on the most entertaining car you'll ever see. And add to the fact that wrestling is the best in the world. As mentioned before, the audience is almost exclusively teenage schoolgirls who live and die every move made by Chagusa. The place is packed with members of many different Chagusa fan clubs, all wearing their fan club jackets, and also some members of Linus Oscar fan clubs. Dave's not sure of the customs, but the girls wear the jackets to the building and take them off when the matches start. Then whenever Chagusa is about to come out, she came out three times during the show we saw, twice to wrestle, and once to do a one-song concert, and the musical was damn good as well. The girls all rushed and put on their jackets. It's an amazing sight, although most of this amazing sight is the heat when Chagusa either sings or wrestles. The people who attend the men's matches do not attend the women's matches in Japan. It is a completely different audience. In fact, the Japanese fans and reporters that we met couldn't even understand why we were so interested in the girls' cards. There's definite negative stigma about the girls, at least among the wrestling fans, probably because the show was so obviously designed at mainly reaching teenage girls. Still, Dave wouldn't be surprised at all if this is a pro- as profitable financially as any promotion in the world. First off, all the promotions in Japan are paid by the TV networks to air their shows. Unlike in the U.S., where the promotions pay to TV stations. Although Titan has turned around where it earns far more from TV advertising than the Japanese promotions earn from direct payments from the networks. But the marketing of this group would make you man green with envy. About 15 minutes before the card started, there were maybe 150 fans in the building, and since we knew the show would sell out, we were literally shocked. One of the guys I was traveling with, who surely doesn't want his name mentioned in this publication, told me to look in the lobby. The lobby was jammed with about 1,500 girls, buying more souvenirs than you can imagine. From videotapes of matches, videotapes of Jaguza and concert, audio tapes, posters, keychains, purses, and wallets, Dump Matsumoto gym shorts, Jaguza shopping bags, books, programs, streamers. With tickets from 23 from $55, Dave gets the line gate even in the small building had to be about $75,000. And they could easily double that with concessions. Even in the building, the black market concessions selling photos of the girls were doing big business around the arena and a large percentage of the crowd were members of a fan club for other Chagusa or Lioness. Okay, who do we think the person he was traveling with? That it's got to be a wrestler. So, Terry Funk? Because Terry Funk, we know, is the one that told him to pay attention to all Japan women. That's why I say Terry I, Funk, maybe. But I don't think Terry Funk would be would go and be seen. Well, the, oh, yeah, yeah, but that pissed off that he wanted his name mentioned in the mat in the newsletter. So it's, it's it, it might not be a wrestler. It might be somebody in the business, but I don't know who. So I don't know. Are there any American women on the tour? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. There were several American fans at the girls' show, which is something you don't see at the men's cards. While the U.S. fans seem to enjoy the entire package, there's no doubt that to Americans, the show would revolve around Dump Matsumoto. If Dump were to tour the U.S. and be let loose and have quality opponents to work with, like Jump Bomb Angels, who have no push at all are getting over phenomenally well in the United States, 
Shield meant women's wrestling in this country. Magistrate Dump and Chagusa have in the past drawn Cates and Willis as a $200,000. For comparison, in all of 1987, Crockett Promotions Day believes only drew two gates of more than $200,000, both for the big war games matches in Atlanta and at the Orange Bowl in Miami. Hogan may have drawn a dozen. Dave would go so far as to say within three months, Dump would be in Newsweek magazine, and in six months, a familiar figure on television commercials. Let's not go crazy, Dave. Dump wrestled Yukari Amori on the car we saw, and it was 17 minutes of nonstop brawling over the building with juice on Amori's part. Tons of outside interference and heat like you will never see in this country. Even though in reality, Dump is 27 years old, and nine, actually nice and mild mannered from all accounts, her TV and ring persona are so strong that when she walks down the street away from the ring, fans all get scared and run away screaming. Man, attraction on the car was the retirement of Tenjin Devil Masami, who will turn 26 on January 7th. She's basically forced out by the mandatory retirement rule this promotion has. It's something that culturally can't be understood by U.S. fans. Although Dump was made an exception to this rule because Dump can't be replaced. However, Jaguar Yokota, who's acknowledged by virtually every authority as the greatest women wrestler of all time, was not made an exception and retired in late 90, 1985. Dave's not really sure of the reasons. Some will say they want girls young and cute. But since the promotion doesn't even try to appeal to a male audience, he doesn't see that as a reason. As mentioned earlier, the Japanese culture is known for pushing teenage girl superstars in movies and music and discarding them when they hit the 20s. And they suppose this is thought that schoolgirls can more easily relate to wrestling idols who are just a few years older than they are. Congratulations. You created a rival promotion. <laughs> Masami's final match was a five-minute exhibition against Chigusa, who's the world champion of the group. Like any other matches, you can have heard a pin drop at certain points in the match. Yeah, some old-time wrestlers remember the old days, will tell you. The best heat's often silent heat. Because the show's fans are so into the match that they don't cheer or boo. They aren't making noise because it was boring. Although in reality, Dave was kind of disappointed with the match. The only highlight was Masami doing a superplex with Chigusa with both girls standing on the top rope. Man, Chigusa just took bumps from Masami to make her look good in the finale. He was basically defeated, and when the exhibition ended. Another problem was the match was in the last 30, 45 seconds. When they should have turned it on, they instead both broke down and started crying. And would you believe by the time the bell rang... Dave bets half the audience is crying as well. There's no side he won't soon forget. Masami wants to continue wrestling. He'll probably work some in Calgary next year and possibly WWF. While Masami's a good worker, she doesn't have the potential to get over in the U.S. like the Jump Bomb Angels have because she's basically unspectacular in the ring. In a day's mind, the only way for a girl wrestler to get over is for her to be able to do things in the ring that men can't. Which is why the Angels are doing so well and why Dup would be such an attraction. In fact, even though the show in Japanese... Dave's expression, this promotion is such a novelty that with the correct, correct promoting, it could deliver a sizable cult audience. With the right publicity people behind it and a good announcer, something it didn't have last year on a short run on the Tempo Network, and, gets a lot of, and could get a lot of neat publicity in the United States like Vince has attempted to do and failed to do with Wendy Richter. As bad as Wendy's work was in the U.S. as WF champ, she would have gotten over pretty well if she had dumped and not mooled a few with. From, from a marketing standpoint, the age rule has its advantage as well. Probably the biggest failure of pro wrestling in general, particularly in this country, is they don't understand pop culture that they are part of. While some musical groups have long runs with the Rolling Stones, the hot groups usually skyrocket to the top, melt the fizzle down to nothing just as fast. The average run for pop stardom, teenage heartthrobs like a David Cassie or Bobby Sherman. And when was the last time you heard those names? <laughs> oh, the great Bobby Sherman. Yes. Uh, it's two years. Let's face it. Hogan can no longer sell out buildings just by showing up anymore. The Rock and Roll Express and Road Warriors can't even draw fans anymore. 
Although in the latter's case, Dave thinks there's still tons of unutilized potential, but Ricky and Robert are dead as draws as much as he respects them for their work. Again, the Bay faces out 25 Yell Creek, Dusty Roses, who will watch the popular and somewhat legendary in the real world turn people off to your product. The age rule forces this promotion to consistently develop new and better talent and push them to the top. Instead of getting stale and relying on assets that were once drawn cards but no longer are, now Dave's not at all in favor of this rule and any sort of mandatory retirement age for wrestlers. If Dave had his way, he'd just soon watch Nam Botman go five nights a week or Masaido. But in many ways, this business has been hurt badly for decades by guys past their prime and not in top shape, utilizing their power, prevent a promotion to stay on top, and buy promotions which never think past Friday's card. And don't realize you have to take the business down at times to rebuild and then push fresh talent in the long run. So Dave is saying this is wrestling menudo. <laughs> it, 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 it is, in a way. But you know what? I wonder if an American wrestling promotion trying to do this, how that would go. Not with the, not with the women, just, just in general. If Where, Matt, mean, if Matt Ratz had uh, gotten off the ground, for example. Well, I, and twenty five is and twenty five is too young of an age. For, Even if you're starting I mean, them at sixteen or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I mean, say thirty five. Like you could, I mean, like you couldn't wrestle for this promotion unless you're thirty five and younger. You know, I, I would be interested to see how that experiment will work here. What a promo- if a promotion tried to do that. Yeah, it would. And we, sh- although, all, although it would these days, they'd probably be sued. Oh yeah, <laughs> they would absolutely be sued. Um, and we should mention too. You know, we had from the NBC News thing earlier, and it doesn't come up enough. I mean, they were underpaying the shit out of those women. I mean, I should even maybe even say girls, since so many of them are. It's Japanese wrestling. I mean, all the—I mean, the men, the women. I mean, a lot of them are underpaid. Not to the point where Chaguza, with all the ancillary stuff, is still only making two hundred grand. Yeah, you know, and you look at some of the mainstream American coverage of like the second boom. I I need to find the article. I know I've linked it. Like they were—they did not pay those women well. Yeah, but that—I mean—that's—that's Japan, you know. Yeah, the men were making better. The the big name star men were making. Oh, well, the big name that, men though. were. But yeah. I mean, even even as far as top stars go, though, relative to Chikusa. Yeah. No, besides, so who, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. So, who's the quote unquote front owner of all Japan women at this point? It was always the Matsunagas. The Matsunaga brothers. Oh well, even the it also it was always them. Yes. Mm-hmm. At least. Officially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Besides Shigusu turned 23 this past, Williams been wrestling for this group since she was 15 and a half in mid-1980 and became a pop superstar in 1983 while still a teenager. The other type of faces are Linus Asuka, the other half of the Cross Girls tag team, which peaked this group's popularity about two years back. Asuka's now 24. has been pro since just for 17th birthday. During the heyday of the Crush Gals, Asuka was actually every bit as popular as Shigusa and the better worker of the two. But Chagusa has improved incredibly in the last year, while Oscar's been played by injuries. The injury rate in this group is very high. One girl, Kyoko Oso, broke her neck, getting a tombstone pile driver off the top rope. That move is no longer done because of that. Jump Angels. How how did he get Isako Uno's name so wrong? <laughs> it, I mean, it's in 1987 Japan, and that's Akira Hokuto for those who don't know. 
Yes. Now, the Jump Bomb Angels. Suki Yamazaki and Naruto Tano are both 21, but never made it to the top in Japan because they're too girlish. The same reason why they made it in the U.S. and why the Crush Gals wouldn't have made it as big. The other type of face tag team is Kazui Nakahori, 19, and Yumi Ogura, 20. Two very pretty and very small girls. Hikari Mori returns 26 shortly, was world champ for Shigusa, and probably retire early next year. Wait, 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 wait. Aren't Kazui Nakahori and Yumi Ogura a heel team? I guess they're baby faces then. Red Typhoons, they, right? I guess they turn heel later. Uh, the heels are real heels here, led by Karo Dump Matsumoto, who has been around for eight years. About 220 pounds, with a punk rock hairdo dyed several different colors, kendo sticks, biker outfit, and swastika tattooed on her forehead. Dump presents the picture you wouldn't believe. Her partners in crime are Bull Nakano, 19, who began wrestling at 15, 1983, and rose to the top rather quickly. Bull has hair on one side of her head, dyed all different colors, and face paint as well. The third member is Condor Saito, 20, who came from the class 1984 and is known for her wild screams. Condor swallowed and dumped and Bull and often injured because of her all-out style. The girls they're pushing right now to be eventually on top are Yumiko Hota, 20, who used a lot of karate kicks similar to the UF wrestlers. Yosuko Ishiguro, 20, and Mika Suzuki, 18, since they don't look girlish, whereas Nagahori and Ogura do. All right, December 6th at Cork and Hall. Karu Kaje beats Sachiko Nakamura just at the five-minute mark with a body slam. Kaje is one of Dump's girls. Short, fat, ugly heel, while Nakamura is a green rookie type half her size, star and a quarter. Doro Nakame and Kuniko Iwamoto, two more Dump's girls, beat Megumi Kudo and Toyota when Nakame pinned Kudo after a backdrop. This match is incredibly fast-paced with the mainly basic high spots, but several of them were missed. The Bayface team was real green, but worked as hard as they could. Two and a quarter stars. Megumi Kudo in the future combat Toyota. Uh, Bull knocking on Condor Cito over Yumi Ogura and Rei Bunamada. Ogura had a bad cold and was coughing all over the place, which hurt early in the part of the match. Bull and Condor were the world tag champs for this group. Amada hurt her shoulder at one point in the match outside the ring. The girls at ringside started pounding her shoulder and knocking it back into place. He just went back to work. Finished up Bull, Hold Amada, and Condor come off the top of the karate thrust, get a pin. Two and a, uh, two and a half stars. After the intermission, Jagusa came out and did a musical number. It was tremendous and amazing to see the crowd reaction. The girls in the audience sang all the words to the song with her. Then she came out for the five minutes mission with Masami. Masami chops as hard as Ric Flair and did a super off the top rope. But while good, this was un- wasn't unbelievable or anything. Uh, it was after the match where all the girls were crying and presenting her with flowers, and the kids at ringside started crying. And so the whole building was crying. Two and a half stars. Duck Matsumoto went to double count out with Yukari Mori in 1716, one of the best matches you'll ever see. Bull and Condor interfered to start and dragged the Mori to the back of the building where they pounded her with kendo sticks and nunchucks until the Mori was juicy. Condor used a chain, bull nunchucks, and dumped the kendo stick, and the heat was amazing. Dumped it up in the cup up more using the fork. At this point, the American fans in the audience were going crazy cheering for Dump, and she started blowing them kisses. Dave thinks they were cheering seeing the fork having have to use chopsticks. Ah, <laughs> uh, 1987, Dump. when Americans still didn't know how to use chopsticks. <laughs> Dump choked the more using the TV mic cable and started pounding on her cut with the ring announcer's mic. Then came the famous oil can, and they pounded on Amore's head with that. Finally, Amore made the comeback, and the place popped. Before Mori could get dumped in too much trouble, Bull and Condor interfered and the ref took a bump. Bull, and Amore, Bull gave Amori two pile drivers and the ref got back in the ring, but Amori kicked out and the place went crazy. Amori started pounding on Bull with the kendo sticks and finally went up outside the ring. He'll ref Shiro Abe was counting the 20 and about the count of 15 was staring at the timekeeper. 
It's a great heel ref finish. And I even watching the girls brawl on the floor. I kept counting the 20. You know, Amori beat the count and was in the ring by 17. Amori didn't beat the ref after the match. Four and a half stars. Then we get the main event. The 12-girl tag match had to turn the winner of some sort of tournament. Both sides were baby faces, but it didn't matter. The team of Linus Asuka, Miku Komatsu, Kazuo Nagahori, Mitsuko Nishiwaki, Esko Mita, and Sachiko Nakamura won a match 11 falls to 10 over Shigusa Nagayo, Yumiko Hota, Mika Takahashi, Mika Suzuki, and Yashio Harada. The match went 50 minutes of nothing but high spots. At one point, one of the girls hit on 11 straight drop kicks. It's the most, most amazing thing you could ever see. Everyone did at least one job during the match, and the move Chagusa and Asuka whip was one of the best moves you'll ever see. Probably the most amazing part of the match is that Asuka and Chagusa are actually in the match very little, and let the young girls do the work and just pick their spots. And the match was unbelievable from bell to bell. Five stars. I mean, f- just from a cardio point of view, imagine doing 11 straight drop kicks. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, get going down, going up, going down, going up, going down, going up, going down. Yes. I'm going to guess that they did more burpees in All Japan Women than the men's promotions did. <laughs> yeah, but this sounds like a hell of a fucking experience, doesn't it? Yeah, and nothing close to this full match has ever been released. Yeah. It's only the one I, I found on Google Drive is less than 10 minutes of it. I thought there was a little more available, but yeah. It is funny that even in 1987, the best match Dave has ever seen is a 12-person tag match that went 50 minutes, but nothing but high spots. It's like, well, if you've ever wanted to like stereotype Dave's opinions, there it is. But that's what I mean. That's what he liked. I mean, that's what he was into. You know, I mean, that's his deal. Always, know, it's, ha- it's, always has been, always will be. I know. It's just funny to like see it in black and white yeah i mean Dave's always been consistent <laughs> i mean Dave's always been consistent about his opinion on uh deathmatch wrestling he doesn't like it i mean he's always been consistent with his uh opinions on stuff but it uh, and it's, it's his opinions well i know and, it's, it's i know it's just funny i know it is i mean it, it is what it is but you know, I seen. I mean, I saw a thing the other day where people got worked up over. Um, Dave had made a statement about, you know, um, like matches of the year from the '90s, and he said that he's seen probably 20 matches this year that were better than those match those great matches of the '90s. I mean, that's Dave is is one who is, you know, he's into the present. That's his whole thing. You know, I mean. He looks at wrestling as the time that you were in, you know, not, you can't, you can't compare eras in a way as far as matches goes. Um, because of, you know, you just can't, in his mind, you can't do that. They're working for the live crowd, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, exactly. I see people get get worked up over statements like that. And I just laugh because it's it's funny. I do think past a certain point though, like, Especially at WrestleManias and the like, you have to acknowledge that wrestlers are working matches to be viewed years later. Well, yeah, they're doing that. I think they're doing that more now than they've ever done it. Oh, absolutely. That's the thing. <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's. But again, it's Dave's opinion. You know, take it or leave it. But 
Anyway, yes, uh, 80s All Japan Women. I know there's people that listen to this show that oh, I don't want to watch women wrestling and stuff like that. There's probably still some of that opinion today. Um, it's not as much. I mean, I think WWE has done more to change that opinion with their heavy pushing of women's wrestling over the over the past almost decade now. So, and of course, you know, Shimmer and stuff like that that started the ball rolling, but WWE, you know, took it next level. You know, it made it more acceptable for women's wrestling to get over to a larger audience, you know, and uh, it's definitely easier now, I think, for people to go back and watch uh, 80s Japanese women's wrestling or 90s Japanese women's wrestling than it was a decade ago. Yes, so, I mean, especially like 90s stuff, look how often like. I feel like last few years, you always see like people posting gifts from Toyota versus Kong on the anniversary of Big Egg Universe and stuff like that, too. Yeah, Mark, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I wonder if you would have told 1987 Dave that Bull Nakano would go on to become a professional golfer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. He would. Uh, nobody would ever thought that, but. Here we are. All right. Well, that is the end of the first half of the show. It's halftime. So that's some great 1987 commercials. We'll come back. We'll have halftime where we'll talk about the Patreon show again. We'll hit the plugs. And then we'll come back with Mark as we go back to uh, other North America where we got news on Stampede Wrestling. Some interesting stuff going on there. And we have some interesting Lucha results. And then, of course, we'll get back to the territories. All that and more. After the break. After these messages, we'll be right back. I know a boy, his name is Zach. He loves to fit, he loves to stack. Yes, construction is his knack. He's Zach, the Lego maniac. He builds in the window, he's off the wall. He builds them big, he builds them small. In Lego land, he'll rock and roll. He's Lego wild, out of control. Zach, Zach. Legoland King's Castle Airport Cosmic Fleet Voyager sold separately from Lego Systems. A new racing team is shifting into gear. Mask. Something's fishy. Better get down there. Me or convert and stand by. It's a two-car race here at the Mask National. Wait! Mantis forcing Razorback into a wall. It's, it's Phantom. Convert Razorback. Little Meteor. Vehicles each sold separately with a figure. Time to run. Mask, where illusion is the ultimate weapon. Mask, Meteor, Razorback, and Manta each sold separately. New from Kenner. Do Lee jeans really fit everybody? Let's find out. Here, try these on. You see, Lee jeans are made like no other jeans, so they fit like no other jeans on any kind of body. What I tell you, Lee, the brand that fits. Wild Papa Lux! Wild Papa Lux! Five Fisher Price! 
and Jewel Secrets Barbie with three fabulous secrets. We girls love lots of jewels to wear. Right, Barbie? Jewel Secrets Barbie. Jewel Secrets. Wow. Step out of that gown for a night on the town. Jewel Secrets. Just right for a disco night. Barbie has one more secret. Her ball gown is a purse. Jewel Secrets Barbie doll has three dazzling looks with matching play jewels and dazzled separately from Mattel. Think we'll beat that time? Sure we will. After this complete breakfast, including my Frosted Flakes, they bring out the tiger in you. Beat that if you're any good. Good? Yeah. They're great. You'll show them you're a tiger. Show them what you can do. The taste of Tony's Frosted Flakes. Yeah. Brings out the tiger in you. What you doing? Going diving with Tony the Tiger. I make him dive. He hit bottom. And up he comes. How'd you do that? One diving Tony free in specially marked packages. After these messages, we'll be right back. One cold winter's eve, Bertie and Grimace wandered McDonald land in search of... A gift for Ronald. Got any bright ideas? When lo and behold, a little star hopped from the heavens and twinkled down to earth. Look, Grimace, a falling star! Oh, maybe we can catch it. And so they did. You'll make the perfect gift for Ronald. The little star was wrapped and ribboned and given... But, oh dear me, Twinkle, it didn't. You see, Bertie and Grimace, a star can never belong just to me. It belongs way up high for everyone to see. So let's wish him home, where he'll twinkle and glow. And so they did, as they stood in the snow. Look, the star's back at home in the sky. Good as new. And I have the best gift of all, friends like you. Happy holidays from McDonald's. Football and basketball, each sold separately from Mattel. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoy those great 1987 commercials. Great times. As we uh, to the halftime seven of the show, we were talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash twinning sheets. And yes, we have the new show out, part two of our three part series at 20. Look at our look back at 25 years of Montreal. Brett Screw Brett on this one, especially as uh, we talk about Vincent Man going on Monday Night Raw with his black eye to uh, exclaim that Brett Screw Brett, Vincent Screw Brett, Brett Screw Brett. And uh, yeah, this is quite the show. That's that's the big thing among the things on this show. But another just show covering just two weeks, the Hatcher Survivor Series. So we have out the aftermath on WF television. We'll have. Uh, Multiple interviews, the, the Vince interview on Raw, a very intriguing Bret Hart interview with Greg Oliver, 
which takes fan questions, which is something. Shawn Michaels being extremely candid with Mike Mooneyham. We got Vince and Eric Bischoff doing uh, AOL and Prodigy chats. I mean, there's a lot going on here on this show. And a definite uh, perfect compliment to the first show we did. And uh, you don't want to miss this if you've uh, listened to the first show. And uh, you don't want to miss a period. And uh, folks, you need to get on the Patreon and listen to the first show and this show. And then in this month, the last show. So we'll have uh, all three parts done as we'll look at Wrestling with Shadows, among other things, on the third show. So $5 a month at patreon.com slash tween the sheets gets you access to all of that. Plus the all the audio that we've done in our over six years now, the Patreon. So tons of audio for that $5. So uh, get on that. And, you know, we have never raised our rates. We've been doing this Patreon now for six plus years, going to our seventh year, and our, and our rates are still the same as they were when we started. And that's inflation with two of us, been, too. <laughs> and inflation, so inflation has not crept into our Patreon. So, uh, I'm, it has in other ones, but not in ours. So. Yeah, we're like video games. We're inflation-proof. <laughs> I guess. These video games are more expensive these days than they used to be. Though. They're starting to get that. a little more expensive again. <laughs> like, we're getting, you know, like some of the PS5 and Xbox. Uh, yeah. The, I forget. Is yeah, it I Series dropped, S I, I or Series like, X? I mean, I dropped like 80 bucks on Call of Duty. So, uh, But so, was that yeah, a special edition, though? Uh... Yeah, I think so. It's something, but still, it's still eighty bucks. So, I mean, yeah, but uh, yeah, our numbers are still the same as we'll go through them here. One dollar a month gets you access to the Discord. And thanks in this segment, of course, five dollars gets you access to the audio. Twenty-five dollars allows you to pick a show for the week. And um, we've had a few Patreon picks lately, different uh, tiers, but twenty-five is the one that can get you the show. And yeah, I mean, it's it's a great deal for people who want us to talk about what the, you know they want us to talk about. And when you're doing that, make sure you have two shows in mind just because there's a chance that it could be something that we've talked about before because we've been doing this show for over seven years. And you people may have forgot something that we may have talked about in the early days or whatever. So um, have two shows in mind. And if you have any questions, let us know. And please let us know why you're picking the week so we can uh, – Know, how, know if that will work or not. Um, follow the protocol on the Patreon website to get that information to us. And of course, you got a 30-day year, 30 year, 30 rules in effect. Get the information for 30 days of your show that you pick. 10-year rules in effect, of course. And uh, our show goes from Wednesday to Tuesday in the timeline of the year that you want your show done in. And uh, you can do all that, then we should be able to uh, get your show taken care of. And $50 allows you to sit in for a segment of that show and 100 for the whole show, as Mark Cole's doing this week on this on this show. You don't have to, but it's, the option is there. At patreon.com slash between the sheets. And don't forget uh, annual options for everything. 50-40. for the $5 tier, 16% off of whichever tier it would be. There you go. Yeah. So there, there's also that, and a lot of people have taken advantage of that as well lately. So... Big who it this week is our new and or returning patrons, and I know we haven't done halftime in a couple of weeks, so let's see how we how the list goes here. All right. We would like to thank WCW Gold, aka person on Twitter tagging Chris. Thanks, WCW Gold. AKA person on Twitter tagging Chris. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, we would also like to thank Gregory Smith. Not sure if the Canadian actor from Everwood and the like. Thanks, but, Gregory. Yes. Uh, put in time. Excuse me. Put in Tane. Sorry. <laughs> put what? <laughs> put in Tane. Thanks, Put in Tane. I thought it was like Putty Putty Tat or something like that. Thanks, no. Put in Tane or Pooty Tang. No. Uh, Sean Darty. Thanks, Sean. Who, of course, we had his show. Uh, the last show we did was Sean, uh, Sean Darty requested show. Actually, so there you go. Yes. Ryan O'Neill with a year. Ryan O'Neill? Not that one, I don't think. Uh, I was about to say, wow. Uh, thanks, Ryan. Take a guess who the next one is. All right, um, Danny Kukler. Yes. Thanks, Danny. One of the day, one of these days, I would love to know what his actual formula is for which months he does on and which he does off. Hey, it's just however it works, I guess. I'm not complaining. I'm just curious. No. He has his pattern. Yes. Uh, we would also like to thank Michael. Thanks, Michael. Craig McDaniel. Thanks, Craig. Sailorman79. Thanks, Sailor Man. We got a conversion from monthly to annual from Tony. Let me make sure I'm pronouncing this at least semi-correctly. Chiarachetti? 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 Something like that. Thanks, Tony. And then we have Nolan Lake. Thanks, Nolan. Will Olson. Thanks, Will. Cremation Lily. Thanks, Cremation. Damien. Thanks, Damien. Levi Mosby. Thanks, Levi. Philip Trossler, aka longtime uh, observer board and other internet forum poster Trossler P. Thanks, Philip. Simon Mulvaney. Thanks, Simon. And Devin Axtman. Thanks, Devin. So thank all you new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have been there from the beginning, come along the way. We thank all of you for your support at patreon.com slash between the sheets. Yes, and as a reminder, something mentioned at the top of the show, we do also have the notes ready and know what we're doing for January and February. That's right. So you'll find out more about that at the end of uh, the December show. We'll, we'll announce that for the first time. Yes. All right, Fix. Uh, IDB TV, what's going on there this week? Well, let's see. Where do I actually start? Eh, we'll go with the live streams. Why not? So, of note, coming up this coming week, uh, there is going to be a, I believe, the actually the final part of the GCW Settlement Series on Tuesday, December 5th at 7.30 Eastern. No idea what the theme is going to be, but that's happening. Then... Uh, on Friday at the Mecca, the Phil Sheridan Building in Ridgefield Park, New Jersey, there's going to be a Northern Federation of Wrestling show that includes, among other matches, Alec Price versus Trey Lamar. Uh, H2O has a show also on Friday at 80 Stern that includes such matches as Matt Tremont versus Billy Starks and Austin Luke versus Brogan Finley versus Brandon Kirk. Interesting mix of talent on those, would you say? I guess so. 
<laughs> a lot of those people I've never even seen live. I've never uh, seen, so I don't know. <laughs> well, you're, you know, I mean, you know who Brogan Finley and Brandon Kirk are. Brogan Finley, yes. Brandon Kirk, I don't think I've ever seen wrestle. Really? Not I even in other... Independence. <laughs> but he's been around a while, okay? If I have, I don't remember it. Okay. I, I, I told you, I'm, I'm, I've been zoned out of that scene. Billy Starks so. has been having some interesting opponents lately. Well, she's in Japan right now. Yeah, is she still on the Japanese tour? At least it was. as we record Still is, but it was. Yes, youngest foreign woman ever to tour Japan? So it should be, yeah. Sounds right to me. Yeah, I, can, I can't think of anyone else. Well, uh, I guess the question would be how old was Rhonda Singh on her first tour? Well, Rhonda Singh wasn't American either. I said foreigner. Oh, if I said American. Okay, now um, I'm actually curious to look that up. So she's born February 21st, 61. I'm looking right now. Because she was a teenager when she started there, right? She was young. Okay, I'm limiting her to age. Okay, so February 21st. So, okay, she was 18. She debuted on her 18th birthday in All Japan Women, at least from the results nope. we have. Well, there you go. Because I can't think of anyone else that would be close, right? Like, I got to think all the the Mexican women were older than that. Uh, maybe. Fabio Pachi was over there early. I th- I don't think she was underage, though. So, I, I would think it's most likely uh, Billy. So, Mazel Tov. And speaking of Billy Starks, expect the unexpected wrestling, the uh, sort of ICW but doing normal stuff spinoff uh, with the struggles as the booker. They return at Ridgefield Park on Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern with a show that includes Jordan Oliver versus Marcus Mathers, Brian Keith making his debut, I believe, versus Akira, Billy Starks in action, as well as Trey Lamar, Brogan Finley. Yoya, Becca, I think, making her debut and more. So those are your live streams of note. And then also, so this just went up today as we're recording this, so I've not gotten a chance to watch it yet. I've been looking forward to it, though. And it's up in two parts, so it's a longer one. Uh, The life of Colby Carino has gone up, you know, from the latest in the Life of series that is – what is John Philip Havage's official title? Fabi Apache Mm -hmm. was 17. Working uh, Arsene. 17 in how many months, though? Uh, Three. She was uh, born December 26, 1980. She was working in March 1998. And Billy, at this point, is closer to 18 than she is 17, right? Yeah, so Fabio Apache was younger than her, for sure. Oh, Billy already turned 18. Yes. Oh, she turned 18 in October. Okay. So, okay, youngest American, then. Yeah, I knew I I knew that there was some of the, the Mexican ladies that was over there really young. So there you go. Yeah, when I was thinking when I said that earlier, I was thinking more like early earlier all Japan women Mexican talent. But I got to think still youngest American. Um, so anyway, yes, life of Colby Carino. Which so yeah, what I, what I was saying. What what is John's title on those? Producer, director, both. I I guess everything. Yes, I mean the wrestler Editor. shoots it, you know, on their own, but then he puts it all together. 
And this is what I'm looking forward to, you know, for a number of reasons, because Colby's got an interesting story, particularly because uh, last month, and I want to say when he was shooting this was leading up to that, and fairly close, last month was his uh, fifth year sobriety anniversary. And, you know, I know from some of the previews and stuff that he does talk in detail about, you know, his addiction issues and how that's affected him and getting sober and all that. So, you know, like I've said on Twitter and stuff in the past, when an addiction hits someone as young as it hit him, it, the outcome is often a lot worse than just the average person who gets hit hard by that kind of thing. I mean, it, it's not an exaggeration to say that it is truly remarkable how well he's been able to deal with things and come out the other side. Yeah, because, I mean, he, 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 he was in rough shape. And it's hard to believe it's been five years now. Man. Mm. Time, time flies. Because I remember when, you know, he was having his worst episodes. And uh, it just seems like it wasn't that far away. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, good for him, seriously. That You know, he's got his shit together. And, you know, he's really... For a while, I think a lot of indie promoters just didn't seem to know how to use him for whatever reason. But it seems like that's changing lately, especially especially with how uh, Deadlock Pro has been using him. You know, booking him against Speedball, booking him against Down Drawing a Blank. Who was the match they just announced? Was it Te- oh, Takeshita, I think, for their next show. So... You know, we'll see what happens. I don't know when his contract with NWA is through. But it seems like he's finally starting to build up more of the momentum that you would have maybe expected him to have built up last year coming out of the match with his dad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, definitely looking forward to checking that out, uh, you know, within the next day or two. And if you are not already a subscriber to IWTV... Then when you sign up, use code BTSPOD at checkout, and we will get a referral fee for each month you stay a paid subscriber. So independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. All right, this week's episode of Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you're using Cognito mode, your internet service providers storing your browsing data many times even selling it. The private internet access can help. Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet's traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet source provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, ARX solid privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just right the... Fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. And if you sign up with private internet access right now, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's go down that deal, shall we? You can got three tiers here you can choose from. You can get straight monthly deal. That's at eleven ninety five a month. You go yearly at three dollars and thirty three cents a month, or thirty nine ninety five a year. Or you can take advantage of the number one package we offer. Three years plus four free months, 
at a dollar ninety-eight a month. Seventy-nine dollars over three years, eighty-three percent off. The best damn deal you'll find anywhere. Nobody offers nothing like that. It's so much more expensive than virtually every other private net, virtual private network on the market. And if you get it right now, you take advantage of private internet access 30 day risk free challenge. Try it out for 30 days, see if you like it. If not, just turn for a full refund. So, how you get that, you ask? Well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk free. All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we're going to do the show we talked about in the last show. Since we had to, uh, you know, we took a week off and we came back and Mark had this show picked. So we're going to reverse it and go back to 1990. And we'll talk about uh, all the wild and wacky stuff going on that week. That Survivor Series to talk about in WF. We got the end of an era in Texas to talk about in wrestling as World Class Wrestling runs their final show. We got all kinds of other independent stuff to talk about. And uh, we got a, the major booking change in NWA as Ole Anderson has shown the door and Dusty Rose about to walk in. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. We won't have a guest next week, but that's okay. We'll get it done. So uh, we'll we'll try to do uh, see what we can do for uh, the month of December and maybe have some type of special show. We've done a couple special shows in, around Christmas time lately, so we'll see what we can come up with. So uh, everybody check that out. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And Bix, what's been going on these past couple of weeks in your world? Let me refresh my – oh, sorry. Messing with my volume. Hold on. There. Same with your levels. Not the same way that the Liver King does, but sure. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, let me pull up my uh, Wrestling Inc. Features author page and refresh my memory as for what the hell has gone up the last couple of weeks. Dot com. Sorry. I was multitasking as we were doing this, and I didn't... Oh. And I typed Wrestling Inc. wrong. Oh, this is just going great. <laughs> you typed the name of the website you were for wrong. That's fantastic. It's a, They're going to be it, very proud. It happens. I typed it wrong. I didn't get it wrong. All right. So, okay. I think I told, I had mentioned stuff that was coming, but maybe it hadn't all gone up yet. So, um, the WWF magazine stuff went up, including talking about the wars on the other magazines. Uh, now it's our turn. The hit piece on superstar Billy Graham, various, uh, you know, uh, trying to rewrite history, Vince Russo's short-lived attempt at an official company dirt sheet and more. Uh, also up all the times that Jim Ross was hired and fired by WWE, including looking at the uh, torch talk that got him fired the second time, which also I had not remembered until putting this together. <laughs> he was fired, rehired, fired again, and then rehired again all in 1994. I had forgotten that it was still technically 1994 when he got brought back for the long run. I thought it was 95 by the time he came back, but nope. Yeah. So he did this. He did the smoky tapings as a daily employee. Yes, he did. Um. Anyway, so those are already up as we record this. I should have a thing up about Jimmy Hart. I think. Uh, 
within a day or two of the show going up, and also have stuff about uh, Paul Bear, and also big feature. I was working on more of a traditional type feature on all of the bullshit with the video game kickbacks and stuff that we've talked about before, and Jim Bell and Stanley Schenker, and I don't think I got to mention Ausbert Diars and how he was connected to these people, but that should be going up uh, hopefully within the next week or two, including uh, some quotes from an interview I did with the then CEO of THQ, Brian Farrell, and also uh, some stuff from a source close to certain negotiations, is all I'll say. Okay. Well, Negotiation with who? Oh, excuse me, with the uh, with the ECW acclaim, acclaim negotiations. Uh-huh, there you go. Yes, now you know what I'm talking about. Well, you know, stuff we've kind of talked about on the, on the ECW Patreon shows. Yes, yes, there's there's talk of ECW management group, of uh, Jim Bell and Stanley Schenker, of uh, all that good stuff. So that'll be up at WrestlingInc.com slash features, plus I'll tweet all of it as usual. So uh, everyone check that out. Oh, and at my Patreon, patreon.com slash Archive, put up some new stuff. A uh, promo photo of Gary Hart that I'm pretty sure is of his uh, gay Gary Hart gimmick in Amarillo, which at least the way he describes it in his book, and this is something where I assume it's true, the name was forced on him by Dory Funk Sr. and he tried to make it not actually a gay gimmick while keeping the name or something. So I put that up. I put up... Uh, Letters that Vince McMahon sent uh, Phil Mushnick that we referenced on here recently uh, put up uh, the Houston Wrestling Program from right after uh, Morse. Okay, so is it Siegel or Sigel? Since it's not spelled the usual way Siegel is. I've always heard Siegel from everybody okay. that mentioned his name. Okay, so Morse Siegel passed away, which interesting other note about that, which I hadn't realized that program is also the first program before the launch of their TV show on Channel 39, because Channel 39 went on the air the same day uh, as the first show after he died. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see them explaining how UHF works and how you may need to get a converter box if you don't have a newer TV. Hmm. Which I never thought of that, but I guess it makes sense that that was a thing. UHF converter boxes. Yeah, I think I actually had one on TV when I was a kid because my TV, that TV was so old. So you had a TV that, that was from like pre, pre before the late sixties, I guess would be the way to put it. I know I've seen one in, in, in a house. I don't know if it was. I, I know I had something where you had to cook a button and it went from VHF to UHF. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the TV was from the sixties. I think it's from the seventies. I'm pretty sure it was the what it was saying was it was required um it was required it said I think the last two and a half years before that program. So it would have been going back to like sixty five or earlier. Uh, cause what, I don't think the T V I had was from the sixties. I think it was from the seventies. Hmm, but it still had the still had the thing. But you had a separate box or you just had a switch on the T V? It was a separate thing that was hanging on T V. I vaguely remember this because I was very, 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 very young. Because I feel like I once had an old TV that had a switch for some reason between modes. Yeah, yeah. Because I remember, it, I think I had, I think it was we had one that had it was like an, it was an adapter. It's like an adapter. Um. Okay. Yeah. I see UHF hanging conver- behind, look- hang behind the TV. Yeah, I'm looking now on eBay UHF converter consoles. 
Interesting. I mean, there's no use for them now since there's no more analog signals. But Exactly. But anyway, patreon.com slash bixarchive for that. We'll be putting up more stuff. Um, still have to go through it to figure out what, including some stuff I uh, told Chris about uh, yesterday that I'm sure people will find particularly interesting. Um, I'll just give the hint that I started getting stuff from the Stanley Weston archive that uh, includes some interesting things. So everyone check that out. Patreon.com slash Archive. Possible Wrestling Observer Hall of Famer, Stanley Weston. We'll see how the votes come down on that. Okay. I I feel like I would need to know more about the day-to-day because I feel like everyone that said anything about his involvement day-to-day, he's not a Hall of Famer. Just he wasn't directly involved enough. Like well, then is in transform. Well, no, 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 no. Let me. I know where you're going with this. Okay. I All feel right. like you have to be more transformative, like a Ted Turner, to be able to. Well, st- he was kind of transformative. <laughs> I mean, wrestling magazines exploded under his watch. So I mean, yeah, I mean, there is. That. I mean, he provided he provided the a- avenue for for that to happen. Yeah, and so, actually, just like my... Ted Turner provided avenue for for wrestling on cable television, and that does remind me of something I saw going through some of the stuff I got that I don't think I mentioned to you yet. In late '83, so before Hulkamania and National Expansion, all that, how many different wrestling titles do you think was li- were listed on their letterhead? Uh, eight, ten. Yeah, it's close. So. Once the boom starts, just how many magazines were they putting out? A lot. I mean, and I know not like all of them were theirs. Well, no. I mean, Star Starlog had what, like four? Yeah. You know, and then you had, you know, well, some start up, you know, Wrestling Eye and Wrestling Fury. Uh, Wrestling Main Event was already around, but there, there's so many. And there's so many that, like, you know, we've talked about this a little before. You never even would have thought – you never even heard of mm-hmm. until looking at eBay and random, like, back-issue vendors and stuff. Yeah. So, anyway. Time to get back to the rest of the show? Not yet. Oh. Tales oh, right. of Territories. I am behind. Um, I think I haven't watched anything since Portland. So. Well, we haven't talked about Portland. Oh, yeah. Cause that was a – that was, right. first, that was the first one we missed. Um, that one was fantastic. That was a great. That was a fantastic show because you had this whole different look at Portland from you know not all the familiar faces. You know, I mean, you get in the different eras too. You get Mike Masters, who you know was awesome on that show, and it's so sad he died when he did. Um, then you got um, Prince Victoria. Who was a local, and I her story, which is fantastic, and then uh, Luke Williams, who was you know major star there for you know a short time there in major foods, and then the grappler who comes in towards the end. So I mean, you get a lot of different uh, looks at uh, that territory, and yeah, fantastic stories there, man. I mean, the Buddy Rose stuff was was, was wild. The Buddy Rose, Matt Bourne stuff. Oh, man. I mean... I'm not sure I'd ever seen the talk show clip before. I hadn't either. 
I mean, it, it, that was that was something. I'm curious to check YouTube for that because I I used to have all the Buddy Rose stuff. I feel like I would remember that being on there. But um, yeah, it was fantastic stuff, and uh, you know, Buddy was put over a lot on that show, and rightfully so, as being the guy who you know basically saved that territory for prosperity because of his videotape collection, you know. And, um, yeah, so just some, some great stories, Elton Owen stories, and just a, just a, a really great show. Yeah. So that was the first, that was the first one that we did. Now, do, you have not seen the world class one yet. No, I did see world class. Okay. So you saw world class. All right. That was the next one. Um, another great show. Um, what I loved about this show, the world class one was we we didn't get that whole talking point about the curse of world class and going to the deaths and all that stuff. I mean, they stayed away from that. And uh, for you know, they did kind of touch on it once, but that very short. They stayed away from that. I liked how they focused a lot on the Freebirds and the Freebirds von Eric feud. Yes, yeah, although um, it was funny how much David Manning got credit for that was not his doing. Well. I mean, yeah. I mean, that that was the one thing about that one, but uh, because that was Gary Hart, and well, and know, also David Manning remembered the match wrong. He remembered <laughs> the match wrong as well. Yeah, he remembered as being escape the cage rules for the Hayes turn. Yeah that that was a that was a major uh, faux pas in that, but um, and I I tell you, it was interesting seeing Chavito up there, Chavo Junior. And it made sense because he was the guy that basically carried the show. Yes. You know, and, and we come to find out he's in the Von Air movie. So, I mean, there, there's a, uh, you know, one talk about there. Well, I'm he's sure he's doing the stunts, stunt coordination and stuff, but yeah, he's actually so he's in it too. The, okay. the, yeah, he's, he's in the Von Air movie, so that made sense. So his, his spot there, but Gracie and Brian and Diaz out there, I thought, I always thought his uh, high spot shoot interview was underrated. Yeah, I thought that was a great shit interview. And Kevin, you know, Kevin being there and having a good time. Jimmy Garvin, you know, and David Manning. A really, really strong show. Um, that one's one that definitely could have been longer. Um, yeah, it felt, it felt like it ended kind of abruptly. And one thing I want to point out, too, I think we talked about privately, but you didn't mention yet. It was so nice to see Kevin actually cutting loose. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he was having a good time there with, with the boys. And, uh, yeah, um, I, 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 I love the El Santo story that David Manning told. Uh, you know, I mean, it, just great stuff. And then uh, the one that just aired as we record this was uh, the Crockett one. Speaking of ones that could have been multi-parts. Yes, I have but, not uh, seen that one yet. And I know it's constructed differently from the other episodes because there are like yes. drop-ins from Cornette and Nikita, right? Yeah, because they have their own segments. So that's why I say it, that could have been a multi-part show. Because the, the panel at, in the room was David Crockett, Ricky Morton, Arn Anderson, and Baby Doll. And then Cornette's interviewed his house. And Nikita, is, Nikita looked like he was there in the in the room, but he wasn't there during the, the session. Oh, I think his flight was late or something like that. Yeah. 
because they do show him like hugging Ricky Moore, but he wasn't in the pa- he wasn't with the panel. Right, it was after the filming finished. Yeah, yeah, but um, and there was a spot where they would have had a chair there. Let's just put it that way, <laughs> um, because there's a big gap between Ricky Morton and Arn Anderson. But yeah, I mean, yeah. So you haven't watched it, so I really don't want to spoil it. But uh, they go into the plane crash. That's a very powerful moment in the show. And they really put over Tim Woods. That's all I'll say about that. Um, Arn Anderson talking about the, uh, the the Ric Flair turn at the Omni on Dusty Rhodes and how that almost became a tragedy for the, for him, Rick, and Ole. Um, the stories about Jim, that Jim Cornette told about all the heat he got from you know the angles with fans and stuff. And baby doll and her and her her uh position and how she was so pivotal and everything and i i thought it was maybe the it was of the shows that involved the panel i thought it was the best one that keyed on the panel like all the main stories were about the panel it was relying on their experiences entirely as opposed to using them to tell the story of the territory more broadly, even if it didn't involve them. Yes. Yes. And they really put over dusty, really put over dusty. So, uh, I don't want to go any more than that because, you know, you haven't seen it, but next week, the season finale, mid South wrestling with a panel of Jim Ross, Michael Hayes, Ted DiBiase and Jake snake Roberts. I mean, that's a stout panel right there for I mean, I know people saying, Where, why wasn't Duggan on there? But that's a stout fucking panel when it comes to Mid-South Wrestling mm-hmm. and all the incarnations. And you get Ross and Hayes together again. You know, I mean, that's something. But, um, yeah, the commercial looked great. You mean Hayes talking about the JYD blinding angle. Um, Ross is telling a story about Bill Watts, which this may be one a story that I don't know how many of us have ever heard. But it involves a, it's about to kill somebody shoot somebody um and yeah it, it looks like it's gonna be a fucking great show so uh yeah i cannot recommend any of these episodes highly enough i love tales from the territories and i hate to see it go for now i i, wait, I need more <laughs> i need more of this stuff this is fantastic so uh we'll see what happens uh, in 2023 but uh everybody go check that out on vice tv tales from the territories all right well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's get back to other North America now. We go to Canada, where we have Stampede Wrestling. Uh, December 4th at Calgary at the Victoria Pavilion. Drew another full house for Jason the Terrible's clash with Bad News Island. Match in a double count out in 10.30. After the match, Allen got, got the hockey mask and was using it until Owen Hart made the save and chased Bad News away, grabbing the mask. When Jason recovered, he thought it was Owen who attacked him when the mask nearly attacked him. But somehow peace was mended. And next week's main event uh, would be Owen and Jason as a tag team. I guess Muck and Singh and Bad News, which would draw another big house. Now Muck and Singh beat Colonel Kirshner, and Stampede is Colonel, not Corporal, by DQ in 15 minutes. It was originally to be a barbed wire match, however, the local commission nixed the idea, <laughs> so it was made a lumberjack match. The ending saw Steve the Salvo interfere along with Owen, but Owen got called for the DQ. Owen also beat Kerry Brown, Bruce Parton, Brian Pillman, Bad Company, over Hashif Khan, Shin Yashimoto, and Viet Cong Express number two. 
Shinji Sasaki was leaving the area to go back to Japan. And Johnny Smith and Beef Wellington beat uh, Champagne Jerry Morrow and Goldie Rogers when Wellington beat Rogers in 1959 about of a 20-minute time limit. So it got that one-second finish. Black Sabbath beat uh, Steve DeSalvo by count-out. This time, Black Sabbath was filled with floor, and we made his big comeback on the Salvo. The Salvo walked out, and LaFleur unmasked. While the opener saw Garfield Ports, Scott McGee, beat Mr. Hito with a superplex. So, by the way, is Garfield his legal first name? Because I know he goes by Gary. Um, I think so. Yeah, okay. it's, his, it's his legal. Yeah, Garfield Gary Ports. I mean, one of the things I find interesting about that too is it's not the only territory he worked where his dad was a name like he worked in florida that's what i was gonna say like with hindsight i mean maybe because it's the place he was most successful in the states he wanted to get by on his own and not be gary ports but like it makes sense that you do it in stampede but if you're doing it in stampede you expect to also do it in florida i think it's just they wouldn't do something different. Scott McGee. Honestly, I think Scott Shannon was a better ring name, but... Well, it was a hell of a DJ. <laughs> Still which, is who, which is also who Waller named him after, because he was originally big in Memphis. Yeah, Scott Shannon uh, still syndicated nationwide. I hear him on a local radio station here every weekend, so there you go. Um, and he was uh, Pat McGee in Portland. Don't forget that. Which I'm surprised that... Uh, that uh, Bruce Hart didn't go for Pat McGroin and uh, Stampede, but uh, wasn't there a I Pat McGroin it, somewhere else? I'm pretty sure there probably was. <laughs> it is wrestling, but yeah, I've, I've watched this Stampede in, in recent times from this era, and uh, this this Jason babyface turn was very strong and uh, got over big, and yeah, this is leading to a, a hell of a 1988 that's about to get going too with Jason's babyface Owen is. The champion, Muck and Sing, and they got you know DeSalvo and all that all that crew. So yeah, Stampede's a hell of a fucking territory at this time. Really strong television. And um Hashimoto's now here as Hashif Khan. So yeah, a lot of good stuff going on. Alright, they're in Edmonton the next night at the Northlands Agricom. We have Hashif Khan and Via Kong Express number two over Mr. Hito and Biff Wellington. Champagne Jerry Moore over Johnny Smith. Back opening. Went to a no contest with Garfield Ports and Goldie Rogers. Steve DeSalvo overfilled the floor. Muck and Singh went to a WQ with Colonel Kirshner. And bad news over Jason the Terrell by disqualification. Kirshner in Calgary's a trip, Bix. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he, he's definitely uh, imbibing there. Let's just put it that way, huh? I wouldn't say imbibing. I don't think imbibing makes you cut promos like he did here and in Portland later on. <laughs> yes, he's uh he's definitely having a good time, so to speak. Yeah. Some of those left some of those leftover Dr. D. David Schultz cookies that his wife made? Possibly. <laughs> Possibly. But uh we have a really really good crew here at this time, yeah. like I said. Also I don't always think about it this way, but Sasazaki had a really long excursion. Until he ended well, he up left, just deciding to stay, right? He left and came back. I mean, he, I mean this is his second trip in Calgary. And he's going <laughs> to become – and in 88, he he unmasks and works as Yang Chong. Yeah. 
I mean, we've, we've already had the uh, Hase uh, split well earlier in 87. Hase's back in Japan now. So that's happened. He, now he's here working on the string, and he's going to come back and be uh, Yang Chung. Everybody Yang Chung tonight, which I've in the last Stampede I've watched, that's when Yang Chung just made his debut. So uh, in 88. So, uh, yeah, good stuff here. And it says here another independent promotion is planning on starting here in January. That's not the Liz Thornton one because the Liz no, Thornton one was happened. 87. Yeah. Yeah, 87. Yeah. So I really don't know what this one is. So, I mean, people came for him. You know, they wanted to, to try to promote against them and do all that. But Stampede it, was just too, 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 too good, too powerful in that market. And it's a weird place to run and, and or try to run a full time opposition promotion. Yeah. In the first place, like, yeah, this, you know, there are a few major cities, but like this sprawling prairie territory is where you're going to try to do this. Like, okay. Unless maybe you were planning on concentrating, maybe like on running reservations and stuff like that and just leaving sort of the, the major cities to, to, to the hearts. But the hearts were running those as their non-weekly towns, though, weren't they? Like, they were doing spot shows on reservations and stuff, I think. They were doing spot shows in all kinds of places. (laughs) Not just reservations. I mean, there are – I mean, there's times there where they've got a whole um, loop in British Columbia they're doing. they got split crews. they got one crew that's doing Alberta stuff, and then they got another crew that's in British Columbia. That happens a good bit in the, in the 80s. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a big enough area to try and run, but if I was going to be trying to run, I would try to go against, you know, Tonko and Vancouver. That seemed like an easier place to go, but... Well, I mean, Stampede did. <laughs> no, it's about somebody else. Oh, no, that's Stampede. that's my point, of, though, is that... Instead of going against Stampede. My point is, is it's been shown that there can be success there with a good promotion. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to Mexico now. Let's go start off with EMLL, remake on December the 4th. Javier Roca, Javier Vadaguez, and Rocambale over Black Terry, Jose Luis Feliciano, and Shua Guerrero, los Temerarios. Solar, number one, Tony Salazar, and Villano, number one, over Emilio Chavez Jr., Tony Arce, and Volcano by disqualification. El Dandy, La Fiera, and Jorge de Lisco Jr., over Ambre Anraña. Mascara Anilis Mil and Sangre Chicana. Some sources have Ambre Bala and not Ambre Aranya. I'm willing to bet it was Ambre Bala. Then we have a Caballero contra Caballero match. Irma Aguilar over Rossi Moreno. La Medusa was scheduled for the match. But El Hacon magazine said she was hospitalized halfway through the show in the emergency appendix surgery. Rossi Moreno did well as an emergency sub, but lost on a planche missed Irma. And hit referee Gran Davies by mistake. Fans thought Moreno was the better wrestler. Well, there's that. Then we had um, a Mascara Contra Mascara match. And a big one, too. Cien Caras went to double count with Ciclo Equis Dos Equis. Um, and this match is online. Ciclo Dos Equis is Jose Luis Perez Rodriguez. He quickly ended up under new mask as The Killer. Bloody dramatic match. Match ends on the count out with. Ciclo Mr. Pescado, 
Sin beat him up a little bit, came back in for the count out. Alcon Magazine says Siegel was then also taken to the hospital. So, yes, Siegel Dos Equis and the killer, same person, Bix. Yep. Yep, that's what I knew. And I've only seen a little Siegel Dos Equis, but he doesn't seem like he's nearly as bad a wrestler as he was as Keeler. I think, well, I think he was younger, and I think that. That whole gimmick probably is uh, not conducive to being a really good worker. Is the killer? You mean dressing up like the gimp? Yes, or one of Kim Kardashian's children. So, um, yeah. Wait, what's that about? You haven't seen that story? No. There's a whole big kerfuffle about um, Kanye and Kim's oldest child wearing a uh, a gimp mask, basically, at some at Fashion Week uh, this week. That's Nine north. That's north. Yeah, northwest. Yeah, northwest. Is that a, okay? Wait, I'm looking at this now. Whole I big thing. I wouldn't call that a gimp mask. Well, <laughs> I mean, it's all over the place. So yeah, I mean, I see it now. Oh, by the way, uh, circling back because someone happened to mention this name to me randomly <laughs> within a within a. Sh- short period of time after we recorded the the Japan segment. Kyoko Aso is a different All Japan Women rookie who got hurt around the same time as Akira Hokuto did. So that's probably why Dave got them confused. Uh Uh-huh. So there you go. Yes. So Dave was right. But he wasn't right. He and was you were wrong, but you weren't wrong. Well, no, no, no. He was pr- – I was wrong that he was – he got the name wrong because, you know, she wasn't around long. So it's not like it was a name I was familiar with. But I pulled up cage match, at least from results they have there. The Hokuto injury is like a week or two after the last match they have for Asa. Uh-huh. So See, he presumably he confused the tombstone for with Asa because they both got hurt around the same time. Yeah, I was going to make a joke of what are the odds of having two people break their necks taking that move at the, around the same time, but I guess they did. I don't know if it was both from the same move, but I'm guessing they both had major injuries because Asso never wrestles again. Yeah. Who knows? Anyway, back to Mexico. Arena Nakapan for Promotionis Moreno on December 2nd. We have Mr. Seed. And Rodolfo Ruiz over Acero and Baby Casas, the future Felina. India Azteca and La Marquesa over La Serenita and Reina Gallegos. Emilio Chavez Jr., Tony Arce and Volcano over Asai, Hata, and Naoki. Asai, Yoshihiro Asai. Hata, Hirokozu Hata, and Naoki is Naoki Sano. All okay. the, the, those guys from uh, Japan here on. Uh, their learning excursion, so to speak. Well, okay. Asai, though, was never actually sent on excursion, right? He graduated, and then they were like, we're not hiring you. Wasn't it that? Didn't he go to Mexico on his own? Well, he's here with New Japan guys. So, I mean... Yeah. Take that for what it is. I mean, these are all New Japan guys. Uh, no, of course. And it makes sense that they're working in Alcopan because that has the UWA affiliation at this point. UWA is still the main New Japan Mexican partner. Um, but I believe he went on his own. That was always my understanding. And in the main event, Dos Caras, Kung Fu, and Viano Tesoro over Luis Mariscal, Satanico, and Scorpio. 
Then we have a UWA branded show at Pistorino Revolution, December 3rd. Aspache Negro and Ray Cobra over Bronctis and Cosmos. Black Man and Viano One over Comboy and Perverso. Anibal and Kotokun Lee over Chaos and Zondakan in what was called a forgettable match. And El Tejano and Viano, Viano Two over El Signo Negro Navarro by disqualification with Signo Fal Tejano in a bloody match. Hmm. Tijuana. Auditorio Municipal de Tijuana for the Moras for WWE on December 6th. Centeno Uno and Demonio Negro over one against Destinador and Pequeño Robin. El Caballon, Genghis Khan, and Tornado Negro against Teher, Rumble Star, and Rey Mysterio Sr. Tori Gonzalez and Zaita Oriental against Genesis and Monte Cabanario. And then our main event, Io de Santo, Io de Black Shadow, and Kendo went against Estudiante, El Ninja, and Rudy Reña, where Estudiante apparently turned Rudo on the... Well, he apparently turned Rudo. He's on the Rudo side, so I guess he already turned. So there you go. So, uh... Yeah, I guess apparently means that wherever they got the results from, there was no indication of how he had turned. Yes, so... So yeah, so there's the uh, Lucha here, as uh, we ran that the other North America, and... Uh, no, um, Toreo card here for a week. So at least you know, we have magazines in here. Yeah, results magazines in heaven. Wait, El Ninja Heat in Tijuana? Would that be Umberto Garza Jr.? <sighs> it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, at, in this era, there was a lot more movement between Tijuana and the other parts of northern Mexico, right? I mean, guys were going different places, yeah. Because, I, I mean, we know that there was a lot of movement between Tijuana and Juarez, so I guess it would make sense that you might have movement back and forth with Monterey, too, right? On the local scenes? Uh, possible. Very possible. Yeah, I'm double-checking Luchawiki to see if there's any other El Ninja. Uh, wait, no, that's right. It's not Humberto Garza Jr., it's Mario Segura. I, I always forget that part. But yeah, it might not be the same Still, again, might not be the same one. The way Lucha goes. Right, right, right. It could be a different... Especially 80s Lucha. Well, yeah. we don't know all the gimmicks and who's doing what. So. Well, an 80s regional Lucha, especially. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how many people in these results in Lucha still work either occasionally or semi-regularly. I mean, sort of like the guys you would expect, but... It's always fun to see these like mid '80s results and still see, you know, Terry Satanico, Negro Navarro. Oh, Negrocas still wrestles. Um, Santo will wrestle on occasion. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, some of these guys are still yeah. doing. Well, hey, if we're gonna, I mean, talk about these results, hell, uh, Ultimo Dragon still wrestles. I mean, so but he had all of his his long breaks, so he's kind of, kind of different. Solar still wrestles, so uh, yeah, yeah. So these guys still still go, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ultimo had his breaks, but he also does it with a dead arm. Yeah, I mean, not quite a dead arm. It's not Magnum TA, but you know what I mean. Yeah. All right, let's go to the territories and other indies. At this point in time in, in U.S. wrestling. And we start with one of those other indies, Savoldi's ICW. The Moon Dogs, Larry Latham and Bill Smithson, are now in ICW. Bruiser Brody is now in. 
Tony Atlas and Iron Sheik appear to be working here pretty much full-time and aren't even talked about in world-class anymore. Sheik also has some WWA dates in Indiana against former U.S. Olympic wrestler star Greg Wojcikowski. Sheik and Atlas are feeding for the ICW title, and when Sheik wins, he'll probably be challenged by Bob Backlund. Backlund doesn't wrestle for ICW yet, although everyone assumes he eventually will. Tag champions Mike Kalua and Tom Brandy, that job, are feuding. It appears that it appears an improbable breakup just after Christmas with Kalua turning heel. Also headed to ICW are the Invaders from Puerto Rico. Yeah. I mean, all these guys are coming into ICW and working shots. And, uh, yeah, I've, been, I've done a lot of uh, newspaper research with ICW stuff involved in it lately. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're a very healthy group at this point in time, running uh, a lot in Maine, of course, and other various uh, New England states. And, um, yeah, they're, they're doing pretty well here, considering. And it's one of the periods where they actually seem to be committed to shooting TV. Yes. As opposed yeah, to plan, just piecemealing it together. And the plan was for Backlund to come in, but he never did. Well, He doesn't wrestle again until he works for, from, for UWF. Not for a match, no. Is this the era that Les is doing the TV? No, this is after this. No, this no, is no. when it starts. Okay. Who is it? It's uh, Bob, not Bob Dow, the guy before Bob Dow with the mustache. Um, him and Brian Bristol, right? Brian Bristol, yep. No, but who's the older guy? I can't remember the guy. other guy. Well, okay, since this is not, I mean, it's Savoldi, it's not rooted in time, and this is the closest we'll get. Um, I would like to play something that was not ever on the internet until recently, but is one of my favorite terrible things after, ever since we're talking about Backland. Do you know where I'm going with this, Chris? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is the angle they shot to try to heat up a potential Backland Sheik match in Savaldi Land. Of course, it has the world class theme Savaldi pre roll because it's on the Savaldi YouTube. <coughs> Wrestling fans, we interrupt our normal weekly broadcasting. We will be going via satellite directly to the home of Bob Backlund. <laughs> Bob, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah, Mario. Geez, you're surely welcome uh, into our home. How's the wrestling business going? Well, Bob, what how's, I, uh, how's your family, just, by the way? Just a minute, Wife Bob. What, children okay? When I contacted you about Bob, as I had talked to you earlier on the phone, and you welcomed us to your home to watch this tape. Yeah, it was hey, great to have you here anytime. Tape the studio, please? Bob, there's something here we think you should really take a look at. Can you please roll the tape in the studio, please? Can you see us, Bob? Yes, I can. Okay, can you, can you see the Sheik on your screen? I sure can. Let's listen to Steve Butt. He's not one of my favorite people. Steve Butt? Steve Butt? I don't think it's actually Steve Butt, but that's what it sounded like. Um, and for some reason, this says 1985, even though it's definitely 1987. Um, yes, yes. I mean, you can tell just by the state of Sheik's GH gut. Well, the fact that he's in WF in 1985, too. <laughs> well, that too, yes. Um, also, I love Backlund's I have an inner ear monitor pantomiming. Yeah. You have for quite a long time and a lot of dispute, a lot of questions how you achieved the Please championship belt in the WWF. I'm listening, I can hear it. In, here in America, here in America, we have only two ways of getting the belt, uh -huh. by submission uh -huh. or by a pin. You didn't do it either way, and that's not the American way. 
Due to conditions beyond our control, we lost both audio and video. Let's return to our normal broadcasting, and we will keep you updated on this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Isn't that one of the most wonderful things you've ever seen? That's actually a callback to what we started the show with. The, the Sheik paid off yeah. Arnold Skoland. That's what Sheik says. <laughs> the funny thing. They're creating, their, they're creating their own angles here. <laughs> with a WWF road agent who will never appear there at the center of it. <laughs> and, and since this is topical, since it's the Sheik and Backland, when... Uh, when Wales beat or when Iran beat Wales the other day in the World Cup, the, there's a clip that went viral that uh, there was a Wales fan being interviewed and he said something to the effect of, "This is the biggest day for Iranian sports since the Iron Sheet beat Bob Backlund for the World Wrestling <laughs> Federation title." I don't see the lie there. <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, there's Bix's uh, local independent group, ICW, there at the time. So, one of his local independent groups. He had other ones around this time, too, but there you go. Now, my local independent group at this time, Southern Chancellor Russell from Georgia. It's a new outfit being run by Jerry Blackwell with Tommy Rich's lead babyface and Dick Slater's lead heel. They'll be doing TV tapings at Miss Kitty's Saloon in Marietta, Georgia, and we'll be trying to syndicate the show in Georgia alone and run only the Georgia towns and forget about running the Omni. They they didn't never ran the Omni on their own, but they did supply talent for a show at the Omni. Let's just say that. Um, and yet they they stayed in Georgia, although they dipped across the state line in Chattanooga. Chattanooga had their TV for sure. I mean, um, it, it, don't people around there basically consider Chattanooga to be more Georgia than Tennessee in some ways anyway? I mean, ask the few folks of Chattanooga. That's what they tell you. But yeah, in a way. But uh, but yeah. So um, that's what they were doing. Joe Pettis, Stephen Ferguson, this week is doing play by play on a TV show, and Dave believes their first taping was going to be held on December fourteenth, which it was. Um, this is see what this kind of is though is Blackwood already been running as AWA Southern Championship Wrestling Georgia, but this is a new version of that without the AWA branding. So, so when did is, that start? That started in summer 87. Yeah, oh. that, that branding. But yeah, so now they've dropped that completely. They're just on their own deal. Now, wait, I was, thought I thought Deep South was who supplied talent to the UWF show. Not they did. Southern. Yeah, they did. But so who did Southern supply talent show. to? Excuse me. Oh, God. I can't remember. It was something. Um, there was talk of Gordon Sully doing their announcing as well, but Dave's not sure about that. He didn't. Dave would think between Continental Person this week and the new global wrestling promotion in Florida, that Sully would have enough announcing to keep him happy. Yeah, that's what he had. So, 
Uh, this group will also do talent exchanges with Global in Florida and with Kim Mantel running world class. More on that in a little bit. There will be some t- some there as well, since there's a relationship between Mantel and Pedicino. And there's been talk of the Von Erichs, Jerry Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, Alperez, Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, and maybe even some of Giant Baba's wrestlers from Japan working here. But we'll see how it turns out. Are you just going to say Giant Baba every time now? <laughs> it's just the way it is now. Um, I mean, there's a relationship with all Japan and and Blackwell's group because a lot of uh, the foreigners going to 88 are associated with Blackwell and Brody because Brody is a uh, is is there as one of the top guys in the promotion. So there's a, there's a big crossover in 88 with Southern and all Japan, absolutely. Besides competing with Crockett in Georgia, they also have competition from other smaller independents in the Deep South promotion, which has been going on TV and bad-mouthing both Crockett and Pedicino on their television. Dave thinks they made some remarks about Pedicino's weight, and Deep South announced that Rock Hunter, awful by the way, was talking about JCP and actually said Ric Flair and Ron Garvin have some of the best matches in the world, but said that Dusty Rose is a fat slob and a disgrace to wrestling. <laughs> And the thing about the Pedicino stuff is Joe Pedicino used to be the lead announcer for Deep South and was heavily involved with that promotion. Mm-hmm. But there was a falling falling out. And uh, he went with Blackwell. Yep. And I'm... Deep South Deep South left Pedicino's block and went to uh, Channel 69 on their own deal. Yeah. And uh, if I remember how Jody Hamilton described it in his book... It's him in a wig as Patasino? Is the skit? Yeah. And I vaguely I for- remember this. I forget who plays Bonnie, but the main thing they do with Bonnie, at least as he described it, was they like pancake a ridiculous ma- amount of makeup on her face. <laughs> well, Bonnie was a southern woman, and southern women there definitely did that heavily. So Yeah. Based on what we know about Rock Hunter, do you think the reason he particularly didn't like Dusty was he thought Dusty was black? <laughs> well, they have a long history together, so I'm sure there was some some stuff over the years because Rock and the Assassin was uh, was aligned for many years, mm. and uh, Dusty and Assassin, of course, had their their feud in different places. So I'm sure there was something going on there, but uh, but I mean, yes, this is the same Rock Hunter refused to wrestle. Who was it? Thunderbolt Patterson because he was black. Uh, yes, there was, uh, there was some stuff going on there. And Rock Hunter, I mean, he hadn't been in the wrestling business for years until, uh, Deep South started up. Yeah, he had been gone. His last run was in Georgia in 1980 with, to imagine, uh, Ivan and Lexi And the famous Ether Angle on TV with Tony Alex and Kevin Sullivan. And further wrestling wars, WATL in Atlanta won't be running UWF or Power Pro anymore since Crockett and Pedicino are at odds. Not sure whose choice it was to pull the show. Well, like it fucking matters. Because <laughs> you know, at this point in time, UWF and Power Pro are about to become Crockett TV, whereas it's the version of Pro and Worldwide. The last. Um, I think it's our week. The last standalone shows you have for Power Pro is early December. Yeah, it's maybe our week in, in particular. No, I'm pretty sure from what I've seen in the past, the first weekend of December is when it's just Pro and Worldwide. Uh, no, that's not no, no, because there's a t- there's TV tapings in uh, UWF territory right here during our week. Hmm. That so it's like the it's maybe the the, the third week of December, maybe it's before Christmas. 
But I remember at some point having like a bunch of like the the you know the super beta conversions uh, that a certain tape trader in Las Vegas uh, surfaced, and I remember it was everything from December. Was that? I mean, maybe maybe they were airing at a different schedule, and it was being bicycled in some way. I don't know, but. I'm fairly sure it was December. I mean, is it possible the shows in the territory just aired on the other TVs? All right, uh, I'm looking right now. Um, uh, Power Pro Wrestling from December 19th, 1987, is from uh, is a different deal than uh, what they did was they. Um, they taped them all at the same taping, and they had different branding. But yeah, I mean, you're right. In eighty, I mean, it happened in December, sometime in December. So, I don't know. Anyway, uh, also talk of Austin Idol heading in here. So, there's that. Austin Idol work in a lot of places in this time period. And now let's go to the reason why Mark Cole wanted to do this show. W-O-W. World Organization Wrestling. What a great name. Yes, this is the first time that they're talking about The Observer, basically. So Dave gives a little uh, background here. And Mark's going to come in with his background in just a minute. Uh, this group is based in Pensacola and is talking running shows in Nashville, where just got television. Memphis, Huntsville, Alabama, Greensville, Mississippi, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. They're talking about going in direct competition with Jeff Jarrett and Nick Jeff, Jeff Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett, and Nick Goulas is going to promote the cards in the Tennessee cities. Goulas was a promoter who was at war with Jarrett for years before Jarrett finally bought him out. Well, on that note, let's play a clip, shall we, from television during our week, where Nick Goulas is there at TV, being interviewed by one Christopher Love, Burt Prentice, who's a uh, host in the show here. So let's go to the clip. Gentlemen, earlier in the program, I told you I had a special guest here today, and special indeed. With me here is truly an honor, the Dean of Wrestling Promoters, the legendary Nick Goulas. And Nick, welcome to World Organization Wrestling. Chris, I'm glad to be here down here, and I'm glad to join the World Organization of Wrestling. I've known Rip Tyler for many years. He's one of the outstanding wrestlers. And I'm glad to be part of this organization. They've got some of the greatest talent in the country. I have promoted many matches going on 46 years. And I've seen tonight some of the best talent in the country right here. And I can say this. I'm going to bring this talent to Nashville, Chattanooga, Memphis, right. New Orleans, every place. We're going right. to bring it. New Orleans? Right. You're going to be promoting World Organization Wrestling World. all over the South. All over the stop. Wait a minute. All right, pause, 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 pause. All right, so now we have Don Fargo showing up with his fabulous Fargos, which are uh, Marcel Pringle and Pat Rose. Ken Timms. Ken Timms? Okay, because Marcel Pringle was one of them, too, at one point in time. Yeah, Marcel's uh, there, but this is Pat Rose and Ken Timms. So so Marcel replaced Timms, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that would make sense. All right, so so Tim's is here with Pat Rose, and Pat Rose has a bad thigh job. So let's go to uh, Don Fargo and Nick Goulas here chopping it up. Allie, let me tell you something 
You thought Jackie and Donnie Fargo were bad? Well, you're looking at bad. You're looking at the new fabulous Fargos. They are returning where you ran us out, and we're coming into your area, Pally, and we're going to strut Pally. all over Tennessee, all over Alabama. We are going to strut to the ring and from the ring because you are looking at the new fabulous ones. Now, what do you think about that, Pally? Pally, I've known him for many years. He is an outstanding wrestler. And I'll tell you this, he is the originator of the Fargo strut. He is the best. I know all the great fans in Nashville, Birmingham, Chattanooga, Memphis. They're happy because Nick Coolis is back, huh? I'm glad to be back, Chris, and I'm glad to be part of the world organization. We're, we're glad to have you here, Nick, to a great future. Thank you. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Nick All Coolis, right. There you go. One of the greatest wrestling promoters of all time. And I bet you one thing, Nashville, Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Louisville, Kentucky, Birmingham, Alabama, is going to be on fire once again because Nick Gullis is back in the promoting business with World Organization Wrestling in the ring now. I, what a foursome this is. A fabulous Fargo what a, with Bob five, Holly. So, but listen to right, the music. So Bob, a young Bob Holly's in there with, with, a, great, uh, with a great mustache. Yes. And his Bret Hart gear. And his Bret Hart gear. And you got Pat Rose and Ken Thames here, Don Fargo, and on the floor, Tojo Yamamoto. So, um, so you have some interesting, interesting names here. Um, Dave mentions real quick in the area of the Fabulous Fargos, Ken Thames, Pat Rose, Bob Holly, a muscular guy managed by veteran Don Fargo, Rex Rogers, a six foot ten green guy. Plus Pat Tanaka, Paul Diamond, the Batten Twins, Mr. Olympia, David Haskins, Big Bubba, Boss Sweet Tan, the Great Coquina, Son of Sika, and others. All right, Mark. So you have a list here of talent and stuff that you um, have seen and watched the TV, which pretty much the whole complete run of '87 TV is up on uh, YouTube on the Armstrong Alley channel. So uh, go ahead, talk about WOW. Yeah, this is a promotion I probably had never heard of before or only had heard of in passing reading old observers. But when, when Armstrong alley put the, the first batch of stuff that he got this year up, this became uh, like one of my favorite promotions that he had on the, on there. It was like this and the Austin idol 93 stuff. And then the Texas stuff with Gary Hart and Bill Mercer. So, We've got like six months worth of this TV. And so the promotion had started in like late May, early June of 87. And it's being financed. It's based in Pensacola. This is basically the promotion started when uh, Continental moved more towards the Knoxville end and sort of stopped the running all of the small towns in the, the southern end of, the, of Continental. So this uh, promotion is being backed financially by Amatisuke Ueda, a.k.a. Mr. Ito. So I think we can guess where Mr. Ito is getting his money. Right, Bix? Well, didn't he have a restaurant or something by this point, too? He's living in America. Okay. So, okay, you know, so the restaurant's later. Um, so we're assuming that he has sponsors. Yes, legitimate. He's backed by a legitimate businessman, I think, is probably the way to go. 
and so it's being booked by Rip Tyler, who you know was a longtime star in that area. And one of the funniest things about this whole run of Continental is the interview segment that they do. It's called Rip's Corner, where Rip does like a Piper's Pit kind of deal. And the set is made to look at like a house, but it's like it's got a it's got a, a bench where they sit and do the interviews, and it's got like a painted on window. So it looks like a 1970s kids TV show. It looks like Captain Kangaroo. But it's Rip interviewing, you know, whoever is there. So Dave mentioned some of the people who are in the promotion at the, the time we're talking about in December. But this is a partial list of at least people that you may have heard of who went in and out of this promotion. Like this is in six months. So guys are constantly coming in, coming out probably working for Continental and, and other places. There's a few people who are there. Like we mentioned Bob Holly. Bob Holly is there the entire time of this tape of six. Well, this is when he broke in, he broke in at their school. Right. If you read, I went back and I looked at Holly's book and there's a section on this that he met up with, uh, he met Marcel Pringle and basically badgered him into training him. And that's like, yeah, when the school started. And so, yeah, so like, but like Bob is one of the few people who's there almost the entire time. Marcel's there almost all the time, but he fades in and out sometimes. And then Don Fargo is there almost the whole time, but he goes through like two or three different gimmick changes throughout the time. Now he's managing the, the Fargo's. Pat Rose was actually there when we start watching this stuff in June, but he's got a different gimmick. He's in some kind of heel stable with Bob Sweetan, who gets turned on by all these bad guys with terrible Ted. And then Bob Sweetan suddenly becomes like Mr. USA, flag raving kind of stuff like that. So among some of the people who were there, so you've got uh, the Coastal Connection, who are there like – rock and roll knockoff team. They come to the ring to girls, girls, girls. It's always funny to see which of these rock and roll express tag teams choose for their music, but they were using Motley Crue. So it's Chuck Baxter, who people may remember as a job guy in Memphis. Sean Baxter. Like, Memphis well, and Continental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's Chuck Baxter. He's, he's Chuck Baxter here. He later becomes Chuck, Chuck Sean Baxter. But he's the guy that has the gigantic poof of big 80s blonde hair. Mm-hmm. If, so he's there. Don Fargo's there. People who come in and out. Pat Rose is there at the beginning. I said, then he comes back later. Coquina and Samu come in and out. Um, they're local. They're local. And eventually, it's funny, Coquina actually eventually turns babyface, which is kind of weird. And he ends up feuding with, with uh, Uncle Fred. When once Bubba gets there later in the year that we heard him mention, uh, a guy named Honey Bear Harris, Ken Thames is there and comes back. There's a guy named Boris Krupov, who is one of the worst Russians you'll ever see because he does not even attempt to put on the Ivan Koloff style accent. He just basically comes out with his Canadian accent and says, "You know, I'm great. I'm from Russia." Blah blah blah, because he's feuding with. Bob Sweetan at the time. Tom Boogaloo Shaft is there for a while. Jake Donovan. Uh, Jerry Stubbs comes in to try and collect the bounty on Bob Sweetan. He's there for a while, then leaves 
then later comes back as Mr. Olympia, and of course now he's babyface because that's the way it usually works with Jerry Stubbs. Ricky Gibson is there for a couple weeks, feuding with Marcel Pringle. Mad Dog Boyd is there for like two shows. Adrian Street's there for two or three shows. Ken Wayne is there for a while. Um, someone who mentioned we mentioned earlier in the program, oh wait a second, Rotten. Ken Wayne and Bob Sweetman in the same territory, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it gets better. Well, at least Grizzly isn't there. So no, but it gets better. It was more. It was well uh, the announcer. <laughs> yeah. So. So then, yeah. So well, we uh, don't know anything specific about that person, so be careful. <laughs> so uh, someone we mentioned earlier, Rotten Ron Stars here for a while. Norval Austin is here for a while. Mike Boyette. That was another one. Because <laughs> this is this is after uh, UWF. You have the UWF closed. So long about Octo- October, or no, in September. At the end of September. Uh, the announcer had been a guy named C.J. Whitmore, who was just sort of a generic guy with a mustache, and his color, and, yeah, yeah, and his color guy was a guy named Papa Rock, who appeared to be some sort of like local guy that I never heard of. But anyway, so in the middle of September, Chris Love shows up, uh, who, who we heard just a second ago, doing the announcing, and has a new co-host named Gino, who again had never been on the show before. We get to October, and we get we get a video, which was the first appearance of Nick Goulas on this pro. It was a videotape with Nick and George being interviewed by young Kenny Bolin, talking about how they're going to be working with this group. And we learned what Nick and George have been up to. We learned that George, in addition to wrestling a couple times a month, is also a high school basketball referee. So if you imagine how bad George Goulas is as a wrestler, you wonder – how bad of a ref he might have been. And we said we have Pet, Rose, and Ken Timms here as the fabulous Fargos. Two or three weeks earlier, before they were with Don Fargo, they were the fabulous, they were the natural blondes. And there's a great, the first week he comes out, he comes out holding up a t-shirt of, with the name of the hair salon where he got his hair done. So presumably that was a, a trade-off deal. And then the clip we played was from this week. Um, and then two weeks from now, Chris Love is gone, replaced by Rick Stewart. Wait a second. Cool breeze. <laughs> and, then in, and then in January, there's no Rick Stewart. So Rip, uh, so Rip Tyler has to do the announcing, saying that Rick Stewart will be back in a couple of weeks. And he apologizes for how bad he is as it, which is just great. He's like, you know, this isn't my job and I'm not good at talking, but I got to do this because presumably there's nobody left. He's Steve Kern in Florida, basically, after they get rid of Gordon Sully. Wait a second. You're telling me that the the longtime Kansas City announcer who's in the territory with Bob Sweetan had to leave abruptly? Okay. (laughs) Who had been in, in and out of that territory for years. Well, that too. He had because he had worked southeastern. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so by uh, the stuff that's up on Armstrong Alley ends at the beginning. It's like at the second week in January. So that's Holly's book says it lasts like two years. But again, that it could got, be what, wrestling. Well, well, they might not have had TV the whole time either. That's the thing. It really starts in '86. <laughs> there's there's stuff from '86. It's technically not WOW. But it's it's the same crew. 
it's a lot that's some familiar suspects at that time. And then it goes into May 88, May, June 88. So yeah, they go about two years total. Basically, if you want to count everything all together. So I would say it's, it's very, there's a lot of good stuff. And there's, like you said, this is a, an impressive list of names at least. Well, it gets better in 88. That's the problem. Well, especially the TV, the TV we have, does it, doesn't go into the, the time when they have their best roster. (laughs) Rock and roll express is their tag champions in 88. So yeah, yeah, rock and roll, rock and roll express and a bad company. I think have matches in, uh, under the WOW banner. It's such yeah, a because, weird. Because, Go ahead. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, Bad Company come in. This is like right after they left. They lost a loser release town in, in Memphis. So yeah. this is like where they are for a couple of weeks in between going to Memphis and going to the AWA. Oh, it's more than a couple of weeks though, because yeah, they're in there for longer. Okay, when. Because when World Class starts doing the open door policy in early 88, the, one of the first, if not the first, examples <clears throat> is bringing in Tanaka and Star as representing WOW. And just to give you a, a gist of 88, I'm looking at a card here from April in Pensacola. You got Hacksaw Higgins against Pat Rose, Mr. Olympia against Butcher Vashon, Rock and Rolls against Coquina and Samu. And the Batten Twins and Rip Tyler against Don Fargo, Bob Holly, and Ron Starr. So, um, I mean, that's April 88. Um, let's see here. So the last thing I have is May 3rd from Mobile at the fairgrounds. This is the last card I have on, on, on this file that I'm looking at. Wendell Cooley against Butcher Vashon. The Battens and Sean Baxter against Marcel Pringle, Pat Rose, and, and Spike Williams, whoever that is. Mr. Olympia defending the U.S. heavyweight title against Rotten Ron Starr. And then this is great. A boxing match at a main event. Leo Burke against Ron Starr. So they had a cast of characters and in, that, another, in, in the territory. So I just did some Googling. The July 4th, 88 Observer has an item saying that the Battens... Bob Holly, Sean Baxter, and Pat Rose are now all in Memphis because WoW had closed. So there you go. The promoter, I mean, that the, the guy that promotes here in my town, Cowboy Dennis Gale. He was a regular for WOW. Yeah, he's he's there for the first couple weeks. Uh, I mean, he's, he's their quote-unquote TV champion, I think, when the show starts. And yeah. the TV studio is, I believe, like in San Antonio, a converted grocery store, right? Yeah, and there's a feud in 88 between the Rock and Rolls and the team of Bob Holly and Ron Starr, which sounds interesting. Yeah, and uh, the wrestling school, according to the graduation card that's in Bob Holly's book, is the K K period Fabian School of Wrestling. (laughs) How original. But Ted Oates is in there. Some Kamala works a show. Well, he's listed. I mean, he actually worked. Uh, oh, so Bob's membership card is dated December 21st, 86, if that helps. All right. Um, yeah, just looking at a – hey, Scott Armstrong worked in February 88. That's interesting. Right there. Him and Sean Baxter, a tag team. Um, yeah, they're feuding with Pringle and Rose. 
Um, yeah, so I mean, there's Austin Idol in there, February of '88. Tug Taylor is in there in January '88. I guess he's feuding with Coquina. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting names in and out of that that territory or that that little outlaw. Yeah, skimming Holly's book, he says a year after we started running the weekend shows. Tyler and Sweet Tan were doing such good business that they decided to start doing house shows during the week as well. They wanted both me and Lenny, I forget who Lenny was, to quit our jobs and move to Pensacola to make sure we were at all the shows because he's in Mobile, right, is where Bob's from, I think. Yeah. Um, at 40 bucks a night minus travel, we weren't going to make any money, so we both refused, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, that ends up being the story of the next several years of Bob Holly's career that there are people who like him and want to do stuff with him, like Cornette and Smokey, but his welding job pays too well. Man, I don't blame him for shit. Huh? <laughs> Why would you leave your shoot job if it pays you better than what you would have made wrestling? Especially if you've been able to wrestle on the weekends strictly up to this point. Exactly. So uh, he's, probably, uh, he's, probably lucky, he's probably lucky he did not end up as the welder Bob Holly when he... <laughs> Instead of being Sparky Plug. Well, I mean, the the gimmick, though, even though the name obviously was stupid, the gimmick was that he was legitimately racing stock cars in Mobile. Yes. It was a legitimate hobby of his. Yeah. And uh, he also says someone was stealing money, and then uh, Ueda decided to pull the plug. Hmm. Well, I'm sure he didn't want his local businessmen friends to find out someone was stealing money. (laughs) Oh, no. All right, um, we go back to Dave here, as he talks about how Dave's told the TV production of this group isn't bad for independent. Talent's good for independent, and TV announcing is horrible. I mean, for it's so weird that this is a glorified wrestling school promotion, and yet they're trying to make a go of it as a full-time territory with bringing in Nick Goulas to promote towns and some fairly mainstream talent. It's... It, I don't think there's anything else really like WoW at, in the late territory era, is there? But the thing about Goulas is Goulas, had, he'd always been promoting. And and the thing is, in 87, he was promoting a lot with Jarrett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was Jarrett's promoter in uh, Florence, Alabama, and promoted other towns with Jarrett's talent. So that whole relationship's always been funny to me, because... I mean, sometimes they're hating each other, and sometimes they're working together. I believe Bo. I believe Bo has discussed this on past episodes of Between the Sheets. Yeah, I mean, it's just a funny relationship there. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're taping the TV in an old grocery store. So, I mean, it's uh, it's, it's they, have, they have the classic 1980s wrestling TV studio gimmick of hanging all the flags well around. yeah and then if you look on the on the on the announcer desk it's like it's the american flag and the japanese flag well <laughs> i wonder why well, well i was gonna say <laughs> i think i think from what we from the tv that we have i think there's only i've only seen one clip of mr ito actually wrestling on tv it was against holly like in like june or july of 87 but but Armstrong Alley is also missing a couple weeks around that time, so he may have been on more. But in all that time, there's only like one clip of him actually being on the TV show. I mean, I'm not sure where he may have been else elsewhere at that time, or just not working. 
Or back and forth in Japan. Or, yeah, that too. So. Uh, I, I just found a, a newspaper thing about Goulas in April 87 uh, presenting a show in, was it Smyrna, Tennessee, I guess? With Jared Talon. Yeah, it says Sheep Herders, the Dirty White Boys. Were there two dirty, wait, there were, were there dirty white boys in Memphis at that point? No. So he's augmenting with other talent. Okay. He's got, uh, it's Jimmy Powell and somebody else. Okay. Adorable Terry Adonis. Brickhouse yeah. Brown, parenthesis, top black mat star. Well. Two leading yeah. lady wrestlers plus much more. Yeah, he would do shows with his own talent, but he also would work with Jared's talent too. So he was doing all kinds of stuff. All right. Um, we have, do have a card here just to give you know a gist of what's going on during our week in Clarkston, Mississippi at Cedar Auditorium on December the 5th. We have Big Bubba against David Haskins. Marcel Pringle against Rex Rogers. Don Fargo and Pat Rose against Mr. Olympia and Bob Sweet Tan. Huggy Bear Brown against Bob Holly. Oh, gee, I wonder what color Huggy Bear Brown was. Probably the name. same uh, ethnic background as Black Stud Williams. Yes. And the Batten Twins against Bad Company, Tanaka and Diamond, and a 14-man, $5,000 blindfold battle royal. But just when you think you have Continental's got one competitor, they have two. Well, I mean, they're not a direct competitor necessarily. And the other one has an even better name than World Organization of Wrestling or WOW, because, Chris, it is? NASA and ASA. <laughs> they, uh, rent. I'll just say, it's funny. I asked Bo, I said, do you know who this is? And he's like, oh, it was so-and-so, so-and-so. And then he, I sent him the, the blurb. And he's like, oh, no, that's somebody else. So he thought it was like some Nashville group. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. It's like Nashville, so blah, 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 blah. But I was thinking, you know, if you had like an independent group and you like ran around Huntsville, NASA would be a, a fine and appropriate local name but to here's, run. Here's the thing. The reason why Bo's saying that is because this is somebody else. They're using That's the same it, using the same name that had been used because Nick Goulds was involved with that NASA in eighty six. <laughs> when they when they ran against Continental before in Birmingham at the Botwell. But anyway, the competing NASA had a show on uh, December the fourth and advertised Jerry Stubbs, Bill Ash, and Dino Manelli. Oh, Yes, and then this is after our week, but it's part of this, so I won't keep it in here. They came out December 13th and drew 150 fans. Heard the car was great and safe for television. That's bad company. The third bad company, my bad company here. And locally. the second one in the territory. Steve the Brawl Lawler and John Michaels beat Rock Regal and Nikki Leathers. Ted Oates retained the Georgia title. Goes to double count up with Mass Nightmare Ted Allen. Good match. Tommy and Johnny Rich beat Randy Rose and Jim Bryant by DQ and about Bill for the AWA tag titles. Dennis Conjure was a no-show in a good match. Paul Lee was there in DQ using the phone. The New York Dolls with manager Midnight Star beat Rock and Art Clancy. Bobby Jaggers over Ken Wayne in a bloody match where Wayne took good, great bumps. The Nasty Boys beat the Rock and Roll RPMs by DQ. Adrian Street beat the Mass Bama Bruiser in a main event bill for the Women's International Tag Bell. So the Lock and Luna, Luna Vachon, goes to double count out with Miss Linda and Bambi. What a show. <laughs> what a show yeah so you got like a mixture of, you got a mixture of people that are in Alabama that are not working for WOW or Continental and people from Blackwell's group and the Nasty Boys and the RPMs were not in Memphis at this point uh, they were there yeah they were there 
Oh, okay. So, That's yeah. interesting. So you got a potpourri. What town is this? Do you have any idea? It didn't say. It didn't say. But I'm, I think it's Birmingham, though. Okay. Also, like, right, that now. they have both a uh, Rock Regal and Rock Clancy. No, Rock and uh, Art Clancy. Oh, Rock is just so maybe Rock. So maybe Rock Regal working a double. Oh, eh. Who knows? Hey, who knows, indeed. All right, so now let's go to Continental Proper. There's going to be some reorganization in the Continental Office, but Dave didn't have complete details. Apparently, Robert Fuller is running the group now, and his brother Ron Fuller is going to open up a promotion in the same area. Sounds pretty strange to me. Um, probably sounds pretty strange because someone's just feeding Dave nonsense at this point. Yeah, but... And this is around when uh, David Woods buys the company, right? That's the thing, though. But yeah, but, so it will, but Ron opens up USA Wrestling. So he's going to open up something. It just won't be in that direct area. Well, because he's splitting up the territory. Yeah, Dave, see, that's what Dave doesn't know, Bix. See, that's what that, that's the whole thing. Dave's hearing things, but he's not hearing it all direct what it's supposed to be. But Robert wasn't booking at this point, was he? Yes. Oh, he was? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, 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 it you can make some sense out of this in hindsight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, Robert's booking. This is an era we don't have a whole lot of TV from, too. No. Uh, well, I know someone who has all the TV from this era, and it's been a pain to get him to do anything with it. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, yeah. And, uh, all right, December 3rd, excuse me, November 3rd in Birmingham was determined for a new Monte Carlo, made for TV squashes, which saw the Southern Boys beat the Golden Terror and the Panther, Alan Martin and her mask. Humongous won a handicap match. That's Sid. Uh, Rob Fuller and Jimmy Golden won a squash. And then the tournament opened up with Tracy Smothers pinning Jonathan Boyd. Humongous over Scott Armstrong in a matter of seconds. Dirty White Boy going to double count out with a bullet. Doug Furtis over Carl Stiles. Dr. Tom Pritchard over the Black Assassin. Bill Tab by DQ. Steve Armstrong with no contest. Jimmy Golden, Rob Fuller, and Tracy Smothers interfere. And all four eliminated from the tournament because the rules were that if anyone who interferes is eliminated from the fray. Interesting. Then uh, Dutch Mantel and Winokuri to end the first round, while Doug Furness and Danny Davis in advance with buys. Second round saw Dr. Tom go to double count with Humongous, Dutch over Danny Davis, and then Dutch pinned Doug Furness when Jimmy Golden threw salt in Furness's eyes to win the Monte Carlo. Larry Hamilton showed up on crutches and still built his U.S. Junior Champion, although this wasn't an national television. He actually suffered the injury, a broken leg, and a car wreck. Apparently Big Bubba left for WOW also before he got here. Yeah. Bubba was supposed to go to Continental, and then he went to WOW instead. And why did he go from the mainstream promotion to the... Uh, what? <laughs> Probably because people from Memphis were were in WOW that he had been with. I like guess. Tanaka and Diamond. Mongolian Stomper and Buddy Land, they were both no-shows in Birmingham. Somehow with the latter, Dave can't be surprised. I mean, should you really be surprised about the former either? <laughs> yeah, Stomper wasn't working. Where's uh, wasn't working anywhere? Although he's about to start working a lot in '88. So yeah, when USA opens up. Yeah, and so does Landau. <laughs> so anyway, wild times to come. Now, I just like the uh, the fact that the tournament was for a Monte Carlo. It's like, tell me this is 1987 without telling me this is 1987. Well, I mean, they had the, uh, the Continental did the IROT tournament. That's what I mean. Uh, it's it's yeah. just, it's sort of like the the card du jour. 
Well, they you love know, tournaments over but over different things for money. Well, Cars, fans. Mink coats. Uh, mink coats. Oh, yeah. They definitely love to have different types of tournaments. Absolutely. All right, let's go to Memphis. November 35th, the Men's South Coliseum saw Jerry Bryant beat Carl Fergie by disqualification. Big Lou Winston beat the Black Prince, Brickhouse Brown, when Emily Arthur tripped Brickhouse from outside the ring. Bobby Jaggers over Brian Nobbs. Bruce Brothers, Ron and Don over the Rock and Roll PMs by DQ. Midnight Rockers over Tijo Khan and a Japanese tag partner who Dave didn't know. Oh, it's even better than that, Chris. What? Who do you think this is? I'll, I'll give you the hint that it's not a Japanese wrestler, even anyone built as a Japanese wrestler. Um, I don't know. This is the only known actual appearance of Mark Gulin's protege, Yomamba the Jungle Savage. Yo, Yomamba! There you go. Yes. There oh, you go. Yes, or Yomaba, as he is on. Uh, See, I went with Dave's results. Crossing history. Because mine has Yomamba. Okay, yes. Uh, I, wonder, I, the, I wonder actually if if Dave got it or other people got it as Yomaba, and that's why it says Yomaba on Jason Campbell's site, and they thought it was Japanese. I, I guess. Building the Billy Travis with WQ with. Hector Guerrero and Manny Fernandez and Jerry Law and Jeff Jarrett beat Steve Kern and Jimmy Jeff Funk by DQ before around 4,000 fans. In Jackson, Tennessee, on December 6th, in front of 2,000, saw Memphis Vice over uh, Black Prince and Carl Fergie when Emily Arthur interfered. The Rockers over Bobby Jackson and T.J. O'Connor by DQ. Hector and Manny over Dundee and Travis and Lawler and Jarrett over Kern and J.J. Funk. The promotion stuff about bringing in the Fantastics. That doesn't happen. Probably because the last time they left them high and dry in Memphis. Well, and also because Dusty's about to go to Cornette to ask him who he wants the Midnights to work with. Yeah, but that don't they don't go in until March. Is it, it's that late? February, I thought March. it was earlier. February, March, yeah. Well, they start airing the vignettes. You know, that's what you're thinking about, the vignettes, but they actually don't show up until, like, February or March. And well, the Clash the is in March... Though, yeah. isn't it? So they're not they're not there in January. I can tell you that for sure. So it's, it's early, early, earliest it is is February. I'm Black Prince, because on well, well, you can keep on. You're right. It's the earliest stuff I can see is March. Yeah, wow. I know what I'm talking about. Black Prince and Don Bass are gone, but Fergie may be staying in the prelim role. No, he's going to be gone too. Although Brickhouse is coming back, and Don Bass always is in and out too. Hector Guerrero is very entertaining on television, but some feel he's so funny in his interviews, the audience laughs at him and doesn't boo him, that he's not getting over in a heel role, although he's over as a personality. Yes, that is the truth. <laughs> Hector was so fucking funny in this role, and it's like, wow, what a revelation. Because he had never been able to cut loose before like this. Because Chavo, when him and Chavo were together, Chavo was always the alpha. And here's Hector by himself as a heel and is able to cut loose and be crazy. A total revelation. And then he goes to work for you for Fuller at USA and the same thing with Soli. They did with Lance Russell. My favorite is, of course, the, the stuff with the salsa. Hmm. I mean, it, it, and, and he has Lance Russell in the pinata. I mean, it's hilarious shit. Hector's awesome. This is a, one of the greatest runs of his career is in this era right here. Can't recommend that highly enough, watching Hector there. 
And you can see where Eddie gets got yes. some of his stuff. From. I was about to say the same thing. <laughs> and there's definite, you know, correlation there. Well, Hector's the brother who was closest to Nash. Yeah. Dave's had mixed reaction to Mark Galeen, who's a new guy in the business. Seems green today, but some folks think he's got potential to be a decent manager. Well, he did have potential to be a decent manager. He was also way too tall to be a manager in this territory. Because we're about to find out. On our week of television, Mark Galeen decides he wants to make an offer to the Midnight Rockers. We're very receptive to his offer. Most of the chagrin of one Jerry DeKean Lawler. Let's go to the clip. Here and there. Talking about a match that took place yes. yeah, in the past. In the past, I was I was viewing the case. Okay. I saw it. I could not believe it when they told me. When they told me the card had lost, I said either these men were very underhanded or they were extremely talented. After viewing the tapes, I have decided the latter. These are very special wrestlers, and I intend to make them my own. Well, I know the match you're talking about. You're obviously talking about the Midnight Rockers. His accent sounds like when Alec Baldwin was the mimic on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that's the thing that I, I just I can't get over with Gulen here. It's so over the top. If he doesn't do the accent, it's not nearly as over the top, though. No. But I think that's kind of what he's going for, though, too, which is well, the, yes. the issue. I he wants like- to be over the top. I do like, though, that he does almost like a – like it's like a key change in a song in his promos, and that's the one thing I really actually like about his promos. But anyway. Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty, certainly an outstanding. I have an offer for them. I have an offer that they will find it very difficult to refuse. Well, I don't know what uh, kind of an offer you're talking about. Where this is not swap shop here. We got a wrestling show. What do you got in your Lance, mind? We get at the price we're talking, this most certainly is not swap shop. Gentlemen, <laughs> you are a pair of the finest wrestlers I have seen in my entire experience. And I want both of you to know that I am prepared to offer you no! a cash bonus to sign with the House of Gulen. Now I'm talking cash in hand bonus just for your signatures to come work with me under the rules of the House of Gulen. Is it how much cash are you talking about? Hey, I don't care. Holy shit, is Marty wasted? <laughs> Gee, you think? Coming on a Saturday morning live from a Friday night of action? Just how much cash are you talking about? <laughs> Let's hear that again. How much cash are you talking about? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're not, Sean... even, they're not even wearing the, like, Saturday morning TBS issue sunglasses. No, Sean's wearing a leather, well, kind of a leather jacket with no shirt. And is touching himself. <laughs> hey, I don't verify this guy. I don't know anything about him. He just walked out at our first meeting with The only Martin. verification I need is the cash. Wait, so this is his first appearance? No. Then what's Lance saying? 
Lance doesn't trust him. That's what he's trying to say. Oh, he's he means this. Uh, we only just met this guy. Is what he means. Yeah, because okay. I mean he's already been there. Yeah, because yeah. Tisha has already been in your mom. That's why I was confused. Yeah. Okay. These gentlemen are interested. We're talking a five thousand dollar cash bonus for your signature. Last week we came out here and we said uh, the professional wrestling, nobody gives you anything you have to work for. Now this guy's offering us $5,000. Huh, what do 1987 Shawn Michaels and 1997 Shawn Michaels promos have in common? <laughs> Henry's having a good time. Yeah. That's a lot of money, but it ain't worth it. Sometimes when it sounds that simple and that easy, it's not always that easy. And he's talking about $5,000. Wait. What price is it going to take to get you? I will have you name your price. You say nothing is ever given. Nothing is ever free. Your signatures tonight, gentlemen, are going to mean a great deal of money. How much money are we talking about? They said it wasn't worth it. I think that gets across the sentiment. I believe that we have established that these gentlemen are interested in my offer. We are merely quibbling over cash. Oh, well, you know, like we said before, uh, you know, nobody's ever given us anything. We've always had to work for everything we've ever gotten. Now this guy's offering, he's offering us some money. I'll tell you what, we do have a price. I guess for the fifteen thousand dollars. You're talking about fifteen thousand dollars a piece, and what are you? You're proposing that what you take over their affairs? Is that what it is? That is right. They will wrestle under the rules of the House of Gulen. I will take care of all management affairs. You will answer only to me, gentlemen. Seven thousand five hundred dollars a piece, cash <laughs> on the line. Yeah, wasn't he saying it was five grand a piece? Yes, now he's up to seventy five hundred. <laughs> I don't think that's what they. I don't think that's what they meant, Mark. Yeah, they said. They, yeah, they said fifteen thousand each, and then he said seventy five hundred each. He's he's dickering. That's what he's doing. So let's, let's see how this plays out. Ten thousand a piece. Realize that you would never come into a neighborhood such as this with $20,000 in one's pocket. Gentlemen, I am prepared to pay you $10,000 a piece for your signature. Now, this offer is not going to remain open forever. No, you must understand this is a limited time. You must sign with me. Should I use 2D when I order? <laughs> hey, at least they met halfway. Yeah. God bless yeah, anyone who listens and gets that joke, by the way. This is a classic, uh, like watching uh, American Pickers or uh, Daddy's Dicker on a show like that on the History Channel. They're they're meeting halfway here, and it's the same year as uh, Wrestling Spices, right? Yes. Well, you know, if I would say if Waller was here, he'd be the well. It's like well, you just mentioned him. So here he is. <laughs> well, I was going to say Lawler would do the. Would you do this for a dollar? No. Would you do this for a million dollars? <laughs> yes, now we're just haggling. We know what you are. We're just haggling over the price. Well, here's Lawler. So let's see what happens here with the king. Right. Let's say one word. If you guys would, uh, Lance just said, 
we, me, Lance, you guys, we don't know this guy from Adam. He comes out here with his goofy accent. I don't know where he's from. And he's wondering, you can hear the people saying, you know, don't listen to this guy. I mean, he's a jerk. All managers are jerks. We know, do we know that or not, huh? Don't put your finger on me, pal. You understand? I am not talking money for you. I've made for you. no difference to you whatsoever. What are you doing out here? I'm talking business with these gentlemen. What I'm doing out here is I'm trying to tell these guys that they are a successful tag team. They're already the Southern Tag Team Champions. What do they need? A leech like you hanging on their back trying to cipher money from them. What's that How like? dare you? You can't... To cipher money from them? <laughs> Siphon money from them. <laughs> I think that's what he's supposed to say. Siphon like, games, yes. Talking business with me. They are talented men. They know they're talented. Now, Let them make up their own minds. He's on it easy. First of all, King, he's talking about things right. We've been handling things for years on our own. We don't need you coming out here getting in our business deal, okay? So let's let us handle our own business, all right? Yes. Yes. Back off, Jerry. We're big boys now. We don't need any help from you, all right? Yes. These men are not only talented wrestlers, they're intelligent as well. Cash on the line, right here. A week from today, I will have the cash on the line to be presented to each of you when you put your signatures on my contract. After week after week, we've given these people money, we've given them diamond rings. And to be perfectly honest, they haven't given us back anything in return. Listen, my man, you bring the contract. Sean is out of it. He has no idea where any of the cameras are. <laughs> yeah. Back next week, you bring the money and the Rockers will have their names on that contract. Yeah, yeah, it seems to. That's for a living fact. We're going to take time. I'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> Lance disappointed. So what's uh, what's ten thousand each in the old uh, inflation calculator? Oh, let's see. I'll do the I'll do the one that's specific to the month too. Uh, nine. Hold on. It's not doing what it's supposed to. There we go. All right. So ten. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, almost twenty six grand. Because it seems like we're starting to get into the era of wrestling where you start getting more ludicrous amounts as opposed to more realistic. Well, we talked about earlier, Ted DiBiase wanted to pay seven figures for the WWF title. You know, and he wants to manage these guys for only 10 grand a piece. And they're already <laughs> champions. So it sounds like it's actually not that bad a deal from his his point of view. Well, the original for 5000 <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, there's the, it doesn't last long. Gulen as a manager, I think the only thing, if, if I don't know, he doesn't even go in 1988 as a manager. No, he only he only lasts as a manager for like a month. Rockers stay heel though, but uh, yeah, they're not with him, but maybe a week or two, basically. So yeah, some investment on his part, huh? <laughs> How much do anyway. we think he invested in your mom? Bro? <laughs> yeah. Bill Dundee's up in a wrestling school near Nashville. <laughs> 
Well, it seems like he already he did since Mark Gullin is there. Yes. Mark Gullin's one of his students, so I'm confused. Well, maybe it wasn't an official school yet. I guess. Ever, was Terry Sims in, around yet, or is that after this? Uh, he's, I mean, he's one of the students, so he's going to be part of it, yeah. Yeah, Terry, Terry was at the school proper. Um, yeah. Well, Sean Baxter was a Dundee guy too, right? Well, he had been working before then, but he was there. Tom but, Morton, of course. I didn't realize until Bo told me a couple of days ago that he's the son of Leon Baxter. I never put the two together. Mm-hmm. That's mentioned. That's actually mentioned in Memphis commentary. Yeah. Um, a Rams station, Mississippi, is contracted to do play-by-play live each Monday night from Mississauk Coliseum on Lance Russell on commentary. They will get the station for those of you in the area who are interested. I don't think he ever ends up saying what station it is, does he? Or maybe no. he does. He doesn't. Oh, right. I, I don't. Rem- I don't remember him actually doing that. No, but that I- did happen. It did happen. Apparently, this rookie Bruce Brothers team is from Florida. And a few members of the musical group Sawyer Brown have something to do with them. I'll say. I'm sure in a few years, <laughs> Sawyer Brown will love being described as just having something to do with the guys with the Nazi tattoos. <laughs> well, I mean, there's still a relationship there. So uh, I think it matters to them. Oh. <laughs> so hey, when money's involved, people look past a lot of things. Speaking of money, world-class championship wrestling. Probably the biggest story of our week here. The biggest story is that Fritz von Erica sold the world-class promotion to a group headed by Ken Mantell. Now, we've heard several different stories as to who owns the controlling interest and exactly what percentage Mantell owns. Dave's heard Mantell owns either 30 or 51%, but newspaper reports in Texas all said that Fritz is out completely, and Dave does know that Mantell is the one signing the checks. And the guy who signed the checks is the one ultimately in charge of running the wrestling company. Kerry Kevin still on a sizable amount of stock in the company, which ensures their major push. Mantell also operates Wild West Wrestling, and for the president, is actually planning on running both groups, which is wild, since they compete with one another in the same region of Texas. Obviously, in the long run, that isn't feasible, especially as the poor draw market as Dallas has become. So expect Wild West to shortly merge with world class. Ken Mantell's fingerprints are already evident with the world and with world class with the return of folks like Missing Link, Wild Bill Irwin, the Freebirds, Iceman King Parsons, now called Blackbird, because he's aligned with Gordian Roberts. From these reports, it appeared that it was Fritz who contacted Mantell about selling, so apparently he wanted out of the business. Dave's guess is he could see the national tour getting the plug pulled on it. Most of the dates have been canceled already, and knew full well he was dead in Texas. In addition, the February 1980 issue of Penthouse Magazine is going to do a story on Von Erics. And while Dave really doesn't know the details of it, he does know Fritz is very worried about it, and it won't be painting a favorable portrait of him at all. As for Ken Mantell, he deserves credit for being the booker when World Class was in his heyday in 83 and 84. He did a great job then. However, when we went for UWF from mid-86 to mid-87, he basically repeated the same angles and gimmicks that fans already seen in those markets. Since World Class was syndicated in most major markets, UWF was running. The angles then weren't then to the point that business was so bad, Bill Watts had to get out. If Mantell tries to relive it in 1983 five years later, it will not work. If he changes his game plan, plus takes advantage of the fact there are several fresh young wrestlers out there, that never been seen in Dallas, he could that he could build and remove the stench of Von Erich to the promotion. He may return world class to his former position as a major power in wrestling. Okay. Insert wanking motion here. <laughs> uh, Kim Mantel does not own world class championship wrestling. Well, before we get into that more, 
here's what the Fort Worth Star-Telegram has on the 6th, okay? In the sports briefs. Von Erich sells interest in wrestling organization. Wrestling mogul Fritz Von Erich has relinquished financial ties to the business from which he built one of the world's most famous wrestling dynasties. Von Erich, whose real name is Jack Adkison, sold his interest in world-class championship wrestling to several partners, including ex-wrestler and current ringside promoter Ken Mantell. Quote, wrestling has been the main thing in Mr. Adkison's life for a long time, and will continue to be despite this, uh, said Adkison spokesman Tom Pulley, marketing director for <laughs> the Dallas-based wrestling organization. I guess, to, I guess that's to make it less obvious that Ralph Pulley has like a million jobs within that company. Yes. Because Ralph Pulley was also, for those who don't know, their lawyer and notary. And referee and ring announcer. <laughs> Uh, quote, it was simply the right deal at the right time. It was a simple business deal that doesn't represent any great philosophical change. He's still involved in wrestling, and that will be managing his boys' careers. Adgeson, who lives on a ranch near Tyler, refused to comment on the sale. So not didn't re- so not didn't get back to us. Refused. Yeah. Well, I should tell you why because he didn't really sell. <laughs> not all of it. Well, okay. Has this ever been clearly explained what happened here? Ken Mantell was almost an equal partner with Fritz, basically. But also the person uh, who was putting up the money was Alex Simpson slash Sammy Cohen, right? Um, well, you got uh, well, Bob Bryce still involved, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, that's going to change. I mean, that's about to change because the TV switches back over to Continental within a few weeks. It's already done. It's already doing that now. Oh, it did already. Okay, so yeah, Bombright's not involved. Well, it's anymore. doing it now. Yeah, they're in the transition phase at the moment. Yeah. But this is when it really starts changing. But um, yeah, there's a lot of but 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 I mean, Jerry Jarrett bought world class from Fritz von Eric. So that's to tell you right there. That I mean, no, he <laughs> didn't. Kim Mantel, Kim Mantel got taken out of the game. So he didn't buy out Fritz. Hold on, who did he buy up the contract? Who did he buy out, Biggs? He didn't buy out anyone. He started a new company, where part of the starting of the new company was clearing out the debts of the previous company. I have the contract in the lawsuit, Chris. Well, what does it say? Hold on, I don't remember if I have the contract isolated on here. Um, the actually, story was always he bought he bought out Fritz. Actually, you know what? If you give me one second, I know where I can f- find the contract quicker. So vamp for a second. Um, but it's—I'm not even sure he technically ever set up the new company either, because it doesn't. It's not—I was not able That's to find any records to say for the story. It. Was he, he always bought Fritz out? I'm pretty sure he did not buy Fritz out either. Hold on, okay. Uh, but the name, the world class name, stayed with the Von Erics. Uh, I mean, they because used it later. Kevin, that's how Kevin got to use it again, right? But also, you know, we thought for years that the world-class name went away because the Von Erichs demanded the Jarretts stop using it, and turned out that wasn't the case. It was that Jerry Jarrett thought the name was poison. Um, as I finish logging into what am I logging into here? All right, here we go. Contract, 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 contract. I thought I posted this here. Give me one second. Okay, there we go. Ownership contract. Okay. 
as I open the PDF now. Sorry, that took so long. All right, so, okay, I believe the only parties here, yeah, the only parties signing this contract are Kevin Adkison, Carrie Adkison, and Jerry Jarrett. There is no sale I mean, but, here. Yeah, but basically it's Devon, it's Devon Eric's. There's no Kim Mantel. But there's no sale. He's nothing been is, out. But nothing's been sold here, is my point. Um, this agreement made in Dallas, Texas, effective the 28th day of October 1988, between Kevin R. Adkison, a.k.a. Kevin Von Erich, Carrie G. Adkison, a.k.a. Carrie Von Erich, and Jerry W. Jarrett, uh, to form a corporation for the purpose of promoting professional wrestling, producing wrestling programming, booking wrestler syndication wrestling programming, and related enterprises. Yeah, nothing was bought from Fritz. It was but the a, company was never formed. I could not find a record of the company that they name here being formed with, but there is a company – there's like a USWA company that Max Andrews starts. Heck, it's confusing, and there are companies, but there are also new companies that Mantel formed too, which I don't have that in front of me right now. I can't find it. But like – so I'm, it's not clear to me if Mantel even was transferred anything either. It may have just been back-to-back new companies. But you can see where the store where Fritz sold yeah, it to course. Jerry Jarrett is the one that's, all, that's always out there. It's the story. Yeah, because Ken Mantell was gone for months anyway. He was aced out. Yeah. But anyway. But yeah, so while West Wrestling stays as a thing for a while, it has its own TV show. They tape it on the off nights that they taped uh, World Class at the Sportatorium and use a different camera angle to differentiate it from World Class. Well, wait, they taped on off nights at the Sportatorium? They taped, they taped on the other other Friday, yes. Are you sure? I thought the Wildwood Sportatorium stuff Positive. I've seen Positive. was the same tapings with different camera nope. angles. Because nope. I've seen the matches there on both, but with the different camera angles. They, nope, they, taped, they, they did most tapings on the other night. Well, other how many Friday. did they do? Because I don't think they did many tapings after the They did quite a few. It went into the summer of 88. I mean, I know there's a Mesquite taping they do. Um, trying to remember how much wild, other Wild West I've seen from '88. And the Wild West name stays until '99. You mean '89? Yes, because yeah, so. they keep it as a B show that's mainly a mix of like a rerun match and Fort Worth stuff. Uh, '89 is not that. '89 is uh, Sportatorium stuff listed as Wild West wrestling, but it's the USWA show proper. We've oh, it's just the same before. show. It's just the same matches from in the Chicago. Main show. It was airing as Wild West Wrestling there with uh, the same stuff from the uh, regular show. But it's the show that becomes USWA main event. Yes, this can get very confusing. Yes, several of the Wild West guys like Bill Irwin, Missing Linker, and Part Time Duty, Mike Golden, and Brett Sawyer, newcomers as well. Well, <laughs> not so fast with Brett Sawyer, and Mike Golden does not stay long. On Wild West Television, Brian Adias appeared and was freely talking about the Reunion Arena car. So even though they're trying to keep this separate, obviously that can't last. And most of the Wild West guys will be there. Well, that's the whole big angle they're shooting between uh, Brian Adias and Wild Bill Irwin. There's like a deal in the parking lot where um, one of them's papering the other cars with uh, – I think it's Bill Irwin's papering cars in the, at the Sportatorium parking lot with Wild West shit. So uh, – yeah, so they're trying to do a promotional angle, but they don't do it. It really doesn't last long. No. Um, the big question mark is how will they handle the return of Lance if he indeed does return? 
Lance is actually on a contract at David Manning, who's running independence and trying to start up his own outfit. But until it started, it was letting Lance be one of the headliners for Wild West. Dave's not sure what David Manning's relations will be with this group now that it's Kim Mattel and not Fritz who's in charge. But David Manning basically goes to work for for Crockett as That's a local right. promoter. That's right. And and little does Dave know what you know Kim Mattel's world class is going to be because Michael Hayes is still in Crockett land. And when he quits and comes in, him and that bar, you know, take over the book and do it their way. So, yeah, um, there's something in the Star Telegram about Lan- about Lance week right before our week. What is this? Um, well, Lance has to come back. Oh, he's just doing some autograph signing somewhere. Yeah. All right. So Fort Worth at the Will Rogers Coliseum during our week, November 30th. Frankie the Lancaster over to Spoiler. Eric Amber over Vic Steamboat. Sean Simpson over Cowboy Tony Falk. Brian Adias over Sweet Brown Sugar Skip Young. Matt Bourne over Playboy Vince Apollo. Chris Adams over Kilo Tim Brooks. And Al Perez went to a draw with Tony Atlas. So that is the end of the uh, that version of World Class here. So we're about to get all the new talent influx. Yes, and this is uh, Black Superman Tony Atlas. Mm-hmm. At this time with his Superman outfit. Absolutely, and he's going against Alvarez for the world class title. Yeah. Okay. So who pieces out with Mantel coming in? A lot of this crew. Atlas, Brooks, not right away, right? Um, just a lot, a lot of people. Vic Steamboat, Steamboat spoiler, spoiler, Frankie Lancaster. Um, let's see. Iron Sheik was here. He's gone. Mm. Um. Yeah, just different people. Different and people. also, of course, there's the issue that Gary Hart is the booker, and he and Ken Mantell don't get along. And he's going to be leaving soon to go to Crockett without Perez. So, But in uh, large part because of all that. Well, Ken Mantell's back for, I mean, that out, uh, Gary and Al don't go to Crockett until March. So, I mean, they're the first, first part of 88. Al's champion. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, I was just going to say, oh, my God, I found a newspaper item that says that Lance Von Eric's new name is Lance V-O-N Von. All right, Central States. DJ Peterson's return here, at least temporarily. That's often over the years. Bulldog Bob Brown carries the American flag to the ring in his view with Cuban assassin. I guess you've been watching that Bob Sweetan tape in W.O.W. <laughs> this is Acevedo? Yes. Okay. December 6th in Beatrice, Nebraska. Four three hundred fifty fans saw Steve Ray, well, thanks Steve Ray, of Rip Patterson by DQ when Mike Stone interfered. Pork Chop Cash over Prince Tapu. DJ Peterson and Jay Strombo Jr., Mark Scarpa, beat uh, Mike Stone and Russell Sapp. Bulldog Bob Brown went to a WQ with Cuban Assassin, the best match of the card. Well, that says a lot. And Rubisar Freight Train Jones beat Super Destroyer, Carrie Brown. So there were two different Jay Strombo Juniors? Uh, yeah. Why would you do such a thing? <laughs> At least well, this one's, one's an actual, actual kid. One. Yeah. Yeah. The other one was... Um, who was the other Jay Strongbow Jr.? The California... Somebody from California, wasn't it? That sounds right. Because he worked for California Championship Wrestling. Yes, 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 yes. Former Kansas State footballer and wrestler Curtis Hughes has been refereeing matches here and is training to start wrestling. That's one imposing referee. 
that, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big ref, especially because, well, you got big beefy guys in Central States, so yeah, okay. What an, what an era for guys breaking in as referees that hulk over the wrestlers. We got Curtis Hughes, Mike Enos, Wayne Bloom. Yeah. And managers too, Mark Galeen. Yeah. Hey, is Nick Patrick a ref by this point? He's working in Deep South. He's announcing with Rock Hunter. When does he, he start as a ref? Nick Patrick? When he goes to WCW? You talk about career or, or you talk about here in this era? As being a just full time referee. He's a full time referee when he's a kid, Bix. Inst- after his knee injury, then. Fine. Oh, oh, oh uh, when he goes to WCW. Okay. Which is when? 89? 89. Yeah. When okay. Deep South shuts down. All right. AWA. Vern Gagne is making threats about suing Gene Reed over the Denver situation. That's the promoter in Denver for years. Vern claims that he had the right of first fuse with Reed, who controlled the AWA TV time in Denver, wanted to sell the time. Reed instead sold it to Time WF, leaving Vern without television. Vern is negotiating for TV in Denver and hopes to promote there by April. Even though Titan is loaded with TV in Denver, they canceled their next show while JCP canceled its late December show since their TV now airs at 1 o'clock on Monday mornings. That's a nice time for TV. <laughs> Vern had – this is, I mean, basically Gene Reed's one of the last of the local promoters that Vern had because he already had fell out with Hilgard, Dennis Hilgard. He had already uh, – I think I don't know if uh, Olsen retired in Salt Lake or what, so he he was gone. And of course, while the Carbo's gone, and Lanza been gone. So, yeah, I mean, this is the uh, – this is the end of Vern and having local promoters and AWA basically just takes over promoting all these these towns. Well, Namalini's still doing stuff in San Francisco, so there is that. But yeah, this is the AWA really becoming an entity, on, you know, doing everything on their own instead of depending on local promoters. Well, it's why Rob Russin and uh, Dale Gagner start trying to sell all these sold shows and get spot towns and all that. Because mm-hmm. also, 87 is the first time where you have long periods where the AWA just isn't running shows. Yeah, there, there's gaps regarding regular shows, yeah. Dick Slater has left the area, and a long time Rich will be the main guy for Jerry Blackwell's independent in Georgia, which we talked about. Steve DeSalvo's coming in for just a few days as a babyface, stay place of Norda Barbarian, whose wife just gave birth and is only working out in Minneapolis. This would be Billy Jack Strong? Billy Jack Strong. Yes. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible gimmick. Why don't I just have him work as Steve Strong? You know? Why are you doing a ripoff of the ripoff of the movie character? Well, he wasn't really that. He was basically doing a Native American gimmick. Big oh, wait, track. that's right. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so why is his name Billy Jack? Well, Billy Jack was a Native American in the movies, too. Well, that's what I was about to say. Wasn't the Billy Jack character supposed to be part Native American? Yes, but he wasn't wearing a headdress. See, if you're you're being a Native American, Bix, in in Vern Gagne's mind, you must have the headdress. Well, after all, we do know that that Greg felt he had to teach Charlie Norris how to rain dance in the ring. (laughs) Oh, God. All right, and Portland, Salem, Oregon on December 3rd at Salem Armory. Scott Peterson, Steve Dahl, Southern Rockers over the Avalanche. 
Yo Baby, Yo Baby, Yo, PNUs, and Chris Colt. What a team. <laughs> yeah. They were all part of Chris Colt's little deal at the time. Uh, Coco Samoa went to a draw with Joey Jackson. Brian Adams and Mike Miller defeated the Grappling Rip All by DQ. And then Brian Adams won a $500 on a pole Battle Royal. See, Portland, Mark, is one the one territory that had the most realistic money figures involved in their gimmick matches. We had WOW having $5,000 on the line. You know they didn't have $5,000. But here's Portland running a $500 on a pole Battle Royal. But inflation has not gotten to the Pacific Northwest yet, I guess. <laughs> no. And then Portland Sports Arena on December 5th, we had Art Bard uh, retain the Northwest TV title for C.W. Bergstrom. Coco Saboa, Mike Miller, Chris Colt, Moondog Beretti. Mike Miller over Rip Oliver by DQ. Southern Rockers, Peterson Dahl over Avalanche and Joey Jackson. And the Assassin, uh, Dave Sierra over the Grappler. You made a minute. I mean, hey, that Battle Royal check is worth almost $1,300 now. Yeah, now. And 500 bucks is a lot of money in 87. But it wasn't unrealistic. That's why you could believe it was actually something that was happening. Yeah. And in fairness, Cornette tried to do that in Smokey, too. Yeah, but there were territories that were – I mean, I saw one uh, thing recently as I was doing research from uh, some show in the 80s. I can't remember which promotion it was. They had a $50,000 battle royal, and it wasn't one of the major promotions. It may have been a small indie promotion, an outlaw, $50,000. Fuck out of here with that shit. Come on. Be real. <laughs> How am I supposed to take you seriously? I always like the logic of the, you know, you say each guy put in $500. That's reasonable. And then so you multiply that by the number of guys. And so if it's 20-man battle royal. It's 10 grand. I think that's. Yes. Yes. If you do it like that, it makes it somewhat believable. Yes. But good Lord. All right, let's close now with Jim Crockett Promotions. And uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on here regarding post-Starcade. After Starcade, Dusty Rhodes announced he's thinking about retiring. Now, Dave heard going back a long time that Dusty told people he was going to retire after Starcade 88. So this may be legit. At the same time, Dusty knows full well just how over Terry Funk got in Japan when he announced his retirement, and Dusty never missed a trick to get himself over. Well, I mean, Dusty kind of play up this type of possibility on television in 87. And that's when he beats Luger for the title, though. Um, I I kind of think that maybe his thought was maybe he was going to retire in 89. But then everything happens, and he goes to WF, and, you know, maybe he never expected them to offer him to come in or what. I don't know. Who knows what was in, what's in Dusty's mind? But, uh, yeah, it's possible. And it's bet that Dusty's pulling out all the stops to try and break the downward momentum. The most talked about thing is the turning of Lex Luger. Luger turned on December 2nd at Miami Beach during a car, which was taped for airing on TBS during a bunkhouse stampede before just under 2,000 fans. The stampede came down to Luger, J.J. Dillon, Arn Anderson, and Tully Blanchard. JJ asked his comrades that they let him win because he wanted to go in the record books as a stampede winner. So Tully and Armbuff limited themselves. Luger, however, threw up JJ over the top rope to win it. Since there have been several conversations between Tully and Arn and JJ against Lex. In Dave's mind, turning Lex was the second best thing they could have done, which Dave guessed spells the difference between them and Titan. Titan generally does the best thing it could do, not the second best. 
Luger really could have used another year or two as a heel because even though he's made tremendous strides in the last year, he's still not a good wrestler. But in reality, these are desperate times. They need to do something major. Certainly, Luger has the potential to get over great space, face and fuse with Tully and Arn, and potentially his scraps with Flair should spell big box office if they're handled right. But unless the fans start coming back to their TV sets, it doesn't matter how hot Lance gets as a babyface if nobody's watching the television. All right, let's watch the genesis of this, which takes place on the TV during our week, and uh, we'll have the turn as well, which doesn't air during our week proper. So uh, let's go to the clips. Okay, right off the top, the Starcade 87 was everything that it was billed to be. It was the first of many to come for the total package, Lex Luger, but the level of intensity, the level of competition is something that I've never seen before, and I've been involved in professional football, playoff games, and it was there. The air was like electricity. I have never felt or seen anything like it before, and it was a pleasure to be involved. And you know, when I got in that ring... And Dusty Rhodes and I, we locked eyes. We both knew that the past, the present, and the future of professional wrestling was right there in that ring. Because you see, Dusty Rhodes, my hat's off to you. You wrestled a hell of a match. You showed me that you are what they say you are. But you see, Dusty Rhodes, so is the total package, Lex Luger. Because only a few superstars in our sport, you can count them on one hand. There's that special few that rise head and shoulders above the best. You're one, Ric Flair's another, but you see, so is a total package, Lex Luger. Because when I walk through an airport, people stop what they're doing. When I walk down that aisle in filled arenas, when I take off that robe, people know that they're looking at a special athlete. Something only comes along once in a decade or two. Because you see, in that arena that night, in Starkid 87, when we looked into each other's eyes, I knew Dusty Rhodes that the game plan set forth was all wrong. Excuse me. I, I don't think I understood you right. Shivani, this interview is over. Luger, you and I need to talk. James, we've been personal friends for a long time. We're business associates, but this interview is over when I say it's over. What I'm saying is from now on, you're welcome to accompany me to the ring at any time. But the bottom line is, I will win and lose matches from now on, on my own merits as an athlete and as a competitor. You will, there will be no more outside interference. Uh. Rock and Roll Express. Alright. Um, so that's the first crack in the armor right there. Alright. And JJ's awesome in that whole thing. Just his facial expressions behind Luger. This is what they did with the Oli when Oli was doing the Oli stuff early in the year. Same thing. Where you can see something's coming. And uh yeah, did it again here. All right, so let's continue as this plays on. Double team at its best as they take Trent Knight with the double backdrop. Ricky and Robert with our spam slam of the week right here on the Superstation TBS. Spam slam. Oh, here's the
Luger's just pacing. Crockett, Thanksgiving uh, night. I... So we don't need all this because that's later. Was but that, yeah, so uh, there's the. T- oh, I was gonna say, is that Mike Rotunda and Johnny Weaver making the save? And Nelson, Nelson Royal. Royal. Nelson Royal. Oh, it was Nelson Royal. Okay. But yeah, it's Florida. It's Miami, so you're gonna have that that Florida crew there. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a... being saved by he wasn't being <laughs> saved by like Dusty and Wyndham and of course like, not the, the top <laughs> card guys. Yeah, of course not. <laughs> they don't trust him. Yeah, um, they did a heck of a job hiding that this show drew so poorly. Yeah, the way they they filmed it and everything, and yeah. lit it, and they mic'd it so well that you can't tell. It sounds like a huge packed house. But it was the perfect place to do this angle because it's in Florida, where Lex had been a big time babyface, and where he started. And the fans would get behind him there easier. And it's you know it's a thing that. <sighs> I mean, somebody needed to turn, and this was the this was like Dave said. I guess the second best thing, Flair would have been the best thing, but that wasn't gonna happen. And he does become a better worker from turning babyface. Oh, absolutely, he does. Yes, absolutely, he does. You know, even there. The, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, of course, realistically, you know, you know, he's actually in the wrong here. He should have. He should have let JJ win the Battle Royal. I mean, he wanted to be a bunkhouse winner and add that to his list of allocades. 
There you go. <laughs> okay, so I'm curious about something, actually, by the way, now that you mentioned that. Had there... Because all three, you know, Luger, Arn, and Tully end up in the bunkhouse finals on the pay-per-view. Had Arn and Tully won their qualifiers yet? Uh, probably not, because Stampede's just not getting started. Okay. Because I feel like you can, even, the, you know, their heels, they're going to do what the manager says anyway. I feel like you can justify it even better if they've already won their fi- their uh, qualifiers and Luger hasn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, there's that. There's several other major things in the process taking place. Kevin Sullivan's heel quartet of Rick Steiner, Sullivan, Dr. Stevens, and Mike Rotunda is obvious to most viewers. There's one more major turn up coming as well, with plus a plethora of new angles, which are still highly confidential, but should work. Oh, I mean, you can see that that was the plan for the Varsity Club to be that, that grouping, but it just took longer because Doc had his issues and had to leave for a while. And then he comes back and he's back as a babyface. You mean his uh, first airport incident? Yes. Yes. Um, the T formats are being changed as well. Or the different shows being basically duplicated and may continue to erode the ratings. The current plans for each hour syndicated television be safe for two different shows. In the Pacific hour, the group of matches will have two announcing teams. Let's say Jack Gregory will be doing the Florida show, while at the same time Jim Ross will announce the very same matches for UWF. The, inter- the interviews consist of the same guys, with the different interviews done one night after the other, one right after the other. For instance, when Nikita does an interview, he'll talk with Gregory for the Florida show. Then immediately we'll walk to another backdrop with Ross and do a similar interview for the UWF. So I'm basically duplicate TV shows only announcer and the name of the show being changed has got to hurt TV ratings once the fans catch on. On the good side, the shows have gotten a lot better with fresh angles, but still the same stale, ta- same stale talent on top and longer and more competitive TV matches. Well, just how many markets at this point are getting both, you know, either UWF and Pro or Worldwide and no, excuse me. It was wor- which was which? Power Pro was Pro or UWF initially? Oh God, I knew it, but now I can't remember. Actually, yeah, um, yeah. I think initially Power Pro is worldwide, and Pro is UWF. And then once they get rid of UWF, every every second, every non worldwide or Pro show is Pro. After that, I think <laughs> it can get confusing. I'm trying to see if I can find something to. Uh... To, uh, I mean, they're paying for a lot of this time. You would hope they would eliminate some of the duplication. All right. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to want to watch this years ago. All right. Power Pro Wrestling. Let's see. So Power Pro Wrestling. I got, I got a disc. Where's Power Pro Wrestling and CWF all on the same disc. That's my phone rings. <laughs> um, okay. I don't have... Okay, I don't have it listed here in this one. I thought I did, but I didn't. But anyway, it's just it is what it is. That's just not of me that works. Baltimore about. had All worldwide right. and power pro at least. Yeah. All right. Uh, while we're on a TV subject, these guys have have to stop doing those main events, ending in progress on television. Dave's not really opposed to the idea of person because psycho- psychologically, the idea of leaving your audience wanting more is a valid one. But right now, JCP's at a point he has to give the fans what they want at least for a little while and not turn them off. At least until the viewers have all come back. Well, let's go to an example of that. At the end of World Championship Wrestling on our week, December 5th, the main event is a world title match for Ric Flair and Michael Hayes. So, a strong main event on TV. 
Well, let's go to the last minute of the match and let's see how it ended on television. Tony. Nope, you don't you won't hear that, but okay. go ahead. Let's see if Michael Hayes can do something before we leave you right here. And a quick reminder, don't forget to join us next Saturday and, of course, tomorrow night on our Sunday edition. Michael PSA with the Bulldog. This is move, Jim Ross. There it is. Hayes caught him with a Bulldog. Here it is. Flair is near the ropes again. He's he on, it. on the bottom. Flick. No, Michael thinks he's won it. He certainly... He got a he got a two count, but Flair's foot was on the bottom rope. That's exactly right. And now Ric Flair throws him out on the floor. Michael PSAs moments ago he thought he was the champion, but no, it was a two count. And we are down to the very last seconds of our program. Flair, Michael blocks, coming over the top. Here he comes, trying to get him down again. Can he do it? Can he get him over? Yes. One, two! Oh, fuck you. <laughs> That's how it ended. <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> See, I think in theory, sporadically, going off the air with the match in progress makes sense if it's quote-unquote real sports. You know, because real sports should, doesn't conveniently end, you know, with 10 seconds left to go. You know, again. Yeah, but real room. sports, real sports doesn't have a hard out. And it isn't being shown on tape and syndication and whatnot most of the time. Yeah, well, um, it's not yeah, live. You, yeah, you've got to, you know. But, I mean, I think that, you know, that's one of the things I think that Watts did better certainly than Crockett. It's the same as, you know, Watts actually having a match in in the commercial and then showing it to you when you come back because to show you that it really does happen you know that it's not just a cliche the best were watts and memphis watts had the whole thing of we'll put on the feature match earlier in the show and then have standby matches memphis had the thing where you have these matches with their set time limits and then the last match is your feature match which is an expiration of time match which is the most falls until the expiration of tv time yeah that all makes sense. All right. Um, the tapings, as Dave mentioned here, is uh, they've had matches recently, which are in progress review in the next few weeks, which they would air the ending on the next TV show most often. So oh, that's good. There is that. Might return this term with Kevin Sullivan on several occasions. And one TV match, return that Ricky Santana wrestled in the Express, and Sullivan had taught return the walking on the match, leaving Santana alone to get pinned. In a recent match in Baton Rouge, return to Russell Nikolai, Nikolai, Nikita Kolov in a scientific match for TV title, and Nikita won. Doesn't that stretch the imagination? A guy who knows no moves, beating a former collegiate champion in a scientific match, and afterwards Sullivan jumped Nikita and Rotunda joined in. Now, while the Williams turn hasn't occurred, it should take place for the end of the year. The problem here is that Doc has contact in New Japan's office, where he starts on January the 4th, and asks him to increase his schedule from 12 to 16 weeks per year. He said he'd be quitting the NWA in just a few weeks. They should put one thing out. Doc is starting to quit the NWA, and before that, UWF on a consistent basis for most of the last year, but never went through with it. So until he's actually gone, Dave's not taking a threat too seriously, although it does seem he's trying to make a contingency plan. Dave thinks Doc earns about 5800 a week in Japan, so if he can get 16 weeks there, that's $92,000 a year, which isn't a bad income for someone who has 36 weeks a year to do as he pleases. $5,800 a week in Japan for someone who's not that huge a name is... I want to know who negotiated that deal for him. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty stout. It, do you think that's Watts when Watts made the working agreement and being like, this is my guy, no, no, take care not, of him? No, no, he had to basically had to prove himself. So he probably, you know, he proved that he could, he was worth that money. So, yeah. If that news isn't bad enough, JCP is also decimated by injuries right now. Rick Steiner's out with a separated shoulder. Barry Wyndham with a broken collarbone. And Ricky Morton with a bad back. All legit. All right, the Miami Show drew 2000 for the Stampede, which Luger won. Rick Flair, Michael Hayes, a 25 minutes of okay match. Wyndham went to a 20 went, went to a 20 minute draw with Zabisco. 10 minutes here on TV were good. First 10 minutes off TV contained no action. Charlotte on the sixth saw Flair over Sting. Road Warriors in the ring over Tully, Arn, and JJ. Mighty Wilbur over Arn Anderson. And the Midnight's with WQ against Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, plus TV squashes for the taping. Beyond me that night, in Atlanta, 8,800. However, the gate was still nothing spectacular. So all tickets were $5 for adults, and kids were a dollar in the balcony. As Bugsy McGraw drew Conga the Barbarian. Awful. Oh, Conga the Barbarian. Yeah, that guy who's been using that name clearly for the last four well, years. That's definitely that's his ring name. That's the name that Japan used for him. Larry's Visco, Ricky Santana, 11 minutes using the roads, mainly stalling. Santana stuff for Wyndham. Sheepers went to a 50 minute draw with Brad Armstrong, Tim Horner. Excellent match. Sting over Terry Taylor with a sunset flip, pretty good. Doc and Ron Simmons over Kevin Sullivan and Black Assassin Bill Tab when Doc stampeded Assassin. Steiner was supposed to team with Sullivan, but missed because of injuries. Sullivan never worked against Doc in the match. In fact, whenever Assassin would try to punch Doc, Sullivan would grab his hand and not let him. Simmons looked awful in this match. Nikita rated Gilbert in a Russian chain match by dragging around all four corners where Nikita bled heavily. Match pretty slow. Road Warriors over Flair and Arn. Arn subbed for Lex by DQ when Tully didn't run in. Arn and Tully in Midnight's then won an eight-man steel cage match from the Rock and Roll Express in the New Breed. At 10 minutes, 30 seconds, when Arn pinned Gibson. After the match, New Breed and Rock and Rolls had words and split up. It appeared the New Breed would be turned back in the heels, but one of the two is turning. Lane, Eaton, and Morton all bled. Chris Champion came off the top of the cage with a move at one point. And it goes into Chris and the Omni. Where Flair and Wyndham, Stampede, Arnatelli against Garvin and Hayes, Murdoch coming back to Russell Dog, Koloff against Wilbur, and get this one, Warlord versus Nikita. So there's that. UWF tag belts have been forgotten. Dave's not sure what the status of Sheep Herders is, but they're long, no longer the champions or what the belts we talk about anymore. Florida tag belts have also been dropped. Steve Kern quit the promotion, so apparently we'll either stay at the rest of Memphis or perhaps work with a new global promotion, which plan on running weekly cards in the major cities in Florida starting in January. Kern and Mike Graham were the chance, but those belts have faded into history as well. Well, that's, of course, that's going to happen because those promotions are now dead. So there you go. Now, we talked about the podcast Stampede. Dusty Rhodes cut a great promo on World Championship Wrestling about the bunkhouse Stampede. So we close with Dusty. And this is Dusty in his mysterious blue room since he doesn't want to be in the studio and get booed anymore. And he's wearing the Uncle Howdy hat. Yes. This is Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, the buckle, the boot, the prestige, the money of the bunkhouse stampede. Being the baddest of the bad, being the bull of the woods, if you will. 25, 30 million, stampeding into one little bit of ring, you understand? With one thing in mind, to hurt somebody, to kick somebody's booty, to twist their arm off and put their ankles up in the chin. And many mornings I got up. Dwelling on the fact of being the two times winner of the bunkhouse stampede, how am I going to do it this year? When last year I had to feel around, see if my nose was still on my face. Look up in the morning and see if my ears were still on my head. 
My eyeballs in the socket was were playing steady on my mind because I knew Dusty Rhodes has to be the bunkhouse stampede champion for the third time. If you will, for your hockey fans, it's a hat trick. You understand? It's a hat trick. And Dusty Rhodes now comes at you with this in mind. Anywhere, any place that on the marquee you see the National Wrestling Alliance presents the Bunkhouse Stampede. If you want to just feel a little bit of how bad it is to be the baddest, to be the bull of the woods, then and only then, buy your ticket, walk in and sit down and watch Dusty Rhodes become the bull of the woods. Well, of course, Dusty's, you know, going to do that because he was in charge of the steering committee. Mm-hmm. And he also had the uh, the Moo of the Week. The Moo mm-hmm. Match of the Week on Moo Prime. Moo Match of the Week on yeah. Prime. So, yes, there we go. <laughs> Pull of the wood. Dusty Rhodes. He was laying it on thick with the Dusty voice there, too. Like, more than yes. usual. Yes, he was. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. Mark, we appreciate you being on with us again. So go ahead and plug away, my friend. What you got going on? Okay. We have the Winter Palace podcast. That's the main podcast that we do. Uh, we just had Bo on the show last week talking about the Crockett Era Starcades, which we just passed by here in 1987. Uh, also, recently, Al Getz was on to talk about uh, his new book from the, the Charting the Territories book. Uh, Armstrong Alley has been on a couple times talking about all that stuff that's on his channel, including the wow that we spent a good time tonight talking about, plus some of the other fun stuff. Um, I'm also now doing the plot podcast. Uh, that's on our site, but it's also being done with Carl Stern and his When It Was Cool Network. That's a more general pop culture podcast. The original idea was to do stuff about spies and uh, – heist movies and things like mission impossible and uh other kind of things we we did a bunch of weird stuff for halloween on their site we talked about some saturday morning cartoon stuff and uh this great british show called ultraviolet that everybody should watch from the 90s that ildris elba was like his first major show uh we just did one recently on the 90s batman cartoon after kevin conroy passed away so that comes out every couple weeks it's a short form podcast which is usually just me although i have had guests on um and speaking of wow i'm actually talking to maybe somebody who was part of wow that we may hopefully have on a future edition of the podcast and that's it thanks Scott. thanks guys for having me on all right thank you mark as always for being on with us all right um uh, next week we're doing the show that we talked about on the liberal Arts show so the 1990 show will be next week. Of course, uh, if you might, may have forgotten about that, we're talking about uh, Dusty Rhodes coming back home as he's going to be announced as the booker for the NWA WCW and Ollie Anderson getting fired. So we'll have to talk about that. We'll have uh, news on WF and uh, Survivor, Survivor Series 90 and the aftermath of all that and all kinds of other stuff. So it uh, should be quite the show next week on between the sheets and then we'll get some sort of normal formation coming back up uh hopefully for the end of the year to get back in line so there we go all right mark thanks again for uh, being with us this week big course thank you as always you're the rock of the show and this is chris and so long from the peach state 
of Georgia. Between the Sheets, Patreon Special Edition, number 74. I'm your host, Chris Zona, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time to go back yet again to 1997 as we're in part two of our three-part series of 25 Years of Montreal. And, uh, yeah, this should be quite the show. And I think this one also just covers two weeks again, right? <laughs> Uh, I'm looking here. I think it does. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have so to play the it. The last by two year. weeks of November. <laughs> yeah, how we divide this up, and then uh, part three is basically through the rest of the year, and then the wrestling with shadows issue. Yeah. So. All right. Well, you know where we left off at was um, Survivor Series. You know, and uh, all that went on there. Well, and uh, and Brett's post Montreal column in the Calgary Sun, I believe, was what we ended on. Well, now let's go to the Observer. When you look up the term "bait and switch" in your dictionary, there should be a synonym to it: World Wrestling Federation. In the decision to forfeit potential pay per view money, the biggest revenue stream in the company, in favor of television ratings, and probably short term at that, November twenty fourth live Raw from Fayetteville, North Carolina, was built around Bret Hart. The same Bret Hart who wasn't there, and based on his own words, will never be there again. Nevertheless, Bezeme, notwithstanding, the WF has drawn two of his strongest ratings of the year, basically due to the rest of the company has now tried to label as not being worth what they were paying him in the wake of the double cross finish of Survivor Series. 
There can be little doubt based on the quarter hours and logic itself that the first week's rating came from a combination of curiosity over the finish the night before and a gift from WCW and making the Bret Hart announcement before Raw started, even though WCW drew a better rating in the process. They also created curiosity as what was going to be said on the WS show later that night. Based on quarter hours, there's no question the strength of the November 17th Raw rating was based on curiosity regarding the Vincent Man interview about Bret Hart. And he knew that the plan was originally done to put closure to the Bret Hart issue. Of course, only fueled the fire among some, but more importantly, it became obvious that after trying a million hotshot ideas and failing almost every time, that WF has finally found something that could move the ratings. All right, refresh my memory. Is Nitro and Raw at the same time? Are they going head to head both hours at this time period? He just said they're not. Did he? I can't remember. What it... He just uh, said oh, yeah, because yeah. the yeah. the bread announcement was before. When Raw. was the was the Vince announcement the first hour, or second hour? The the, the sit down. I don't remember. Because I'm curious if it went up head to head against Nitro. Want me to pull up the torch? I'm pull, I'm going there now. Yeah, I'm getting there. Because if that's the case, I would have d- definitely held off on uh, doing anything until that happened. Or if this go concurrent. All right, so Vince, the Vince quarter hour. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, it was in two parts. The first part played in, in the quarter hour number two. Head to head against Nitro. Okay. Part two aired in quarter hour number seven, which would be the last quarter, the second last quarter of the show. Interesting. So I would have definitely, you know, programmed against that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, WCW definitely gave them, a, you know, a layup there. And they took advantage of it. That's only WCW could. It's still it's it's still amazing how they how they totally botched this whole thing from beginning to end. It is amazing. A, a big slam dunk. Mm. One of the biggest slam dunks you could ever have. And just the way you, you fuck it up. It's just amazing to me. Alright. So for the November twenty fourth for all newspapers around the country, including USA Today, they listed the main event on that show as being Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels. That was the hook. To make sure when the show started, people didn't wise up to the hook. They opened the show with Michaels in an interview claiming he had a secret conversation with Brett, unbeknownst to everyone, including Vince McMahon, and using the term as God is my witness, even using terms like internet and underground dirt sheet, and doing an interview out of character to make people believe he was shooting and not working in a new blurred environment that he was working under. He said Brett was going to be there, and a white limo was shown several times for the remainder of the hour with, with announcers Jim Ross and Jim Cornette trying for all their work to sell the idea that was Brett in the limo. Of course, you all know the rest of the story. Instead of Brett, they dressed up a mini in a leather jacket and sunglasses, called him Hart, had Michael swim in a sharpshooter, and only stuck the mic in his face when the mini said that he submitted, Michael's was the icon, the showstopper, put a WCW sign on his butt, kicked him in the butt out of the ring, and said, go there with the rest of the garbage. Then WF could hide behind the idea that it wasn't the company doing a bait and switch, but Michael's the heel who was lying to the fans, which is what a heel should do. Granted, the humiliating a big star with a skit like that is a standard wrestling gag, but in the past, it's always been done to set up a big grudge match. Usually when it's done, otherwise, the very talent that has left, such as Billionaire Ted skits in 96, has backfired in the face of promotion doing so. 
no doubt in this entire if this entire Brett Vince Sean thing had been an angle, it was the best woman man's done in years. It would be tons of money to be made when the Brett Sean rematches were to take place. Only one problem. They're on the rematches. The match they need to hype people for seeing is Sean versus Ken Shamrock. And how do you think on that television show result in that feeling in your, in your gut? You can't wait to see Sean uh, Ken beat Sean. No, you want to see a match that the company can't deliver. In this case, the skip was done with the idea of humiliating someone who has signed with the opposition. But if anything, it backfired, only making Brett even more the focal point in WF than when he actually held the title. Whatever the company was theoretically trying to accomplish by doing a double cross in regard to the so-called protection of the company has been made far worse. The focal point of the company, a bigger deal to the company when he held the belt itself, and now a bigger deal than the belt itself, is about to debut on their rival television show. How much time did Michael spend during the show talking about Ken Shamrock, his opponent next pay-per-view? The revenue stream where big money is generated. How much time did the announcer spend hyping that? And other matches on the next pay-per-view. Let's face it. Aside from Slaughter vs. Triple H and Butterbean vs. Mark Merrow, can you name a match on that pay-per-view based on watching a television show? How much time was trying to, spent trying to humiliate Bret Hart, Rit Rude, because he left the company, and actually the skit where Harvey Whippleman playing Rit Rude was hilarious had they dropped it at that point rather than try to run the same gag twice and not being funny and really pathetic the second time. And Jim Neidhart, because of fear he's going to leave the company, because there's another way where WF thought he could get under Bret Hart's skin. The show itself is weird enough. I watched them the last years of the AWA, but with much super production values, where the emphasis is on burying the wrestlers who had left the company rather than building up what was left. Barrels only made the wrestlers bigger in the promotion itself like it was going down in those days. It looks no different from the outside today. The legitimate bitterness the company appears to have towards Brett, which delivered another strong rating, appears to be taken away from his job promoting wrestling. And the weirdness of the attempts at other symbolism during the show, in particular Jeff Jarrett complaining about Vince. Now filling his contract to the letter trying to create the idea to the fans of people who take Brett's side because of the valid point about not living up to contracts by WF are nothing but whining crybabies. You know, you read this, and then, you know, we have what happens in the December pay review and where WF is heading. Boy, I tell you, it really cements the case of how important Mike Tyson was to that company being what it would become. This sounds like a dying company. Absolutely. Mike Tyson coming in that company saved their saved them. This sounds like 2000 WCW. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mike Tyson saved that company. It's just amazing. Think about that. I mean, Austin, being Austin is definitely a part of it. But, I mean, if there's no Mike Tyson to play off of Austin, then you don't have it. Austin's basically Jeff Jarrett. In 2000 WCW. I don't know if I'd say that, but I well, get what you're trying to say, I think. <clears throat> he's, he's, I mean, he's the top guy in a company that's dying. I mean, this is ridiculous. And I totally forgot about all this. I mean, I remember the, the mini Brett thing. But it, it, advertising Brett versus Sean in the in national newspapers? I didn't remember that or that the mini... Neidhart, Whippleman is rude, and the Jarrett thing were all on the same show. All on the same show. Yeah, it's crazy. And this is so petty. So very petty. And so anti-doing business. Mm -hmm. I mean, good lord. If they didn't put the Brett Sean thing in in USA Today and the other TV listings... You can get away with the it's the heel who promised this thing to a point. 
But not when you put it in the log lines in the newspapers. And the thing is, you know, and, and, and people want to come at me or say, well, Vin, Vince turning heel is the cat, you know, the big cows. Mike Tyson's the most important part of that. Mm-hmm. Vince is not a heel, really, until the Tyson thing. He is, but he isn't. You know, there's no catalyst for him in Austin. Well, the rock, the rock thing first. Well, kind of. But, uh, but Tyson's the real catalyst. You ruined it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it just sticks out like a sore thumb here. Yeah, I did not remember at all that this was all one show. And then, about, I mean, and then Sean fucks, fucks his back up. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you're going to lose Sean, too. And we have no Tyson? Oh, my God. And Tyson's a major hook in that match. I mean, how much business do you think that Mania match does without Tyson? Not the 700,000 buys or whatever it actually did. Hell fucking no. Hell no. Much like, you know, we've talked about with 1984 and Cindy Lauper, Mike Tyson in 98 is as important, if not bigger. Yes. Wow. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.